Chapter 17 Rasha had always thought Narashtavik was the pinnacle of a sprawling, potent city, the kind of place you could get lost in. In her line of work, you couldn't ask for more. But as she neared the capital's gates, she was starting to think you could fit Narashtavik into a single quadrant of Bressel. The city was big, bigger than big. People scurried everywhere, tan and dark-haired, supplemented by a goodly number of others with light brown faces and hair as yellow as corn silk, and speckled by citizens and visitors who seemed to be from every limb of the world. Pale, black-haired Gascons, tall people with skin as reddish-brown as chestnuts, others with short orange hair and faces that were nearly as dark as charcoal. Ahead, Blue-shirted guards examined the flow of people coming through the gates, stopping everyone who hit their eye the wrong way. Her mission felt suddenly real in a way it hadn't during the long ride from the north. She'd taken Galand up on his offer for many reasons, including a few she didn't fully understand. What she knew for sure was that she was tired of being hunted of feeling like a rat who had to dash for cover whenever one of the sharp-eyed and sharper-clawed agents of the citadel came prowling by. And maybe, after Gates, she'd been pushed away by disillusionment with what Narashtavik's underclass liked to call the Brotherhood of Scum. Not that she was walking out on the order. More like taking a break while seizing the opportunity to learn how not just to walk in the shadows, but to kill with them. When she came back home, not only would the Citadel no longer be their enemy, but she'd be equipped to protect her people and her kids from anything short of a barbarian horde. She passed through the gates. A pair of guards moved in front of her, eyes roving up and down her body. Maybe they were inspecting her for swords, or maybe they were just enjoying the benefits of a job that allowed you to look at whoever you wanted for as long as you liked, without being criticized for it. The shorter of the two guards raised his eyes to her face, then her hair. Unimpressed with what he saw, he said something, but it sounded like a foreign language. Oh, shit. It was. Rasha tried to reconstruct the words in her mind. Something about... doing? No, about business. Was she here on business? Yes, she said in Malish. Business. The guard looked at her like she was trying to stick her tongue up her own nose. He repeated himself, slowing the words. What's your... Business. Rosha smiled, buying herself a few moments. Despite weeks of lessons with Dante, hearing Malish spoken in real time and in full vocabulary threw her for a loop. It was like she'd been taught to swim in a knee-deep pond and then been tossed into the ocean during a winter squall. She took in the scene around her. They were letting almost everyone else through without question, including a number of men whose clothes were as tattered as the Lady of Whisper's maidenhead, obvious vagabonds, if not highwaymen, 
Why were they being allowed inside? They looked like... Malishers. Like they belonged. Here to serve, she said, or tried to. Her grammar was awful, slapping words together like a drunkard hammering wooden cutoffs together in the hopes they'd form something chair-like enough to sit on. She smiled at the guards, playing up her naive innocence. Family in their church. They exchanged a look, then stepped aside and waved her in. She was well past them before she allowed herself to smile. For there was one reason she'd agreed to come to Bressel. To see new places, and cause them trouble. The spires of temples jabbed at the grey late winter sky. Blocky towers squared their shoulders against the city below them. The roofs weren't half as steep as in Narashtovic, and everything was so whitewashed it made her eyes hurt. Even so, while the forms were different, the function was the same. Tenements and public houses, markets and churches, makeshift buildings that had started as a cottage or barn and grown into an unholy mishmash of additions and expansions. For the better part of an hour, she let herself walk the city, guided by nothing more than the want to feel the streets with her feet and inhale them into her lungs. Much like the buildings, Bressel's classes of people looked a little different than she was used to, but if you didn't get hung up on the small details, it was easy enough to recognize who was who. Shopkeepers and stall vendors calling out their wares. Beggars and passers-by who pointedly ignored them. Nobles and the rich rattling past in their sleek black carriages. Best of all, though, was the greatest freedom of them all. Being lost in a crowd. Anonymous and ignored, able to wander and observe without so much as a drop of fear. In Narashtovic, she hadn't been able to do that for a long time. She'd forgotten how much she'd missed it. Somewhere, a bell rang, melodious but foreboding. Like it was warning the little people below it that judgment was always on its way. Rosha smiled again adjusted her pack on her shoulders, and got on her way. Business was business. It was time to get down to it. Blaze had told her that the city's main liberators of imprisoned wealth were an outfit called the Red Ghosts. He'd claimed that the last time he'd spent time in Bressel, the ghosts had favoured the taverns of the cutlery district. Rosha didn't know why the city had a cutlery district, to say nothing of why its cut purses and cutthroats preferred to hang out there, but people like that tended to have warped senses of humor. Maybe they liked that it kept them closer to the knives. The bigger streets had their names carved on posts set into the corners, but she was even worse with written malice than the spoken variety. As she asked directions, she quickly discovered the locals didn't think too much of people who spoke broken malish in thick Narashtovic accents. Ultimately, though, their politeness was stronger than their prejudice. An hour, and only two wrong turns later, she found herself in a cobbled square of shops, interspersed with pubs.
Outside many shops, carved wooden forks and knives thrust up from the cobbles, taller than an orin, like the sacred idols of a lost dinner-worshipping kingdom. Rosha wandered up for a closer look. Clever metal cutlery glinted behind glass windows, couched in dark velvet. Each set of gobstuffers was unique. In one, the ends of the handles were shaped like seashells. Another set bore the roaring heads of bears and eagles and cougars. Others were more abstract, hewn from stark angles, or etched all over with delicate spirals. Pretty, artful, but also one of the silliest fashions Rasha had ever seen. She ducked her head into a public house. A glance at the normals inside told her more than enough. She moved on to a pub painted garish orange, its sign illustrated with a turtle standing on its hind legs, with its front paws put up like a pugilist's. The boxing turtle? Inside the dim common room, she spotted her own kind at once. Sprawled in their booths and propped on their stools, they looked leisurely enough. But their eyes always seemed positioned to watch you and everyone else in the room, and their bodies, though momentarily relaxed, looked spring-loaded to run or fight at a moment's notice. All that aside, the fussy hair and glittering jewellery was a dead giveaway. A low wooden bar ran across the back of the room. She seated herself at it, glancing at the foamy mug of the man next to her and confirming Malin knew the glory of beer. She ordered a mug. It was as bitter as a husband whose wife had left him for a man with straight teeth. Where was the sourness? She didn't know if she could trust a land that couldn't be trusted to make good beer. The man to her left watched her with a smile. He wore a short brown beard that got thin over his cheeks, like a baker that had tried to stretch their dough too far. Something the matter with your drink? Rorschach summoned up her words. Do I make faces? Like you're swallowing something that's still alive. Not what you're used to. No, I am used to good. He barked with laughter. He was about her age, and he was handsome, in a slightly too intentional way. She wasn't big on men whose ponytails looked like they'd been quaffed in the king's stables. She preferred the type who looked like they cut their hair with their own blades. He leaned forward, reaching for her mug. Could be a bad batch. Better let me try. He hefted it, sipped, and swished it around. Tastes good to me. I'll drink it if you won't. She took it back. I must get used to it, or have no beer at all. Are you new in town? Is my talk that obvious? Speech, he corrected, and I'm afraid so, along with your eyes and your hair and the way you walk. You watch me come in? Guilty but you chose to sit next to me. I sit where there is chair. 
she winced at the clumsiness of her grammar, but the man laughed as if she was the wit in a play. What brings you here? I look for work. What kind of work? The work of this place. She gestured around the room. The work that is done on nights and streets. You're looking for a brothel? I took you for a nice girl. Not a brothel. Rochaw gave him a disparaging look as she searched for the phrase she'd made Galland teacher. The merchants of the black market. Oh, that. The man took a long swig from his mug and set it down a little too abruptly. We don't do that here. Sorry. Do I look like... She searched for the word. King's men? The king's a cunning fellow. It would be just like him to enlist a Gaskin to waltz in and trick poor innocent men into lives of crime. Gaskin? Had the man never seen somebody from Narashtovic? She was about to scorn him when she realized he probably hadn't ever left the confines of Mallon. Giving him a second appraisal, she understood she'd snapped at the wrong fly. He was what the order called a quiver-filler, the type you wanted to have plenty of at hand, but who was utterly replaceable and expendable. He couldn't make recruiting decisions. He was probably under direct orders to deny the Red Ghost's existence. I am sorry, she said. I made a mistake. He grinned. Happens to the best of us. If you want to make it up to me, I'm happy to let you buy me a beer. She begged off. Not a good move, getting mired down with a quiver filler when she needed a person who aimed the arrows and left the boxing turtle, wandering for a while to clear her head. She was working with steeper hardships than she'd accounted for. Limited as her speech was, it was hard to persuade, and impossible to be subtle. Among her kind, subtlety was a far more important skill than picking pockets or locks. A clumsy thief was a dead thief, or much worse, a captured thief who gets tortured until she gives up her friends. But words weren't the only way to persuade. Often, what you looked like gave you more authority than the reasonableness of your words. Rosha looked down at herself and pulled a face. At that moment, what she most resembled was a charwoman who'd lost a fight with a team of pigs. Hundreds of miles of travel had left her clothes rumpled, patched, and dingy. She spent a while wandering around the plaza and watching the comings and goings from the boxing turtle. When she was satisfied she had a general eye for their style, she toddled off to find a tailor. Bressel had a full-blown garment district, but a few questions turned up the fact there was a small tailor's neighborhood just a few blocks from the cutlery district. She hoofed it over. The shops displayed the latest in ruffian fashion. She settled on a young woman who looked eager for business. Rochaw laid out what she needed, how fast she needed it, then haggled down the price. By modifying a few things she already had, the girl thought she might be able to have it done the following evening. 
Rasha gave her a down payment and went on her way. She couldn't get anywhere with the red ghosts until she had her clothes. To make use of her time, she walked all the way to the palace. It was big, impressive-looking, palatial, even, almost entirely stone, which she'd been expecting, but that was nice to confirm. She smiled at it, as if admiring it, while she assessed ways to break in. Darkness came along. She found an inn and got a room. Downstairs, they were roasting chicken with potatoes and onions and carrots. Plain stuff, but they'd pinched some spices on it to dress it up. Anyway, after weeks of road food, it felt like a coronation feast. Her room was on the fourth floor. The night was cool and heading toward cold, but she opened the window to flush out the smell of the previous tenant. Outside, the night was its usual mixture of friendly shouts, laughter, and drunken singing. Rosha knew she should be doing something useful with her time, even something as basic as going downstairs to have a drink and brush up on her malice. But hearing the clamor outside in a language that wasn't hers, a strange sadness sagged her shoulders. Why had she come all this way? Why had she agreed to leave her people in order to meddle in the affairs of two countries she didn't give one shit about? To learn the shadows. Why? The ego of strength? She snuffed her candle, lifted her hand, and called the nether to her fingers. It was scary, beautiful, powerful. But was it worth it? By the time she woke up, she hadn't found any answers. But she didn't care, either. She'd made her decision weeks ago. She was here. She'd do her job. She spent the day touring the city, talking to locals, goading them into explaining politics to the wide-eyed foreigner. She tried to poke the conversation toward wars and foreign affairs, hoping the people she was speaking with would spit out a few names worth spying on. The name Harold Wallstone came up three different times. He was the minister of the Eastern Reach, and it sounded like he was a hard-ass. After a long day, the last light angled through the sky like it was passing through clear water. She headed back to the tailor. The job wasn't done yet, but the girl was happy to keep working. She was hungry, eager to prove herself. Rorschach was happy to see it. As the nine o'clock bells neared, the tailor handed Rasha a bundle of clothes and showed her to a private room to dress. Were the malish that squeamish about the sight of somebody else's small clothes? Rorschach stripped out of her old junk and pulled on a linen shirt, trousers that were rakishly baggy yet contoured to her shape, and a woolen doublet with sleeves that stopped at the elbow. Some of her ilk liked fancy footwear, but Rorschach thought that well-worn shoes were a mark of your character. She'd kept hers. All in all, it should have looked mannish, but the cuts and stylings kept it feminine. For her line of work, it was the perfect marriage of rebelliousness and practicality, 
On her way out of the tailor's, she felt enough swagger to be tempted to kick down the door. She made her way back to the boxing turtle. Good cheer spilled from the shutters. Her entrance drew a few glances. She found an empty spot at a shelf on the side of the room and flagged down the serving boy for a beer. As she made her way through the bitter drink, she surveyed the room. Didn't take long to find her mark. He sat at a table surrounded by confident young men and a few women who got a good laugh out of everything he said. His dark hair was swept back from his brow with an oil that surely smelled sweet, and when he gestured with his mug, he didn't spill a drop. Two types of people had dexterity like that, acrobats and people who knew how to kill other people with swords. If she wanted access to the Red Ghosts and their underground contacts, information, and resources, that was who she had to convince. Rosha doubted that words or the right outfit would be enough. She bided her time until he rose to use the privy. As he returned through the room, she stood and cut across the pub to intercept him. The old bump and grab would be too obvious. He'd probably known that one since he was six. Night saves the lady. If she fell in front of him, he'd probably help her up. He had to look good in front of his crew. But if he caught on to her game, her attempt at something so obvious would be humiliating. Wreck her chances. No, there was only one way for it. Do something he'd never see coming. He was halfway back to his table, smiling in the cocky, lazy way of people who think their success proves their superiority. Rosha curled her fingers at the nether. It rolled out from under the tables and danced over to her hand. She tossed most of it aside. Using the finesse Galant had beaten into her during the trip, she sent a bug-sized dollop of darkness flying toward the man's head. It split apart, one half settling over each eye. He stopped, made stride, eyes widening against his sudden blindness. Rosha moved beside him. He reached out for balance, or perhaps to reassure himself that he was still conscious. His hand brushed Rosha's side. She smiled, stepped away, and dropped the nether from his eyes. He stood there a moment, arms held a foot from his hips, as if ready to reach out and grab the world if it tried to slip away again. He muttered under his breath, then donned his cocky smile as if it had been a hat snatched by the wind. Rasha bided her time, letting him get back into the swing of things. But he was drinking harder now, rattled. Before he could get so drunk he got unpredictable, or started forgetting his promises, Rosha waited until someone on the opposite side of his table had launched into the telling of a long story, then headed over. She stopped in front of him. He barely glanced her way. Excuse me, good sir. Rosha gritted her teeth, praying hard to carve a hell that she didn't sound as stilted as she felt. You will hire me. He swung his head around, a little drunk, but there was still some dagger in his gaze. Fuck off. 
I can't in good faith fuck off, sir. I think you'll find it's quite simple. It's just like regular off, except you do it harder. But I can't, because I find this. She held out her hand. The thief lord leaned forward. He gazed down at the gem-studded black leather bracelet in her palm, then felt his sleeved wrist. Where did you find that? On your arm. You stole my father's bracelet from me, and now you ask me for a job. He'd kept his voice low, but the entire table was staring at them. Roshaw nodded. So I can use my skills for you. His hands darted out and crushed her wrist. He stood, taking the bracelet from her. His face was as red as if it had been struck. You stole from me. In my own house? You have three seconds to get out before I steal your life. Rorschach sucked in a quick breath. Good, sir. One. Two. She turned and ran from the pub. As she flung open the door, the whole room burst into laughter. Rorschach jogged down the cobbles, then broke into a flat-out run, not because she was afraid of pursuit, they'd gotten their laugh, that'd be enough, but because the pain of her disgrace was so intense, the only way she could deal with it was to run until her body hurt worse than her soul. A misty drizzle was coming down, slicking the cobbles and manure. After the second time Rosha slipped, she slowed down and turned into the next alley. She confirmed it was empty, then hunkered down next to a stoop, raking her hand through her hair. Part of it was just a bad turn of the cards. Instead of being appreciated for her skill and amused by her audacity, he'd taken it as a blow to his status. Even worse, it hadn't just been a flashy bauble, it had been his father's. Even so, Rasha might have been able to turn things around if she wasn't so bad with malice that everything she said came off arrogant or foolish. Surviving on the streets depended on being able to read people around you. If Rasha couldn't present herself so they could read her correctly, she was as doomed as Irulan in the Hall of the Bone Eaters. The rest of the night was a waste, moping, kicking herself. Worst of all, she stayed up too late and drank too much and couldn't rouse herself until eleven in the morning. Her first meet with Sorowan was late that night. She spent the early afternoon eyeballing the palace some more. Could she insinuate herself as a servant? Thing was, in a place like that, even the servants were scrutinized to hell and gone. No way they'd take on a foreigner who didn't have a single reference. Earning that reference would take weeks, if not months. Long enough that by the time she had it and was able to worm her way inside, Malin could have already launched a new campaign against Colin. Or Narashtovic. Scratch that, then. Coming at it from the other angle, she scrounged around until she found a neighborhood full of blonde-haired, tan-faced coloners. She grabbed a seat in a pub and left her ears open.
The other patrons didn't talk much politics until she ordered a second beer in a very thick and very non-Malish accent. After that, they did some jeering of the Malish for losing the war, and some speculation as to whether the king would call for a final invasion. But it didn't feel any more substantial than typical drunken commoner gossip. Night came, her old friend. She made her way past an arena, then a neighborhood of temples and monasteries and apothecaries, then old and run-down housing, then a park of statues of ancient dead men she didn't give a shit about. Sorrowan was already waiting for her. Knowing him, he'd probably gotten there thirty minutes early, then spent the wait worrying that he'd gotten the time wrong. She came up on him from behind. Hey, holy man. He started, banging his skull on the elbow of a beckoning statue. He turned, rubbing his head. Why would you do that? Because I could. How's it going? Good, I guess. They accepted me into the priesthood. Already? He shrugged. Dante was right. As soon as I showed them I could use the ether, they gave me my vows. Now all you need to do is assassinate your high priest, take his place, and mount a violent investigation to find his killer, using the ensuing confusion to commandeer all the information you can grab about Colin. I'm not... But why would they even appoint me? He frowned at her. Have you gotten anything from the ghosts? Rorschach tilted back her head. The night smelled like trees. There's been a snag. I'm working on it. A snag? Like what kind of snag? Like they've resisted my efforts to be recruited. But why would they do that? I thought you were the best. It's complicated. Could be they're about to pull a job and they're wary about being infiltrated. Could you be pushing too hard? He picked at a loose thread on his plain grey robe. Maybe you should act like when you like a girl and she isn't so sure about you. How is that? You know, like you don't really care, but if she was smart, she'd go for a walk with you. Despite herself, she smiled. Hear anything from his holiness? Dante? Nothing, really. They're on their way to Alibolgia. Where are you keeping the device? Device? What device? I'm supposed to report what I find to you, therefore you have a way to get it to Galan. A magic bird, a flying bottle, an incredibly loud whistle that only he can hear. Whatever it is. Uh, Sarawin said. It was entrusted to me. And if something happens to you and I don't know where it is, I won't have any way to get in contact with them. I can't, Rosha. This is my duty. She grinned. All right, altar boy. Then you better not get yourself killed. They set another meet for five days later. She spent a few days chatting up coloners, hanging around public parks where angry people shouted at each other about politics, and, at night, seeing whether she could sneak into the palace. Not with dead mice. She didn't trust them. With herself. 
Problem was, once you got through the outer walls, which had been converted from fortifications into the poshest shops and tea houses, you were then faced with an inner maze of private residences that were very obviously not supposed to be approached by anyone lesser than the fringe of the noble classes. Most of these were recent structures built from wood. By shadow-walking, she could probably find her way through their maze in time, but she'd only have a few minutes to get inside the palace, look around, and get back out again. Still, when you were digging out of prison, the only way for it was a few inches at a time. As she made her rounds, she spun herself yarns she could tell if somebody caught her snooping around the palace or anywhere else she shouldn't be. She avoided the boxing turtle. She also did her best to avoid the feeling she'd had long ago as a girl, alone in a hostile city, with no friends and nothing in her pocket. After four days of letting the ghost's pub cool down, she made her way back to the culinary district. The evening felt cool, but it was humid enough she was sweating into her shirt. A lone figure leaned against the outside of the boxing turtle, it was the guy she'd spoken with on her first try, the handsome young man with the too thin beard. He tipped back a flask. The motion tugged his sleeve tight, outlining a knife strapped to his upper arm. Changing plans on the fly, Roshaw stopped twelve feet away from him. Hello, I return. The man wiped his mouth with his sleeve. You sure that's a good idea? There was a mistake. I come to apologize. Some things it's better to get gone and stay gone. I know who your people are. I know that I can help them to be more. The man took another swig, then tucked away the flask with a smooth brushing motion. You don't have to convince me. You have to convince Eric. He jerked his head down the alley. Most of it was dark, but at the far end, a candle burned dimly from somewhere behind the building. Low laughter crept down the passage. Rosha bent her left wrist, reassured as it bumped into the hilt of the knife tucked up her sleeve. The pub's door squeaked open, disgorging a man and a woman. They glanced Rosha's way as she followed the man into the alley. It stank like piss, both stale and fresh. The young man glanced over his shoulder. Got a name? Zara, she said. He smiled. I'm Toman. They reached a T-intersection at the back of the alley. Toman turned to the right, bringing her before a group of three men who had a shared interest in hostile looks and stupid mustaches. This is Zora, Toman grinned at them, putting a hand in the small of her back to guide her forward. She's the one who was around the other night, yeah? One who nicked Eric's bracelet. The man with the pointiest mustache smirked. Oh, he's going to be happy with what you brought him. Toman thrust his fingers into Rosha's hair, entangled them, and pulled her head backward. She gasped in pain. He shoved his forearm across her collarbones, searching for her throat, but she was already blinking into the nether. 
She reappeared outside his grasp and pounded her fist into his left eye. The others called out in surprise. Rasha devoted a fraction of a second to the idea of weaving herself in and out of the nether, and her blade in and out of their throats. If not for the couple that had witnessed her entering the alley, she might have done it. Instead, she whirled and ran. She splashed through the alley. The three men close behind her, Toman staggering along behind them and clutching his eye. They yelled insults after her, but there was nothing about witchcraft or sorcery. Too dark for them to have properly seen what had happened. Brains had convinced them she'd just slipped loose. As for Toman, she'd hit his eye hard enough that he wouldn't be seeing much of anything for a while. She dashed from the alley, slipping on a clot of wet leaves. A short-handled throwing knife swooshed past her and clinked over the cobbles. Heart on fire, she picked herself up and ran on. If they'd been in Narashtovic, she could have lost them in any number of crooked alleys and secret doors that existed for situations exactly like this. But in Bressel, she could barely find her way back to her inn. Then again, she kept a hidden door on her at all times. All she had to do was swerve down a side street, pop into the shadows before they came around the corner, then wait for them to run past. She headed for the street on the south side of the square where she'd originally entered from. As she neared the corner, one of the men chasing her whistled two quick notes. Two men arose from a stoop on the corner and jogged toward her. Rasha swore and veered to her left, the men behind her gained ground just steps behind her. She ran pell-mell for the Eastern Street entrance. A pair of blue-coated guards wandered from it, breaking off their argument to glance at the chase. Rasha swore again. How much bad luck could she eat in one night? She scanned the plaza for another way out, ready to make a break for it, then laughed out loud. She was so used to running from the city watch that she'd almost forgotten what they were supposed to be for. Help me, she yelled, exceedingly glad that she was in a foreign city where no one she knew would see what she was doing. They attack! The guards drew their swords and jogged forward, the buckles jingling on their leather armor. Trying to bring tears to her eyes, Rorschach thought about dead puppies and vagabond children trudging through winter with blue feet. The pack of thieves scattered, jeering at the guardsmen. The younger guard pointed with his sword. I know your faces. The other, an older man with dark hair and a red beard, motioned Rorschach toward him. Are you hurt? I think I am fine, Rorschach said. I walk past the pub, and they come out and they chase me. Animals, he raised his voice at the fleeing men, and if I see you again, I'll bleed you like a cow. Thank you. Rasha hugged herself. I think they want to hurt me. It's over now, ma'am. Come on, then. Where do you live? She was about to name her inn but was stopped by the flushed, proud look on the guards' faces. They'd just saved the helpless young woman. At that moment, if she'd asked to ride them home like they were horses, 
they'd beseech her to wait while they found a saddle. She racked her brain for one of the cover stories she'd patched together while contemplating how to get into the palace. I have no home, she said. Not here. The man made an O of his mouth. Don't tell me you're sleeping on the streets. I don't even like to walk them. I come from the north. There I am of a noble family, but I fall into trouble. I need to speak to King Charles. The two watchmen exchanged a look. The younger man gave a slight shake of his head. The red-bearded man pursed his lips and reached for Rosho's arm. Milady, she pulled back. Please, sir, I cannot be touched. This is the way in my land. No harm meant, milady. Follow me, and we'll get this all sorted out. She fell in step beside them. The bearded man asked her a few questions about where she was from and what had happened to her. Rosha allowed him a few details, including a name of Lady Yera, then insisted she could only tell the remainder to a proper authority. The irritable younger guard was visibly relieved when they came to a three-story stone guardhouse. The red-bearded man brought her upstairs to a sergeant's office. We're going to get this sorted out, Lady Yera. You just wait right here. He gave a short bow and exited. Rosha bolted the door, then Shadow walked through the wall and followed the guard downstairs. Don't tell me you believe her the younger guard grumbled. Did you see her clothes? If she's a princess of some kind, then I'm the queen of the horse people. The older guard ran his hand down his beard. I don't know what the hell's going on. When you don't know what the hell's going on, you don't do something about it. You pass it off to somebody to take the blame. He buttoned his jacket and hustled out the front door. Frowning, Rosha returned to her room and spent a good hour thinking things through. She meant to stay awake and alert. If they came to arrest her, wanted to be able to do something to stop that. But her legs were worn out, and her mind was too. She nodded off in her chair. A knock on the door jolted her awake. Lady Yera, the bearded guard called through the door. Someone's come for you. Best come downstairs. The wan light of dawn crept through the shutters. Foggy-headed, Rosha moved to the door. Who has come? The guard didn't answer. Rosha unbolted the door, ready to launch herself into the shadows, but the hallway was empty. She descended to the ground floor. Two men, in gold-trimmed blue uniforms, were arguing with the watchman who'd taken her in. A third man bowed to Rorschach and showed her outside. There, a black carriage waited in the street, the horses snorting gouts of steam into the crisp morning air. The guard swung open the carriage door. A middle-aged woman leaned out and beckoned. This way, Lady Yera. The palace awaits. Chapter 18
Vito's sword poked against Dante's doublet. Four burly men piled into the room behind her, wearing the orange of House Osedo. You think I'm a liar, Dante said. A betrayer? Maybe so, but not against you. She snarled, tensing her elbow to ram the blade home. Dante shifted ever so slightly so the sword would miss his heart. We had a deal, she said, and you cast it aside like an empty bottle. Why shouldn't I do the same with your life? Blaze wandered forward, swords on his hips. If you have to ask that sort of thing, you're not really going to kill him. So why don't we skip past the part where you bluster about the thinness of the slices you're going to reduce us to and get to the part where you tell us what this is about? I should tell you of your own schemes? How should I know why your hearts are so black? We don't have any idea what's happening, Dante said. You could at least have the courtesy of telling us what crime you're accusing us of. Vita's teeth flashed in anger. More lies. You lie always. You sprout lies like a body sprouts maggots. We've spent the last three months traveling to cleaning up and departing from Narashtovic. We haven't spoken to the coloner since then. He's telling the truth, Blaze said. Whatever's happened, we're exactly as dumb as he looks. Vita's eyes scanned back and forth across Dante's face, as if reading the secrets of each line and tensed muscle. She grunted in annoyance, then spat on her sword. Dante had no idea what the gesture meant, and sheathed it. It was the turning of the year, Vita said. The day after Ember's Day, Speaker Itiego announced the new taxes. Those of wines for export were doubled. The city of Paloa understood at once. Itiego and the Cavanese were growing jealous of Paloan industry, perhaps even threatened. Paloa announced that it would not pay. When Cavana boasted that it wouldn't reduce the new taxes, Paloa renounced the confederation. Its neighbor, Julina, leaped from the ranks as well. Julina had never wanted to join in the first place. There was talk of Paloan ambassadors swaying Hunedo to their side and forming a confederation of their own. If this had happened, many believed it would lead to the collapse of the confederated cities of Alebolja, and Kavana would find itself alone against a powerful new enemy. Kavana had a simple play to stop that, Dante said. Shut Paloa out of the port. If it couldn't export its wines, its strength would collapse in no time. Vita shook her head, dark eyes somber. This could not be. For the same reason, Speaker Itiego denied your offer. The river of trade must flow. If Itiego had tried to dam the waters, he would have been hung in a cage and shown what happens when all pleasure stop flowing, especially food and drink. So Gavana has to keep trading with Paloa even if they're enemies? What sense does that make? The sense of there being many merchants who continue to wish to profit with Paloa, and who are wise enough to see that if the merchants of Paloa can be forced from the stream, the same could be done to them. But what about when they go to war? 
In that case, they're funding the enemy's troops. Vita gave him a scornful look. If a city declares a full war on another, then trade can be dammed up without consequence. But the risk and shame of losing trade is why so few cities will risk the full war. We are not so foolish as you think, Dante. Our system might confuse you, yet it keeps us at peace. She made a small shrug. Or close to it. Much as I love hearing you two debate local politics, Blaze said, weren't you going to tell us why you were going to stab Dante? All of this is the why. After Paloa and Julina renounced their membership in the Confederation, Cavana threatened them with full war. This made Paloa ring with so much laughter, it is said they heard it all the way in Colin. Their laughter ceased when the envoys from Colin arrived and told them that unless they surrendered, they would be destroyed. Don't tell me Paloa fell for that. She turned a cold eye on Dante. The coloner said that if they did not acquiesce, Dante Galland, the avatar of Aron himself, would slaughter Paloa as ruthlessly as he had twice done to the Malish in Colin. I have good news for Paloa, Blaze said. He's not much of a god. I hear his weakness is being hit by things that are sharp. It's too late. Soldiers from Colin and Cavana occupy Paloa now. For the coloner's aid in maintaining the Confederacy, Itiego has promised to close his port to the Malish. Vita lowered her gaze. I needed our deal. And your people, they threw it away like the guts of a fish. Dante ran his hand down his face. We aren't any happier about this than you are. We'll talk to the coloners. We'll find a way to make this right. You swear to this? I do. And the coloners are about to hear some swearing of an entirely different kind. Vita made a slight bow of her head and left, trailed by her guards. Dante closed the door. I'm going to wait a few minutes before we pay the coloners a visit. Otherwise... I might be tempted to introduce them to the window of the nearest tower. Pretty cunning move, they pulled, Blaze said. If you'd thought of it, you'd be slapping yourself on the back. Dante muttered something impolite. Ten minutes later, feeling no better about anything, he concluded the only way to be rid of his anger was to vent it at the cause of it. He and Blaze strode through the brisk seaside streets to House Itiego, stopping at the manor's gates. A wrought iron albatross looked down at them with a single blue sapphire eye. As Dante considered the merits of ripping the gates down, a figure emerged from the compound, thigh-high boots clapping on the cobblestones, collar flapping around his shoulders like boneless wings. High Priest Galand, Gareno called. Or is it Divine Lord Galand, Avatar of the Celeset? You must pardon my vulgar ignorance, sir, for I have no experience treating with deities. Shut up, Dante said. Where are the colonists? Why, they remain the welcome guests of Lord Diego. I am sure they would be overjoyed to share their luncheon with you.
I can't think of anything I'd like more. Garena smiled happily and opened the gates, leading them to the same vaulted hall where they'd first met with Itiego. The keeper sat alone at the main table. At a side table, several other blonde coloners stopped their conversation to stare at Dante and Blaze. The keeper regarded them with her washed-out blue eyes. As Dante approached, she braced her gnarled hands on her thighs, arms quivering. No need to stand, Dante said. I know how your knees bother you. I heard you are on your way. Within the stone walls of the sparse chamber, her voice threatened to boom like surf. Did you achieve what was needed in your home city? Do you actually care in the slightest? Why would you ask such a question? Because you don't seem to have cared about fulfilling our deal with Hasosedo. The old woman's wrinkled face didn't so much as flinch. You heard about our change in fortune. I heard you threatened an entire city with annihilation using me as the weapon. Opportunity presented itself. If we had waited until you returned to discuss the matter with you, that opportunity would have evaporated. There was no need to seize it at all. We had another way to close off the port. And there was another way to deal with Senator Alder of Kaleen, she said. Yet you chose the method that would guarantee your course forward. There was no guarantee Paloa wouldn't call your bluff. What then? What does it matter? We did as was needed to obtain everything we needed. Our work is finished. He jabbed a finger at her chest. What you've done has sacrificed my city's future relations with Paloa and damaged my reputation with everyone else. Worse yet, you used me. Again. She chuckled dryly. It is easy for you to criticize our decision. It wasn't your land that sat with its flank exposed. There was no guarantee your gambit here would succeed, or that it would have been honored by the other party. We knew exactly how to get it done. As for the other party, at this point, I trust them more than I do you. I did what was necessary to secure the safety of the people I am sworn to serve. I won't apologize for saving them. I know, Dante said, and I know you're happy to sacrifice us for them. You may have gained your security, but you've lost a friend. The keeper blinked. What will you do? Will you tell Paloa the truth? I haven't decided yet. If you do, you will undo everything we fought for. The lives of everyone Gladic killed in Colin will have been lost in vain. He clenched his teeth so hard, the points of his jaw ached. Hating her for her callousness toward her allies. Hating the fact that, yet again, she'd used him like a figurine on an Aladoon board. And hating that she was right. I won't threaten Colin's safety. He stood. And I won't see you again. I spend a lot of time thinking about where I'll end up.
blazed at her. I can't see the future any better than anyone else, but I hope I never become like you. Already on his way out of the chamber, Dante didn't see if Blaze's words had any impact on the old woman's heart, but they cracked something in his own. I spoke to the keeper, Dante said, keeping one eye on Vita's sheathed sword. There's no one doing what's been done. Colin's deal with Cavana will stand. Vita swore and paced about the room, boots punishing the wooden floor, her wedge-shaped cap pulled low over her eyes. Dante had requested to meet her somewhere more appropriate, such as the Osedo estate, or one of the city's more refined public houses, but she'd gone with his messenger straight back to the inn. She stopped abruptly, turning on him. Then I will also do what can't be undone. I will kill her. She made for the door. Blaze seemed to float between it and her. Stupid question. What will killing her solve? My anger. If you really want her dead, I'm sure time will take care of that soon enough. Old as she is, it might get to her before we've got our boots laced up. Yet there is satisfaction in doing work with one's own hands. Step aside. You don't have anything to be angry about, Dante said. We still need your help. She thumbed her cap up her brow. How so? Colin has won Cavana's friendship. What more does the Basin want from us? We're not working for the Basin any longer. Your house owns a number of sailing vessels, doesn't it? We need to book immediate passage. I thought this friend of yours owned a ship, the Dark Man. Captain Nairn left this area at the same time we did to look for someone in Tanara Tain. Six weeks ago, he went missing in the port of Aris Osis. We need to find him. Vita gave her head a sharp shake. This cannot be done. If he went missing in Tanara Tain, there will be nothing for outsiders to find. That's for us to worry about. Take us there, and I'll honor our original deal to find out where House Diego is getting its spices. An author of garbage is only tempting to the swine. Do you think I am a swine? If so, Aron's not going to like hearing about the atonement I need to do. What's wrong with our deal? It's proposed by you. And you are either a liar yourself, or too foolish to know when you consort with one. Either way, I will not trust my family's fortune to your care. You have nothing to lose, Dante said. Whether or not we find our friend, as long as you help us try, I'll find the Diego's source of spices. You do not understand. He who makes deals with known fools gets spat on by the gods. Weary of guarding the door, Blaze plopped down in a chair. Tanara Tain's only a few hundred miles from here, isn't it? Why don't we just grab some horses and ride there? We'll get there sooner than we'll finish this ridiculous argument. Dante raised an eyebrow at Vita. Last chance. Turn us down and we'll ride out within the hour. She batted at the air. Bah! You would never make it through the hell-painted hills. Hills? We've crossed mountains so tall that your head gets dizzy from being so close to the fixed stars. 
They were full of monsters, too, Blaze said. Beasts like a horse made out of armored bears, and also it was immune to magic. Vita glanced between them, eyes narrowed as she hunted for signs they were mocking her. I don't care who you are or what else you have done. No one crosses the hell-painted hills. Dante shrugged. We don't have a choice. We have to find our friend. To suggest this only proves you are the fools I fear you are. You can't do this. Sure we can. And when we get back, we'll tell you exactly how we did it. She bit her lip, her youthful face creasing with worry. If I could trust your intentions, I would take your deal in the flicker of a fly's wings. But I cannot, or the gods will see how I defy their law, and I will be cursed, along with the family I'm sworn to serve. Dante forced himself to maintain a neutral expression. It sounded like she could be convinced, but that it was going to require the kind of favor-doing and trust-building that would take days or even weeks to accomplish. It had already been so long since they'd heard Naren had first gone missing. The thought of spending even more time letting him dangle in the wind, or rot in prison, or writhe under a torturer's blade, made Dante's stomach twist on itself like a sponge. Do you know about the Chainbreaker's War? Blaze said. The corner of Vita's mouth twitched. Wars are like the fire that burns down the forest. An ugly thing, but opportunity for new things to grow, including commerce. Those of us who live by its flow know wars like a navigator knows the tides. Wonderful. Then you know why we fought the war. To free ourselves from the yoke of the Gascon Empire, and justly so. The torrent of trade it unleashed from Narestovic and Galador proves it was favored by the heavens. Yeah, that became part of it, Blaze said. But mostly it was because of a promise we made years earlier to a single Noran who'd helped us on our way, that we would free his people. If we kept a promise that absurd, why do you think we'd shrug off the one we're making to you? She straightened heels talking together, then swept her cap from her head and slapped it against her thigh. Damn me! We will go. Our voyage is not long. I can ready our ship by the morning. Our, Dante said. We? If we have struck a deal for you to find the Telus route, then you are my investment, and I always look after my investments. Dante thought the plan to be loaded up, crewed, and ready to sail in less than a day was an optimistic goal. But by the following morning, they assembled on the Finder of Secrets, a single-masted cog with a deck, an aftercastle, and oar slots. By ten that morning, they'd cast off, maneuvered from the Cavana Harbor, and struck south, keeping within sight of the rugged coast. Vita had a cabin, but she preferred to observe their progress from the vantage of the castle. Dante joined her there to ask her how long the voyage would last. She glanced at the sails, then at the blue-gray waves slopping against the hull, which seemed to be flowing to the northeast. Fair wind, a less fair current. I say it is four days. Is it that close? 
You don't even know the location of the place you travel to? That would be the deciding reason I hired someone to take me there. Vita laughed brightly. Traveling seemed to agree with her. Then again, perhaps it was the rekindling of her dreams of smashing her Sitiego's stranglehold on the talus trade. Whatever the cause, she'd spent the early morning stalking about the finder of secrets, yelling garrulous orders to the crew, and now that they were underway, she watched over her ship like a general about to send his troops into righteous battle, a gleam in her eye and a wind-painted flush to her tan cheeks. Come, she said, I have something to show you. Maybe it will make you feel less like you are sailing over the edge of the world. She led him down from the aftercastle and into her cabin. This was cramped and sparse, as they tended to be, though a window let in light and air. She moved to a wooden dresser, nailed down on one side of the cabin, and opened a drawer, shuffling through documents and maps. With a note of satisfaction, she withdrew one of the maps and spread it on the top of the dresser, which doubled as a table. Here, we see the world outside that window. She motioned to the glimpse of the cliffs beyond the cabin, then down to the vellum map. This is Erlebolge. Here is Paloa, south of Colin, to its great misfortune. Here is Cavana, on the coast, and the other cities of the Strip. She moved her finger southeast, across a swath of short, jagged bumps, just south of Alibolja. These are the hills you wish to die within, and on the other side, Tanara Tain. Here is Aris Osis. Rita tapped a tiny illustration of a city on the Tanarian coast. Three hundred miles from Cavana, an easy trip. Dante leaned further over the map. Tanara Tain took up a roughly triangular mass between the hills to its north and something called the Ashlands to the south. If the map was at all accurate, Tanarian territory stretched for roughly a hundred fifty minutes along the coast and extended inland all the way to the mountains that formed the southern extension of the impossibly vast Wodens. Its territory was covered in light scratches of ink that might have been trees or waves. Arisosis is the only city. Not at all. Vita indicated the large triangle of territory. All belongs to Tanara Tain. But there's nothing there. When you look at a map and you look out at the land it shows, are they one and the same? This map was not drawn by Tame or Silidus. It was drawn by one who could only record what they had been able to see. There is much to Tanara Tain that isn't Aris Osis. As to who and what this muchness is, the only ones who know are the Tanarians. The interior is closed to outsiders. Are they afraid of foreigners? A person with the correct business in Aris Osis may birth in Aris Osis, but that is as far as we may go. The Tenarians are much like cats. You know cats. Cats, Dante said. I think I've heard of them. Cats are friendly, pleasant to be around. Yet if you overstep yourself with them... She jumped toward him, hand outstretched, fingers bent like claws. 
They pounce you. What about the authorities? Will they help us locate Naren? If he stepped over a line, don't be surprised if it is the authorities who have disappeared him. She returned to the aftercastle to question the navigator about the weather. Dante watched the distant cliffs pass by. He'd always enjoyed traveling, and especially sailing. The experience of being out in the middle of the sea made it easier to grasp the true size of the world and your place within it. At that moment, however, it was hard to be on a ship without being reminded of the Sword of the South. During his acquaintance with the ship, it had already lost one captain. There was a chance it had already lost another, and that the ship itself had been lost as well. The day passed, unremarkably. The morning saw slack winds, but Vita promised they'd pick up as the sun climbed, a prediction that proved true. With the sun hanging high and the sails swelled, Blaze swore loudly from the port side of the cog. Dante jogged toward him, following his stare out to the horizon. At the sight of the hills, Dante's foot seemed to forget how to stay stuck to the ground. The pitch of the ship finished what was left of his balance. He landed on the deck, scraping his palms. Across the water, the hills glowed red and yellow, shaded with orange and white and blue, as if they were aflame for miles. But there was no smoke, no flicker of fire either. Rather than being rounded, the hills looked like they'd been pinched into peaks, like the dough of giant bakers, as craggy and sharp as the pocked black rock they'd seen in the plagued islands. Ah, Vita said, approaching. So you see why one cannot simply ride into Tanaratain? Let me guess, Blaze said. The peaceful, sheepy hills where nothing untoward has ever happened. Dante gripped the wooden railing. What caused this? Vita moved beside him, leaning her forearms over the rail. It is said that, long ago, these hills were wooded, bountiful with animals and fruit. It was here that the Yosean lived, the ancestors of the Tanarians. The Yosean were peaceful shepherds and scholars. For generations they roamed the hills, marking the arrival of each season with an offering of sheep to their gods. One year there was a famine, a sickness of the grass that bloated the sheep until they fell dead and made the fruit fall from the trees before it was ripe. Though each month the famine worsened, still the Yosean made their spring offering, and then again in summer. By autumn, they walked like skeletons dressed in skin. Even so, they made their offering. Yet by winter, they were so dizzy from hunger that they feared making the sacrifice would kill them. They asked the priests if they could wait until spring. The priest said the gods agreed, so the Yosean made no offering. A fortnight later, the skies filled with strange light clouds. The Yosean thought it was a storm sent to cleanse the grass, but they soon saw they were wrong. The strange clouds were a plague of enormous locusts, a million and a million of them. As pale as grubs and as large as dogs, they ate not the crops, but instead 
the flesh of every living thing they could find, sheep, geese, and human alike. Where they went, they left bones behind. The Yosean tried to flee, but the locusts followed, wolves with wings. Seeing that they would be hunted until they fell from exhaustion and would then be too weak to fight, back the Yosean sent their greatest sorcerers, back to do battle with the plague beasts. Knowing that to fail would mean the death of all their people, the sorcerers held nothing back, smashing the locusts with pillars of fire, one strike after another, laughing as they too were burned by the powers they channeled against the pale horrors. For each locust they killed, another seemed to take its place. After forty days of fighting, with our own losses mounting, they knew there was only one way to stop the plague. And so they scorched the hills, melted and blasted their homeland, until poison belched from the rifts and killed the fruit trees and the animals that had fed the Yosean for so long. Still the sorcerers brought down their power, until the earth buckled and moved like the ocean, and the air shimmered with fire, and the sorcerers burned to dust that blew out to the sea. But the poison the sorcerers had called from the earth killed the locusts, too. Their bodies fell from the sky like the rains of nightmares. They were the last living things to touch these hills. The surviving Yosean descended to the swamps to the east, where they mingled with the people there and became the Tanarians. They are the ones who call the hills hell-painted. No matter how many years pass, the hills remain as poisonous as the first day they were fouled. All who enter, dead. Dead like a fish, taken from the water and tossed on dry sand. Vita had a troubled expression on her face, as if she were considering ordering the helmsman to take them further out to sea, in case any unseen fumes were rolling down from the hills. Dante frowned. The hills looked otherworldly, yet he wondered about their origin, and if they were as hostile as they looked at a distance. Even the great sorcerers of the Russian, forefathers of Narashtavik, hadn't been able to cause devastation like that. Or they would have, in order to protect themselves from the marauding Elson which wasn't to say the land wasn't toxic death for all who stepped within it. Rather, he suspected the story of how it came to be was no more than a story. Then again, weren't the hills worth studying either way? If the story was true, such an ability would make for a far more effective barrier against your foes than the one he directed in Colin. Sure, apparently the process would require the sacrifice of a few monks, but if it was the choice between that and being invaded and destroyed utterly, he was sure said monks would be dedicated enough to make the right decision. Past the hills, the air started to warm, arriving at the cool side of neutral. 
Dante killed the remainder of the voyage asking Vita about the history of Alibolgia and House Osedo. She was well-versed in both, which, as it turned out, was quite impressive, considering that the alliances between the Strip's cities shifted faster than island weather, and that there seemed to have been a new war, uprising, trade dispute, or replacement of the ruling dynasty every two to four years. It made his own turbulent history in Narashtivik feel a little less absurd, and made him jealous that, aside from the occasional scour of Aronites or war on Colin, Malin had enjoyed centuries of a peaceful, almost boring tranquility. In return, Vita asked him a great deal of questions regarding the Chainbreaker's war and his talent with the Nether. He wasn't sure if her interest was because she enjoyed his company or if she was thinking about how to bolster her house with sorcerers of her own. The painted cliffs and hills ended abruptly, replaced by the flattest land Dante had ever seen. Forests sprawled to the horizon, disappearing in the haze. Through gaps in the thickets, wintry sunlight glinted dully from slack expanses of water. Vita announced they'd arrive in Aris Osis within three hours. It had been four days since they'd made way from Kavana. Blaze strolled out beside him on the deck. Given any thought to our cover story? We obviously can't be ourselves, the mighty rulers of Narashtavik, Dante said. If Naren has got in trouble with someone, be it local authorities or an outlaw outfit like Roshaw's, they'll be tempted to kill us or hold us hostage. We'll pose as ambassadors. Then they'll be afraid that if they hurt us, they'll call down the wrath of Narashtavik. If we put Narashtavik on their brain, somebody might recognize us for who we really are. We ought to say we're Naren's creditors, and we're looking to find out what happened to our money. If he's in trouble, and they think we're just as mad at him as they are, they'll be freer with the truth. He glanced at a fish as it leapt from the waves, followed by a much longer and vicious-looking fish. Not to mention less prone to think we're there to do something stupid, like breaking him out of prison. That's a genuinely cunning idea. How did you come up with it? Don't forget, I spent years trying to bankrupt the Gascon Empire. Lord Pendulous became quite the expert on business and investment. As a matter of fact, if we ever retire from gallivanting around saving some people while killing some other people, I'd give some thought to becoming Narashtavik's Lord of Finance. You, Lord of Finance. You spend more money than a crew of sailors making port. Who better to decide how we use the city's money than the person with the most experience spending it? The finder of secrets veered slowly toward the coast. The forest pressed to the edge of the water, the trees propped up on dense, finger-like roots. At once, the land pulled inward, revealing a placid bay. Across the water, towers thrust into the sky, not just the occasional spires of churches or keeps, but scores of them, as thin as reeds, the tallest more than two hundred feet in height. What's that about? Blaze said. Don't like to get their feet wet. 
In Tanara Tain, there is always more water than land, Peter said. They must make use of every piece of ground they have. She ordered her crew to strike the sails and row the cog into the bay. A rocky jetty extended from both sides, protecting the interior. A tower rose from the end of each jetty. Vita guided them to appear at the base of the tower on the right. Three men waited at the end of the pier. Two of them armed with longbows and a rack of arrows that resembled thin harpoons. The third man was unarmed. All three wore pine-green tunics trimmed with white and plain jerseys beneath them. The buttons of their tunics were made of bone, and the collars and sleeves of their jerseys were laced with finely braided strings of obvious quality. All three had a faint green tinge to their pale faces that might have been a trick of the light. They had long faces, eyes that were almost colorlessly gray, and short but pointed chins. The soldiers' faces and hands were tanned from being out on the water, but glimpses of their sleeved arms and collared necks showed skin that was paler than Alebolgian's colonners or the Manish. The unarmed man cast them a pair of ropes, which the cog sailors tied to the ship's cleats. The man grinned in a way that wasn't particularly happy, but nor was it threatening. Of the North, his malice was lightly accented. Alebolgia, Vita said, injecting serious pride into the word. I have been here before. I am Vita of Oseda, and this is my ship, the Finder of Secrets. From his light coat, the man produced something that looked like a cross between an abacus and a small harp. With deft fingers, he tied tiny knots into a few of the strings. The finder of secrets, he mused. Does naming it that make it better at its duty? Perhaps it does. It can't hurt to try, can it? What if its name makes you falsely confident in its abilities? If you think it's that great at finding the secrets you're after, won't you be more willing to overlook any mistakes you make along the way? Justifying to yourself that it's destined to get there anyway? If I am slack-witted, perhaps it could. She tugged down the end of her triangular cap. But it can also serve as a constant reminder of my duty, honing my vigilance and always bringing me closer to my goals. Hmm. If a proud name brings you closer to your goals, shouldn't you call it the ship? of greatness that will bear its captain to massive riches and eternal glory? Vita's mouth fell open in horror. In my land, we depend on ships like a nomad depends on his horse. If you don't give your mount a respectful name, how can you ever expect it to serve you well? The official nodded deeply. I've heard other people say that they talk to their ship, or their bow, or to their raft, and I think if it talks to you, then it must be a person, and if it's a person, then shouldn't you let it go, or at least pay taxes for owning slaves?
Vita tilted her head a few degrees to the right, cupping her hand to her ear. If so, my ship tells me that it is happy to remain mine, and that it does so of its own free will, and also that it wishes to make port. The official narrowed his eyes, as if ready to say more, then glanced down at his abacus harp. Of course. Of what part are you? I belong to the legs. What do you carry to Aris Osis? Spice and iron. Eyebrows raised, the official added new knots to his record-keeping instrument. Then you will be very popular. May I see it? She gestured to the deck. Naturally. He came aboard, accompanied by one of the soldiers. Vita showed him to the hold. Witnessing the ingots of iron there, he and the soldier returned up the stairs and crossed back to the pier. There the official handed Vita a yellowed bone the size of a knife handle. It was inscribed with a few glyphs Dante had never seen before. You are permitted entry for one week, the official said. You are not permitted to travel inland from Aris Osis. Violating this dictate will result in your immediate imprisonment. If you need more time in the city, speak to the Bureau of Interlopers. When you are ready to depart from the city, please notify the same Bureau. Naturally. She motioned to her sailors, who untied the pier's ropes from the ship's cleats. And if you'd like to tell me more about your talks with your boat, the official said, then I will be right here. Vita smiled in a way that promised she would do no such thing. The oarsman pushed away from the pier and stroked toward the city's many docks, stirring brackish water and the scent of waste and rotten things. Greasy purple seaweed floated just below the surface. That, Blaze said, was one of the weirdest customs interviews I've ever heard. Vita grunted. Most of his questions had nothing to do with his duty. The Tenerians, they talk and talk and talk. At least when we Alebolgians get long in the tongue, it's due to wine. The Tenerians, they argue as if it were a sport. A few other ocean-going boats were docked at the piers, yet the vast majority of the ships were rafts, barges, and double-hulled canoes, with or without sails. Dante homed in on everything with a tall mast, checking for the Sword of the South, but didn't see the sleek vessel anywhere. The air smelled of raw fish and beached seaweed. Porters and stevedores unloaded cargo and lugged it into the city of Towers. Most were human, but a few were kneeling, small and gangly, their faces round and amphibian. The finder of secrets eased into an empty pier and tied up. Debarking, Vita showed the etched bone to another pair of green-clad watchmen, who gave the northerners a lingering stare before gesturing them down the pier. Vita strode forward, weaving through the schools of dock workers with a shark-like momentum. She drew a lot of looks. This in itself wasn't remarkable. She was one of the few women on the docks, and was certainly the prettiest. 
but Dante, Blaze, and Vita's guards and attendants were drawing nearly as much attention. Their gazes weren't overtly hostile, but they didn't appear particularly friendly either. Vita reached dry land and came to a stop in the shadow of a high warehouse. Dante took another gander at the docked ships, hoping against hope they'd find the Sword of the South, and Neron aboard it, with a sheepish story about how he'd dropped his loon overboard. Instead, Dante saw nothing. He was abruptly aware that he was standing in an alien city, in search of a man who they hadn't heard from in weeks. A man who had come here with the express purpose of hunting down Gladic, quite possibly the most dangerous sorcerer Dante had ever encountered, and who owned a ship that could have sailed hundreds of miles away in the interim. The idea that they'd be able to find Naren suddenly felt horrifically naive. He was buffered by the squalling urge to climb back aboard the Finder of Secrets, sail to Kavana, and ride straight back to Narashtivik, never to see the Colin Basin, Alebolgia, or this place again. What's the plan, then? Blaze said. Wait for Naren to fall out of the sky? Or stand here until someone takes a look at us gawking like idiots and decides that helping us is a good use of their time? Dante grinned doubts dissolving like sugar in Galadie's tea. Let's get to work. You coming, Vita? She settled her cap over her dark hair. I wish you luck, but I have business of my own. She hiked off into the streets, which were paved with black mud bricks. In the strange city, Dante barely knew which direction was north, let alone where anything was, but he had the names of three people Naren had been in contact with, Otto Lomota, Undan Whelan, and Iko Danasan. Since they were merchants, there would be nothing strange about a well-dressed foreigner asking where to find them. Dante was afraid they'd have to hire an interpreter, but as it turned out, most of the locals spoke Malish, and those younger than thirty bore only the faintest hints of an accent, as if they'd grown up speaking it. According to the people they questioned, Lomota was off in the capital, but Whelan and Donasson were right there on the wharfs. Dante tipped both people who'd given him directions to the merchant's offices. Both times, the young men looked down at the silver coin in their palms with an expression of mingled excitement and anxiety, then hurriedly pocketed the money as if it were contraband the town watch would take away from them. Eco Danasson's warehouse was the closer of the two. Dante and Blaze headed down the street, soon coming to an arched brick bridge over a sluggish sprawl of brownish water. The bridge offered a vantage of several other waterways and bridges, revealing that the city was a mass of small islands. The shores were dotted with rafts, many of them sporting a slant-roofed shack. At Danasson's warehouse, Stevedores lugged casks and crates through the tall double doors. Watching the men and women sweat with labor, Dante realized he hadn't yet seen a single horse, mule, or ox. No dung in the streets, either. Not of animal origin, anyway. Blaze found someone who looked cleaner than the rest, and inquired about Mr. Donasson. 
After a brief delay, they were brought to the back of the warehouse and onto a roofed wooden deck extending over the water. If it had been a warm day, the open walls and water flowing underneath would have kept it pleasantly cool. A man rose from a brightly colored rug in the center of the deck. While most of the Tenarians wore a sleeveless sort of tunic that was cinched at the waist, covering their torsos before stopping halfway down the thigh, Danarsen was dressed in a pale orange robe that hung to his shins. A pattern of blue dots was tattooed on his forehead. He gave them each a glance. Malice? That's right, Blaze said. My name, do you think it's wise for a land to accept foreigners into it? Foreigners into? I'm not sure I take your meaning. It's an exceedingly simple question. Is a land made better by accepting outsiders into it, or worse? Well, Blaze's cheery air deflated visibly. Hardly a moment had passed before he lifted his chin and brightened his voice. You'd have to think it's for the better, wouldn't you? After all, foreigners often bring goods and news that aren't available in your own land. That doesn't make their presence necessary. If we wanted those goods and news, we could travel to their land to acquire whatever we lacked. Furthermore, when it comes to goods, if they're not vital, then they're by definition not necessary. And if they are vital and we allow ourselves to depend on outsiders for them, that leaves us vulnerable to the whims of people who care nothing for us. Wouldn't it be much better to learn to create these goods for ourselves? Difficult to argue with that one, isn't it? But if you're right, I can only hope the king doesn't hear about it until after we two foreigners have done our business here. Danarsen tightened his mouth, as if disappointed or even insulted. What? Is your business. Blaze smiled and bowed his head. My name is Pendulous, and this is my associate, Orson Smallhorn. Are you acquainted with a sea captain by name of Naran? Danason regarded them with sleepy eyes. Why? It's a simple question, sir. Mine's simpler. We represent his creditors. Captain Naren, you see, had only recently taken command of his ship, following a period of... difficulties. To get his vessel back on its feet, so to speak, an infusion of capital was required. Unfortunately, while he was in the process of discharging his debts here in Arisosis, we lost contact with him. Lost contact. Danason withdrew a pouch from a thong around his neck withdrew a pinch of a reddish paste and tucked it between his molars. Sounds like you blew good money on a shit captain. Dante cocked an eyebrow. If so, that would imply we're idiots, wouldn't it? Most likely, yes. But maybe you got lucky and only invested in a bad choice because you were working on bad information. Either way, if he's run into trouble... Shouldn't you be happy to hear he's gotten what he deserves? You seem awfully happy to hear that Captain Aaron might be in danger. Dante grabbed the collar of the man's robe and yanked him close. 
Here is a piece of imagination you should treat as extremely trustworthy. If you don't tell me what's happened to him, I'll make sure that no one ever knows what I've done to you. Danarsen took on a quizzical look, then sputtered with laughter. Forgive me, good sirs. I forget that you're new to these swamps and I've spent far too much time here. The air here makes you drunk. Blaze tilted back his head. We'll make a fortune. It isn't the air of the swamp, sir. It's the air of the people. Are you not familiar with Dana Kide? Afraid not. Is she your queen? Dana Kide isn't a person. It's a concept. The Tonarians consider it distasteful to educate barbarians about their ways, but I'm also from a foreign land and will take pity on you. Let's say that we had met in my land, or yours. There, a polite greeting from me might be along the lines of, Goodness, this rain sure is miserable. You being a polite chap would agree out of hand. Sure is, my friend. Blaze glanced at a gaggle of Tenarians arguing on a nearby island. That wouldn't be polite here. Tenarin shook his head, his thick chin threatening to wobble. Hell, it'd be an insult. Here, a friendly reply to a complaint of rain would be, Yes, but it's good for the crops, isn't it? Or, isn't it better to suffer a little rain if it keeps the mosquitoes away? And that is the idea of Danakide. Uh, Blaze ran his hand through his hair. Why? Oh, religious thing. Means something like heaven's voice. The people here believe the truth is valuable because it's so hard to find. We can all see if it's raining, but if I claim that's a bad thing, there's no reason to take my word for it. Someone saying a thing certainly doesn't make it true. Could be they're lying or it could be they're a fucking idiot. Dante grunted. I think that concept extends far beyond Tenaritain. Difference is, here, they think it's your spiritual duty to argue with anyone who makes a claim of judgment. Doing that is the only way we can reach the truths hidden away by the gods. See, then, you might be spitting away at a fellow, but if the two of you are bringing yourselves closer to the truth— what nicer thing could you do for a person? This sounds like it has the potential to be extremely confusing. What if the two of you just hate each other? Denaran made a dismissive gesture. Then agree with every word he says. We'll make him look like a total prick. And take care not to insult him either. Some people take Danakide even further, believing a divine voice may speak through us at any moment, so it is our duty to speak every thought as we have it, and without fear. Blaze laughed. They want you to speak whatever insults and cruelties flit between your ears? Did Arisosis dredge all these canals to make it easier to get rid of all the murdered bodies? The merchant chuckled rubbing his hands together. Maybe they're so used to getting gored, they no longer feel it. Whatever the cause, they have the skin of elephants. If you're going to do business with them, you'll have to grow the same. At this, he gave Dante an accusatory stare. I'm sorry for putting a hand on you, Dante said. 
We're highly concerned about the fate of our business associate. Anything you can tell us about your dealings together could make all the difference. Though they were alone on the platform, he leaned closer, dropping his voice. It could even save his life. You're sure he wants to be found? Why wouldn't he? You said you're his creditors. Say he takes a long look at his ledgers and decides he can't pay off what he's owed. He embarks on a trip to Tanaratain. Oh, there's great money to be found there, he tells you. And then when he lands in Arisosis, he just... Danassin pinched his fingers together, then spread them wide, blowing on them. Disappears, along with his debt. Ah, Blaze said, still putting on the lackadaisical airs of a blue-blooded man of leisure. If you know Mr. Naren, then you know he'd never welch on a debt, no matter how much he owed us. He's so stupid, he'd rather keep his honor intact than the fingers and toes his creditors would take from him. Danasen looked ready to argue, then seemed to decide it wasn't the time. Near two months back, Neren came to port with a cargo that only a drooling idiot wouldn't want to buy. A Lebolgian wine, and even better, casks of iron nails. Nails, like the little jabby bits, the ones you whack into things with the poundy stuff. There aren't many iron mines out here in the swamps. To bind things together, Tanaratain makes the finest ropes, twines, and threads you'll ever need— but sometimes what you really need is a good nail. Were you two able to reach a deal? Ha! Half the rats on the wharf were sniffing around his cargo hold. I made my offer, and when it wasn't good enough, I made another. I was still waiting on his decision when he went missing. Missing, Dante said. Where? If I knew that, he wouldn't be missing, would he? Yeah, you dolt. Blaze said. He smiled. Sorry, just trying to do as the locals would. Dante muttered something impolite. Is it possible he accepted a deal with another merchant and left port as soon as it was concluded? It's not impossible. Danassen glanced from the deck toward the middle of the waterway, where two rafts had bumped into each other. Their crews were currently engaged in a feverish skirmish of words that was threatening to explode into all-out war. This drew a few glances from people on the shores of the other islands, but nobody seemed too concerned. I wouldn't call us fast friends, but Naren and I have had acquaintance with each other since he was a deckhand. I don't know that he can fill Captain Twill's boots, but you're right that he's a man of honour. If he'd made another deal, he would have told me before striking out. Unless someone else was hot on his heels, Blaze said. Any idea what happened to the Sword of the South? Could it have been seized by the authorities, or by its own crew who shamefully mutinied, leaving their captain behind? Either possibility is a constant risk for any trading vessel, and if either one had happened— there will be a record of it at the Bureau of Interlopers. Dante folded his arms. Interlopers? Does the state really keep track of every foreigner in the city? Indeed it does, and it seems as though you should be grateful for it. 
Grateful has rarely described my encounters with bureaucracy. Will we need an interpreter? Or does everyone here speak Malos? Most speak two or three languages, Danason said, but only the most backwards, raft-humping swamp leeches don't speak Malos. Children are taught by dint of law. Danason provided them directions to the bureau, housed in a tower a half-mile inland. Dante and Blaze trekked across a series of bridges and islands, forced to backtrack twice when a bridge was lacking in the direction they needed to go. Trees sprouted wherever they could, forming dense green rings around the edges of each island. Towers dropped cold shadows across the city. Some were black brick, but the taller ones were hewn from big blocks of a curiously mottled orange and green stone. When Dante got a closer look, he saw the green spots were patches of mold. This grew on the trunks of trees, too, making everything look as if it had been here for ages. After crossing a few islands and stealing plenty of glances at the locals, he leaned close to Blaze. Am I crazy, or do they not allow their women out on the streets? Blaze gave him a sidelong glance. If you can't pull your nose out of your books long enough to experience the real world, at least get a few with better illustrations. There are women everywhere. As they passed a group of people clustered around a vegetable stall, Dante heard one of the hagglers speak in a clear feminine voice. Like that, the scales fell from his eyes. It wasn't that there were no women on the streets— it was that they shared the immediate appearance of the men. They were dressed in the same sleeveless garments. The men were beardless. Men and women alike wore their hair clipped short, or shaved on the sides and longer on the top. Combined with their unfamiliar faces, his mind hadn't noticed the difference. They were a slim people, but now that he knew what to look for, the subtler differences in musculature and hips stood out to him. Their garments and sandals were decorated individually, too. Feathers, buttons, intricate stitching with colored thread, the occasional flash of a small piece of metal. Likely there was meaning in the items on display that he was utterly blind to. An orange tower loomed on the next island. Most of the dollops of land sported two to four towers, but this one stood alone and was squatter and more military in appearance, with a thin watchtower rising from its roof. The bureau was just as Danason had described. They crossed a final bridge and approached the tower's front steps. Outside, a man stood on a wooden box, its planks held together with artful loops of twine. A crowd surrounded him as he gestured and barked. The last time we so much as saw Drakebane Yotto. The man on the box was red-faced with anger, or from the contents of the wineskin in his left hand. If he cares so much for us, why hide in the capital? Or worse yet, the deep swamps. I say that Drakebane forsakes us, that he must be replaced by a Bane who loves all the land equally. I say... I say you're as ugly as hot vomit, a woman called to him from the crowd. You don't smell much better either. 
The man swung his sharp chin to face her, unbalancing himself. He windmilled his arms to stay on the box. The truth is ugly, isn't it? And the truth is that Drake Bane doesn't give a fish's testicles for the people of Arisosis. He should be replaced by someone who loves every city, float and raft, who loves every inch of this land. How do you have time to stand about criticizing the Drake Bane when you're still searching for someone to love both inches of you? The crowd erupted into laughter. The man on the box went so red, Dante expected him to start sweating blood. But then he laughed loudest of all, bending at the waist and clutching his stomach. The Drake Bane needs to be cast down, a second man said. He was young, but his black hair was already beginning to withdraw from his temples. But not because it's been too long since he was in Arisosis. Instead, because of his lies. He tells the bondsmen and the rafters they can own land. But how many have you ever seen free themselves from the Lord's fields? He tells us we can serve the body as whatever part we choose— but how can we learn new trades when the masters keep choosing students from the same families year after year? The man turned in a circle, arms raised high. What freedoms do we really have? The freedom to yammer and blather and turn on each other? All that does is divide us while the Drake Bane laughs in his throne. He must be brought to the noose for his crimes— and replaced by one who will finally unravel the ropes of injustice. A few in the crowd raised their fists and made noises of agreement, but others looked silently angry. Other people's politics, Blay said. Is there anything more boring? Dante pulled himself away from the scene and walked up the steps. A pair of green-clad guards stood watch in the front of the doors, watching the argument below with tolerant amusement. Dante didn't know what was funny about hearing citizens call for the death of their ruler. In Narashtivik, you could be jailed for such a thing, and that was widely considered lenient. In Malin, you were likely to be tortured until you recanted your words and turned over any friends, family, or acquaintances who might harbor similar beliefs. Granted, Malin took things too far. It was important to give your people space to decide for themselves what they would worship, think, and say. That gave them the opportunity to come up with new ideas, and to test them against each other like knights on a tourney ground. Dante believed a large part of Narashtivik's renaissance was due to the fact he'd allowed the citizens much more latitude than most rulers did. Even so, there had to be limits to such things. What good did it do for your land if you allowed your people to call for it to be destroyed? Didn't that just foment anger and unrest for no reason? What if dangerous ideas were, in a sense, like the traces? When you kept them confined to your own head, they were merely an inert unit of no harm to anyone. Yet when you pooled your dark idea with people who shared it, feeding it and growing it, if it grew large enough, it would create a demon. As Dante neared the tower doors, one of the guards moved to stop him. He stated his business as briefly as he could, 
Never a good idea to overexplain. It made you sound desperate, and the wider you stretched your story, the more chances that holes would appear. The guard told them to wait, then went inside. Below, nobody was listening to the drunk man on the box anymore arguing instead with the younger man who'd called for the so-called Drake Bain's death. In contrast to the loud but ultimately convivial debate the drunk man had been having, this new discussion soon grew so heated that the second guard was obliged to jog down the steps and intervene. The young man was angry enough at the interruption that he appeared in danger of assaulting the guard, but before Dante could see the outcome, the other soldier returned from inside, to let them know that the minister of guests had agreed to see them. He and Blaze were brought into a high-ceilinged foyer and led up three flights of stairs to a round hall thirty feet across. Light sliced through the open windows, bringing with it the not unpleasant scent of mingled waters. A slender man awaited them in the center of the room, smiling pleasantly. The official's garment was tailored to his trim body, and as he shook their hands, its expensive fabric rippled like the surface of a wind-blown lake. Metal baubles adorned its hems, but they were tastefully few in number. It was clear that anyone in the city would find him impeccably dressed. Yet to Dante's eyes, accustomed to breeches and trousers, the sight of the official's bare thighs made him appear childish. Welcome to Arisosis, the man said in perfect manage. My name is Yatta John. By your appearance, you are not from here. Do you think you should have the same rights for petitioning this government as the citizens of Tain? Dante shrugged. Who says we expect the same rights they have? A foolish assumption on my part. Do you believe that you should have any right to petition a government that you're not beholden to? Do you ask this question to every foreigner who comes to you? Yata's eyes twinkled. I do. It is useful to remind them of their standing, and me of mine. However... While your question is insightful, it's also irrelevant. Now, would you be so kind as to answer mine? As long as I'm here, am I beholden to your laws? Naturally. If you were exempt from our laws, wouldn't that grant you more rights than our own citizens? I didn't want to make any assumptions. I bet I'm held to the laws I don't even know about. Right? Yata looked him up and down. There might be some judgment exercised depending on the nature of your offence. But, yes, the strangeness of your own customs is no defence against violating our own. If I'm beholden to the punishment of your laws, including the ones I don't even know about, I should also have access to the protection of your laws, including the ability to petition you like I'm doing now, and ensure that I am acting within the law. The official raised his eyes to the ceiling, smiling up at it. You have been favoured with a most convincing argument. How can I be of service? Blaze introduced them as Pendulous and Orson, then jerked a thumb at the windows, 
Are you aware you have a pack of seditionists outside? They seem unusually fond of regicide. Yata laughed lightly. Would that be sober, Roji? I thought I heard him slurring. The fellow who seems to have lost his hand in a war and replaced it with a wineskin? It started with him, but he was soon replaced by an earnest young sort, who seemed very concerned that young people aren't been granted free land and lofty guildships. Ah, a representative of the righteous monsoon. They insist with all their soul that there is a great hand crushing them down. Yet when you ask them to show you the hand, they point at empty air, and insist that if you can't see it, then you must be a part of it. Are they any real danger, or do they just like hearing themselves make big threats to big people? I think they understand nothing of why our country is as it is, but have decided that the only explanation for its flaws is that it is run by evil men. When, in reality, you're probably just stupid. Yata blinked. You present me with a conundrum. Are you an outlander who thinks his insults are disrespectful, or are they a sign of respect to our ways? Blaze smiled. Might as well get away with it when I can. It's one thing to let your people grumble about taxes, Dante said, but it's beyond the pale to let them advocate for treason. What good does that do? Yata laced his fingers together. We believe that the gods might speak through one of us at any moment. If there's truth in the words, they'll rise up from even the darkest waters. And if they're rotten, they'll sink into the silt. He lifted an eyebrow. Does the loudness of our streets frighten you? If that's what brings you to my office, I can assure you it is all thunder and no lightning. We're here to find an associate of ours, who appears to have gone missing, a fellow foreigner named Neron. Do you know of him? Of course. It's my duty to know of every guest in our city. We were intending to meet him here. Do you know where he went? Why, he was arrested. Arrested? Dante blurted. For what? Yata lifted his eyes in thought. Crimes against the state? Yes, that was it. Crimes against the state. We need to speak to his jailers. Immediately. The official got a good laugh from this, then grew thoughtful. Sometimes ignorance is sad. Others, it's funny. Why is that? If you can't take this seriously, the only thing that's going to be sad is your family, regarding your gruesome demise. Your threats are unlikely to elevate us to any special truths, sir, Yata said plainly. Captain Aaron was taken to the capital. Foreigners such as yourself can't leave Arisosis. Foreigners can't speak to those outside Arisosis. You have no recourse. The sooner you accept this, the happier you will be. Chapter 19 The civil servant's words hung in the air like the stink of an uncovered pot of weak old stew. I don't understand. 
Dante's head was buzzing. He's being held in the capital, but we can't go there. Why not? Because it isn't allowed, Yatta said. I've gathered that much. What I'm having trouble with is the idea that any trouble could be caused by two men of commerce who are simply trying to find out what happened to one of their debtors. As I informed you, he was arrested. As for why you can't leave Aris Osis, we have decided that we have no need for outsiders in the interior of our country. Your people can call for the death of your ruler, but we can't travel to inquire peacefully about one of our partners. Yata nodded, earnest as a priest at his sermon. Yes, because our people are our people, and you are a dirty foreigner. Dante could feel his pulse hammering in his face. They were still standing across from each other. The Tenarians didn't seem to think much of chairs. And dressed in his tunic without any hose or leggings, Yata's pale thighs made Dante feel as if they were holding an official conversation with a man in his underwear. The absurdity of it versus the seriousness of their conversation made him want to start melting the walls. We're all reasonable people here. Blaze folded his hands behind his back and paced leisurely around the room. Or at any rate, you and I are, Yata. My friend Orson's sense of justice is so sensitive, he's been known to pick fights with inanimate objects. Now, you said we can't go to the capital or speak to people outside this city. But what if we hired an intermediary to take a message to the capital for us? That can't be done, Yata said without hesitation. The law forbids it. What if... In addition to sending a messenger, we also made a donation to your office, one that would surely outweigh any troubles caused by a temporary and one-time breach of convention. You're trying to bribe me? I wouldn't dream of it. This would merely be a way to help you cover the costs of running your institution. You could even use it to hire more guards or... Keep closer watch on those sleazy foreigners? Why, such a deal would make your country safer. I stand corrected. You're trying to bribe me and proposing that we lie to the world that it is in fact a bribe. Sir, you have the moral character of a rutting cat. You show the very reason why foreigners are forbidden from the interior. It was... Just a suggestion. This can't be the first time something like this has happened, Dante said. We must have some recourse. Yes, Yata agreed. You can wait. Until? Either he is released, or you stop caring about him. Dante bit back a curse until he realized that, according to local tradition, he was being unholy. You stupid... Pantless son of a bitch. It's vital that we speak to an authority and clear up what's surely been a misunderstanding. Otherwise, there will be grave repercussions for future trade between Melon and Tanaratane. No one here has the authority to countermand the law, Yata said mildly. 
the capital of Darabod answers only to itself. Naren had a ship, Blaze said. The Sword of the South. Do you know what became of it? It was informed that it should leave. It complied. Where was it headed? That wasn't any of our business. We're not here to cause trouble. Blaze planted himself in front of Yatta. Not for you, not for Naren, and certainly not for ourselves. If there's anything more you can tell us, please contact us at the piers. We're with a vessel called the Finder of Secrets. He all but dragged Dante out of the room. Yatta watched them go. Once they were outside, Blaze struck southwest in the general direction of the docks. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Blaze said. Good news? Which part? That Naren's locked in a cell in the capital, that we don't know why, or that we can't talk to him or anyone about it? At least we know he's alive. Amazingly, this calmed Dante down. He crossed a bridge, gazing into the waters beneath them. And we know what city he's in. I know that sound. That's the sound of someone who wants to get arrested. I doubt Naren was dumb enough to do anything genuinely illegal. I'm thinking he might have accomplished what he came here to do. Blaze tipped back his head. You think he found Gladick? Whether or not Gladick's here, Naren's ship and crew were driven off. We're the only ones he has left. We have to free him. No arguments here, but let's be extra careful not to cause any more international incidents, shall we? Or if we have to cause them, can we at least blame them on the malice? Dante headed for the docks. In another port, it might have taken hours to locate the finder of secrets, but among the Tenarian sailing canoes and boxy, longer-range vessels, Vita's well-kept cogs stood out like the lone orange in a pile of apples. Dante found her overseeing the offloading of the ship's cargo. We've got a lead, he told her. She glanced up from her work. And you tell me this, why? To brag? The local government won't appreciate us looking into it. If something happens to prevent us from getting back here, I'll send my rat. It'll have a message tied to its neck. You have a trained rat, and you trust it to deliver a message to a place it has never been before? It's exceptionally obedient. May I see it? Uh, he said, maybe later. It's resting now. She glanced across the city. What are you getting into that might require the skills of an extraordinarily trained rat to bail you out? Our friend's been arrested, Blaze said. We're going to unarrest him. You don't sound very troubled about this task. Is it common for you to have to unarrest your friends? Well, yes but it remains an open question as to whether that's because we have bad friends or because the people who run prisons just can't stand to see exceptional people having a good time. She smiled, running her finger along the brim of her cap. 
If I didn't have a house to answer to, I would go with you. Stay out of trouble, yes? You still have a job to do for me? Dante made a vague promise to be careful, then made his goodbyes and headed down the waterfront. Where are we going? Blaze said. Please tell me it involves lunch. Back to see Donarson. He seems sympathetic to Naren. He might know how to get us in contact with the capital's magistrate. As they made their way along the piers, he kept an eye out for anyone following them. Yata had claimed all foreigners were watched, but he was still having a difficult time telling Tenarians apart at a distance. As best he could tell, there were no obvious spies. Donaton was out on business, requiring them to hang around for half an hour before he returned and invited them out back to his deck. So, the robed man said, was the Bureau of Interlopers any help? Naren's been arrested, Dante said. He's being held in the capital of Darabode. Apparently he committed crimes against the state. Blaze tapped the pommel of his sword. In other words, the sort of thing you charge someone with when you don't like their face. I'm starting to think we need to pass a law banning laws. The Bureau told us we're not allowed to leave Arisosis. We can't even contact anyone in Darabode. We're going to need to— Danason held up his right hand, palm out. Stop! You haven't even heard— And I don't want to. It would only endanger me. Dante gritted his teeth. Do you want to know who's actually in danger? Naren, the one imprisoned in a forbidden city. Danason tucked his chin, glaring at Dante from beneath his eyebrows. In the gap in conversation, Dante heard an insult shouted from the shore of another island, reminding him that while they were removed from the eyes of the street, they weren't exactly in private. I owe you nothing. Denison's voice was quietly firm. It would better me personally to hear you out, agree to help you, and then turn you into the Bureau. My reward for such service would be substantial. But you won't, Blaze said, because you're a good man with the heart of a modern-day Lyle. My gut isn't the only part of me that's soft. The merchant chuckled then grew sober. The truth is, I don't care for the Bureau, nor the government it's a part of. I find it needlessly controlling and opaque. Even so, I am no revolutionary, just a man who enjoys grumbling. If you want someone who will help, speak to Undun Whalen. Dante scratched his jaw. I know that name. Naren was in talks with her. I take it they're friends. Safer to say, your interests will align with hers. Now go. I wish you luck, but I don't want to see you again. Dante shook the merchant's hand and left his property. The grounds of Undunwalen were located three islands further southeast, along the sweep of the shore. Her docks bustled with double-hulled canoes and long, narrow rafts that didn't look remotely seaworthy. Dante found a foreman and inquired after Undunwalen. He and Blaze were directed to a gazebo next to the water. 
The finest netting Dante had ever seen enclosed the structure from the plentiful insects. After they'd spent many minutes sitting around listening to stevedores insult each other, an older woman walked up to the gazebo and swept aside the netting. While Danarsen had been a foreigner, Parthian maybe, though quite possibly from a land Dante had never heard of, Undan was a thin, pale Tanarian, her dark hair shot through with silver stripes. Her eyes had a particular smolder that Dante most associated with self-proclaimed prophets. Who are you? She swiveled her head between the two of them. You have the look of an iron fist hidden inside a velvet glove. Drake Bane's men? But foreigners, so this can't be so. The personal swords of a foreign king, then? Malin? We don't represent King Charles, Blay said, happily falling into his routine of the casually decadent nobleman. But we are representatives of another malice institution, which, if I may be so bold, is hardly of lesser standing. We understand you're acquainted with one Captain Naren, recently of the Sword of the South. The captain and I know of each other. We understand he's run afoul of some sort of trouble. Dreadful business. Arrested and taken to the capital. Sure to be a simple misunderstanding. You see, we are in the service of his creditors, and would like to clear this up so that Malin and Tanara Tain can get back to the business of making great heaps of money together. Creditors. She said the word as though it was the start of a magical incantation. I have owed credit and given credit, and in each case, I wonder, what do I have? What do I owe? In what sense does the debt exist? Can you point to it? Can you pick it up and put it in your purse? or lock it in a chest for safekeeping. No, because it's no more real than a child's belief in fairies. Does that make you representatives of nothing? If so, it's the most powerful nothing in the known world. Blaze brushed a speck from the front of his doublet. Returning to the matter at hand, it turns out we have a problem. You can't go to Darabode, Undon stated, or speak to those who are there. Precisely. I understand this might be a delicate matter, but it was suggested that you might be of service in navigating this dilemma. You speak prettily. You powder your words and dress them in frills. These aren't the words the gods gave you. Speak plainly, or your words are as nothing as your credit. Blaze scrunched up one eye. We need to get to Darabode. We'll pay you for it. And if we're snatched up along the way, we'll swallow our own tongues before we tell them who helped us. Undon smiled toothily. That feels better, doesn't it? 
Now tell me of Naran, so that I know you know him. The two of them provided what Dante hoped was a credible account of their personal detail, without veering too deeply and exposing that they were more than partners in trade. His fears evaporated when Undon began to negotiate a price. They arrived at a sum that didn't quite deplete everything Dante and Blaze had brought with them. Before they shook hands, Blaze cocked his head. As long as we're talking in truth-drenched godwords, I get the impression that what we're proposing is highly illegal. So why are you willing to help us? Is it just the money? If you get what you want, Wundon said, does it matter why I do what I do? If you're doing this in service of a demonic master who's going to use our silver to fund his campaign to devour the world, then that might be relevant. When you choose to live among others, you choose to give up your freedoms. There is only one power that can regain those freedoms, the weight of money. The older woman flashed her teeth again. Besides, the risk won't be mine. It will fall on my agent. Who's your agent? Dante said. She will tell you her name for herself. She is young, and that makes her dumb. But that dumbness is good. If she was smart, she would never agree to this. How long will the trip take? Four days, five. Depends on how clear the canalers have kept the water. You will meet your guide in two days at the Frog Vault. Arrive at dusk. She will have a boat and carry a blue feather on the collar of her jabat. Jabat? Is that what you call your... He gestured in a circle. Tunics. Undan nodded. I will send for your coin tomorrow night. If you miss your meat after that, your money is forfeit. We have never seen each other, and you don't know my name. Dante shook her hand and left her peer. Dogged by paranoia, rather than heading right back to the Keeper of Secrets, he wandered inland from the docks, glancing behind them for pursuit. She was a bit odd, wasn't she? I think she's just the right amount of crazy. Too skewed in the head to be trying to set us up, but not so insane that she'll forget to do everything we just agreed to. Do you suppose when you let people speak anything, it causes them to think anything, resulting in the creation of more eccentrics? I think you should test this idea in Narashtavik and find out. Dante had no intention of doing any such thing, yet he hadn't spent more than a day in Tanaritain, and he was already beginning to question whether he might relax some of the strictures in Narashtavik, particularly those around certain heresies. After all, his experience in the plagued islands had already proved that some of the church's beliefs were incomplete at best, and possibly flat-out wrong. It seemed less than saintly to punish people for holding different beliefs on other matters when he was no longer wholly convinced they were wrong. And if there was a silver lining to all the running about he'd had to do in the last nine-odd months, 
It was that visiting new places had exposed him to certain imperfections in how he governed his realm. Despite the time he'd lost away from his people, when he returned, perhaps he could do a better job in ruling them. Once he was convinced they weren't being followed, he quit meandering and returned to the finder of secrets. Vita stood on the deck, swigging wine with her crew. We have a way to get to the capital, Dante told her, but they'll evict you from town before we can get back from it. Can you get customs to extend the length of your visit? She tucked down the corners of her mouth. They are strict, but I could return to Gavana, then bring more goods here, giving me a second stay. Do you know how long you will require? Two weeks. When you come back, stay ready to shove off at a moment's notice. If things go the way they tend to, we'll be running all the way. She offered them wine, toasting their journey. It tasted like crisp apples. After a couple of cups, Blaze motioned Dante over to the side of the boat. Two weeks is enough to fetch Naren. But what if we find out Gladick's somewhere out there, too? Dante let out a long breath. We'll see what Naren thinks. The Colin Basin is safe. Gladick's failed too much to have any sway left in Bressel. It might be better to get Naren out of here and walk away from the rest of it. Could leave Roshan Sorrowin in Bressel until Gladick comes home. She could get to him. Not too fond of him, are you? On the scale of things I detest, he ranks somewhere between spider orgies and explosive hemorrhoids. Dante frowned and drank more wine. The following day was quiet. Two hours after nightfall, a man came around to collect Undan's payment. Dante handed over the money with the same oily pang he always felt when he wasn't dead certain he was spending wisely. If it wasn't a scam, though, he was greatly relieved they'd finally run into a problem that could be solved through the direct application of cash, rather than a convoluted scheme to depose or kill a rival, retrieve a lost artifact, or kick off a war. That was the result of how they'd presented themselves, wasn't it? If he'd swept into town as Dante Galland, High Priest of Narashtavik and Nethermancer Supreme— Undun, no doubt, would have asked him to resurrect her dead husband or overrun an enemy merchant with a horde of zombies. But since he'd arrived as a simple financier, money was all they thought to ask from him. Barring life and death danger, he pledged not to reveal his powers to another soul until it came time to extract Naren. The following afternoon, Dante and Blaze made their way to the Frog Vault, a small island whose north end featured a particularly slack and shallow portion of water. The croak of the frogs drowned out the din of arguments and insults from the surrounding islands. Dante and Blaze waited in the shadow of a yellow-trunked tree that was propped up on its roots as if it was trying to escape the pungent waters. The daylight in Arisosis had a blurred, dull quality, and as the sun neared the horizon, blocked by towers and haze, it felt like the city was sinking below the surface of a vast, shaded pool. As the minutes went by, 
Dante grew concerned that Danarsen had decided to turn them in after all, or that Undan's love of silver had talked her into running off with their money and give them nothing in return. After all, if she'd reneged on a conspiracy to commit a crime, what recourse would they have to get their money back? Before his stomach could knot itself too tightly, a gentle paddle stirred the water. A canoe resolved in the gloom and glided smoothly toward the shore, lodging in the mud there. Seated in the hull, a girl of about eighteen years regarded them with curious, unafraid eyes. Two blue feathers hung from the collar of her jabad. She was as slender as a child's first hunting bow, but her arms and shoulders had the look of pale cuts of wood being shaped into something that would last. You two don't look as dumb as I thought. She lobbed a packet at Dante. It bounced off his chest. Blaze caught it before it could fall into the murky water. The girl jerked her chin at the packet. One bulb each. Chew them good. Blaze fished out two purple-spotted plant bulbs, passing one to Dante. Dante held it to his nose, smelling onions and capers. What is it? Any Rio. We'll need it to get out of here. Blaze crunched his down. Dante followed suit. The bulb tasted so strongly of onions, though a strange kind Dante had never encountered before, that it made his eyes water. What's it do? Blaze said. Give you strength to paddle longer? Nah, the girl said. It kills you. Dante stared at her, then spit messily, but he'd already swallowed almost all of it. He stuck his finger down his throat and gagged. The girl rolled her eyes. Idiot, if I meant it kills, kills you, would I tell you before you were dead? Any Rio makes you act dead. When the watchers of the water look you over, you'll be so dead-faced they'll pay me to haul you away. She slapped the side of the canoe. Now get in, and if you tip us over, then you have to ride underneath. Dante scowled at her. Have you done this before? If I said no, would you walk away? He grunted, waded into the water, and climbed over the side. It was an awkward maneuver, and he probably would have spilled them if the girl hadn't planted her paddle in the muck for balance. Blaze hopped in as lightly as a dragonfly alighting on a cattail. She pushed off, spun them around, and paddled leisurely toward the northeast, making no more sound than the occasional drip of water. Low laughter drifted from islands and collections of rafts moored together. People lived on their boats, Dante realized. Likely that was true of all the laborers who couldn't afford a scrap of land. Once the fullness of the night had crouched down on the city, the girl paddled toward a stone bridge, veering toward its abutment. Crossing under its shadow was like sailing into another world. Water echoed on all sides, smelling as musty as a cave. The girl pulled the canoe parallel to the abutment. There, a shelf of stone rose a few inches from the water. Get out, she said. 
Blaze tipped back his head at the arch above them. Oh, are we in the capital already? Change into these. She got a sack from under her bench and tossed them each a jabat. Two dead outlanders smell like three-day-old fish, but two dead Hari won't lift an eyebrow. Hari? She made a searching gesture. Foreigners who stayed. Trash people. No one cares if their bodies stop living. Light spilled in from either side of the bridge, giving Dante enough visibility to undo various laces and clasps. And for the young woman to stare at them with utter shamelessness as they stripped down. To Dante's annoyance, which didn't make a ton of sense considering he had no intention of romancing her, she seemed far more interested in Blaze. With an inner sigh, he adjusted the jabat on his shoulders and cinched its thin rope belt. As stupid as it looked, it did circulate the humid air rather well. He strapped on sandals and returned to the canoe. Blaze tied his belt in a stylish loop and jerked his chin at the girl. Now that you've seen my ass, you could at least tell me your name. She grinned. Volo. Back aboard before the Eni Rio hits you. Blaze reembarked. They wadded up their old clothes and hid their swords beneath it. Volo resumed paddling, faster this time. Soon, though her arms didn't seem to be working any harder, they seemed to be going faster yet. The lanterns on the shore leaving long trails of light behind them. Dante's tongue felt huge in his mouth. I think, he said, the bulbs. Lie down, she said without looking back. If you fall in, you won't be able to swim. He eased himself back, elbows shaking beneath him. Blaze did the same. The canoe was built for multiple people, but they had to do some rearranging to reach a point where there weren't any feet in faces or elbows in ribs. As soon as Dante quit moving, he felt as relaxed as the moment when you fell asleep. For a minute, it was immensely pleasant, like flying might be. The canoe skimmed through the water without so much as a single jolt. He wanted to laugh, but he didn't seem to know how. The world got faster and faster. He tried to blink, but his eyelids wouldn't budge. Towers raced past them. The only thing that wasn't moving far too fast was the stars. So he fixed on them. His breaths grew further and further apart. So did the beats of his heart. Among his last, clear thoughts was the realization that if someone was going to kill him, he would be utterly powerless to stop it. Towers and bridges blurred past them. He felt as cool and still as a stone at the bottom of a lake. And then, were they stopped? A man's voice called out, half-bored. They were stopped. A light neared. A man stood above them on a stone walkway carrying a spear and a lantern, dressed in a green jabat. Who's in the water? Volo of the maggots, 
the girl said. Got a delivery. What have you got tonight? She shrugged. Pair of dead hari. The sentry leaned close, shining the lantern into Dante's face. You didn't kill him, did you? They both laughed. Smelled bad before they died, Volo said, thinking I'll take them to the Garu Marsh. Why bother? Do you think they have souls? Hari? They look like people. Must have souls of some kind, but they're probably bad ones. The guard laughed again, the light of his lantern whirling. He crouched down for another look at Dante, crinkling his nose. Why would the gods give them souls they knew were bad? Vola looked down at the corpses with mild disgust. Maybe they're not so good at making souls. Some of them come out bad. Have to put them somewhere. But most of the world is worse than Hari. That means the gods must be awful at their job. And our leader says he's appointed by the gods. Makes you think. The guard nodded sagely. Looking preoccupied, he leveled his spear and poked Dante in the ribs. Pain ripped across his side. If he could have screamed, he would have. The soldier scrunched his mouth and stood. You're right about the smell. Get him out of here. Clear waters. Clear waters, she said back. She paddled away from the wall and toward a high stone arch, letting herself coast to a stop. In Dante's peripheral vision, he saw a net being drawn away from the mouth of the arch, opening the way forward. Volo waved in the direction of the lantern and paddled through the gate. All towers and structures disappeared, replaced by blank sky. Within a short period of time, Dante still couldn't gauge it any better than that, dark branches grasped together, crowding out the stars. Insects whirred so loudly it was as if they'd burrowed inside his skull. The lights were long gone behind them. Things weren't speeding by so fast anymore, but even the stars seemed to be moving now, hovering below the trees, winking on and off. As Dante fought to understand how this could be so, one of the stars drifted over the canoe. Volo batted at it. It was a bug carrying its own light, as if it had a torchstone embedded in its ass. He might have fallen asleep for a while. When he came back to himself, his limbs and face were tingling. He found that he could blink. Beside him, Blaze was twitching. Overhead, the branches weren't moving at all. The insects were still whirring. Out in the darkness, something splashed softly. Keep wiggling, Volo said. Will it help? Dante slurred. It'll help stop you from being eaten by everything that wants a piece of you. He wiggled harder. As his floppy limbs and wobbly joints began to cohere into something resembling a functional body, Volo chipped at a flint, spraying sparks onto a wooden cage. Something caught inside, lighting with a soft, oily whoosh. 
Though the lantern was mostly made out of something that looked like wicker, only the parts that were supposed to burn were currently doing so. Volo hung it from a pole in the prow of the canoe. They were floating in a clearing of sorts, a patch of open water surrounded by thick-trunked trees. Hundreds of wicker cages hung from the black boughs. Inside, white bones rested in untidy piles. Other bodies still carried flesh on them, the skin sloughing off. What lay beneath glistening darkly? Blaze sniffed. Wish my nose had stayed paralyzed. What is this place? Dante said. A prison. Volo gawked at him. You imprison your dead? Of course not. We bury them. Don't you? You bury them? In the ground? That's disgusting. Oh, yes. Much cleaner to hang them in gibbets to get eaten by bugs and drip juice on you when you pass under them. Ground is for growth, not death. Here we elevate the dead above the water so they don't have to be afraid anymore. Is that what you do? Dante gestured at the cages, then in the direction he thought might possibly be Arisosis. Ferry the dead here. That's right. I'm a maggot. Hey, now, Blaze said, you seem like a perfectly nice person. It's an honor to be a maggot. I'm one of the only parts of the body that isn't of the body. Volo gave them a look up and down. You two aren't merchants, are you? You're soldiers. Dante kept his expression neutral. What makes you think that? You have swords and you're doing something you're not supposed to, something you could get killed for. Merchants don't put their lives in danger. They use money to get other people to do that for them. You're right. We're soldiers for the same people Captain Nairn works for. Not like those common ones, though, Blay said. We're the elite. Double elite, really. The normal elite would have you believe otherwise, but that's because they're jealous. Like the knights of Odo Sein. She considered them. Does that mean you're going to kill me? Why would we kill you? So I can't tell anyone who you are. Or maybe you only became soldiers because you like killing people, so you'd sword me just because you can. Blaze flexed his hands, working out the last of his sluggishness. If we were the type to do that... Would it be a great idea to plant that thought in our heads? It doesn't matter. You've already thought of it. Volo narrowed her eyes. And you wouldn't tell me what you're really doing here, either. Are you going to kill the Drake, Bane? We barely know who he is, Dante said. Why would we want to kill him? Because he tells people they're free, and then he enslaves them. I have about as much interest in getting dragged into the affairs of Tanara Tain as I do in spending any more time hanging around beneath these thousand corpses. We have a job to do, Volo. Let's get to it. She looked disappointed. Tanarians seemed to have endless patience for conversation, then got out a stoppered gourd. 
Using a piece of reed, she scooped out a portion of a spicy-smelling red paste. She shoved it under Dante's nose. Eat this. What is it this time? Keeps the bugs away. Unless you want the bugs to come. Why would I want to attract insects? Don't ask me. You're the one who doesn't want to eat it. He swallowed the paste. It was spicy enough to singe his taste buds, but that didn't seem to be masking any unpleasant flavors or poisons. These are the rules of the water, Volo said. Don't leave the boat. Don't make splashes. And don't eat any bugs. I don't think you need to worry about us eating any bugs, Dante said. Ever. Then you've never been hungry. Volo picked up her oar and started paddling, leaving the cages of the dead behind them. Watch for patrols. If they catch us, they'll arrest you for trespassing. How are we going to be able to move around the capital if we'll be arrested on sight? Are your ears decorations? When you're in the capital, you can go where you want. You look like just another Hari. Blaze eyeballed a large blue frog, croaking away from the banks of an island little bigger than their canoe. The frog's eyes were downcast, almost rueful. Seeing it, Dante felt a sudden and inexplicable sadness. Blaze tore himself away from the sight. Why stop us from traveling around anyway? What are your leaders afraid we're going to do? Accidentally spend money on your goods? Volo went quiet for three seconds. I shouldn't say. It's a crime. We're already committing bundles of them, aren't we? What does one more matter? They say it's for your safety, that the swamps are too dangerous. And is hiring guides considered unholy? Yes, she said, deadly serious. Because that would let you see how things really are here. She fell into a moody silence. The swamps rang with the cries of birds, frogs, and insects. Sometimes Dante heard the whine of mosquitoes, but none of them seemed to be landing on him. Either the red paste was doing its work, or the mosquitoes didn't like foreigners any more than the people did. His eyes darted to every furtive splash. The place was spooky, he'd give it that. Yet over the next hour of travel, he didn't see anything that looked especially dangerous, at least not to anyone who wasn't in the habit of sticking everything they saw into their mouths and swallowing it live. Once he saw a large pair of cat's eyes gleaming from the branches of a tree, but it didn't look like they could be attached to an animal any larger than a badger. Whatever danger the king was worried about befalling foreigners out in the wild, his fears appeared overblown. It was immediately clear, however, that if anything happened to Volo, or she decided to abandon them, he and Blaze would be completely and utterly screwed. The canopy was too dense to make out more than fleeting stars. He couldn't glimpse a single constellation to get his bearings by. When morning came, 
He could orient himself to the sun, but even then, he had no idea which direction Aris Osis was. The only thing they could do was paddle south or west until they struck the coast, assuming they still had a boat. If they didn't, well, he supposed they could steal one from an innocent person, but he didn't want to go down that line of thought. He had no idea how dedicated Volo was to keeping them alive. Probably she saw this as a job, nothing more. Certainly nothing worth putting her safety at risk if they got into a mess. Quite suddenly, her continued well-being vaulted to the top of Dante's priorities. A few minutes after he'd reached this conclusion, Volo directed the canoe to a wedge of turf, barely keeping itself above the water. She ran them aground and hopped out. Time to kiss some dirt, she said. Help me set up camp. Dante looked around them. We're stopping already. If you're tired, one of us can paddle. Just needed to put some distance between ourselves and the city. Not good to travel at night. The light attracts things. Like what? Bloodthirsty moths. Want to find out? Frowning, he brought ashore bundles of cloth that turned out to be hammocks. Volo went to work stringing them up. Hammocks, Blay said. The ground isn't so sacred we can't sleep on it, is it? Otherwise you're going to want to have a word with the worms currently befouling it. Dante tied a rope around a branch, testing his knot. I imagine there's less snakes this way. Less? Snakes, meaning there are still some snakes. I expect it's better to have a few snakes around than having to deal with a bunch of snake eaters. Dante tied the other end of the hammock and gave it a tug, wincing as the movement tore something in the spot where the guard had poked him with the spear. He'd thought about healing it with the nether, but Volo seemed fairly sharp-eyed. The last thing he wanted was for her to pick up on the fact that his wound was mysteriously healed. Fortunately, it was only a small cut, but he was so used to healing any bruises and nicks he'd picked up over the course of the day that the small pain felt magnified and strange. Beyond that, he'd spent all of his adult life not particularly concerned about any wound short of a lethal blow. To be reminded of the vulnerability he'd once felt one that nearly everyone else in the world lived with, was unsettling. They ate a meal of dried fish and a bready fruit Volo found on the little island. As she chewed, she flicked a piece of rind into the water. Something broke hard against the surface, vanishing as quickly as it had struck. We won't be alone tomorrow, Volo said. People of the teeth will be out fishing. Legs will be out delivering goods, and eyes will be on patrol. Dante fished a seed from beneath his teeth. What do we do if we run into a patrol? You can hide, or we can poke out their eyes. He stared at her, completely uncertain if she was serious, or just letting her mouth express every idea that crossed her mind. 
For now, let's stick with hiding. There's going to be enough trouble as there is. Then what if that's a sign that we should cause more? It isn't. She gave him a reproachful look. You say no too fast. When you kill all your ideas while they're still infants, none can grow up to work your paddies or defend your castle. Dante crawled into his hammock. He was soon asleep. During the course of the night, he woke more times than he could count. It was more than the chorus of creatures. He felt uneasy, as if something were slowly drawing closer, and every time he nodded off, it took another step forward. Was it the green crush of the forest? He didn't think that was it. He'd been in intensely wooded areas before. The jungles of the plagued islands were so lush you couldn't traverse parts of them without following game trails or hacking your way forward a foot at a time. It was more than the claustrophobia of a forest. It felt like the swamp was breathing, like it was alive. Volo rousted them at first light to pull down the hammocks before anyone could see them. They'd barely gotten the canoe underway when voices bleated out ahead. Two men were arguing heedlessly, voices ringing through the trees. Something about nets, fishermen likely berating each other about whose turn it was to untangle the skein. Before Dante and Blaze could conceal themselves, a raft swung from behind a shaggy stand of trees. Two men pushed it forward with long poles, paying much more attention to their discussion than to where they were planting their staves. Can't be so, the older man said. Ain't no way that Sardi Lono, the man who caught the wind with his bare hands, is sluggish enough to let himself get netted. The younger man swatted at something. But say it's Ura So doing the netting. She smiles at him, dazzles him with her ruby teeth, then catches him up. Right, and what happens when he snaps out of her spell? He goes at the net with the knife that can't be sheathed. Won't help. The weave is too tight. The old man guffawed. You're telling me the knife that cut a hole through the earth can't cut a net? This is the net that dragged down the moon. There's no way. Finally noticing Volo's canoe, the man broke off mid-sentence. Volo paddled onward, skirting around a snag protruding from the water like the hand of a drowning man. As the raft sailed by, the two men stared at the foreigners. Dante did his best to look like an obedient servant. I say he stuck fast, the younger man muttered, turning back to his partner, as if she's going to just stand there while he fumbles about for the knife. Their voices faded into the forest. Volo made a thoughtful noise. If the wrong person sees you, they might turn you in. Next time you should probably try to hide. Though it was still a couple of weeks until spring, the air was warm, intensified by the heavy dampness of the air. Ropes of vines and threads of moss hung from the trees. 
Another canoe emerged from behind a lumpy little island. Again, it was too close for Dante and Blaze to try to hide themselves in the bottom of their boat. The man inside the other canoe glided past, watching them from the corners of his eyes. They'd barely started out, and Dante was already doubting they could reach Darabode without someone turning them into the authorities. He considered killing one of the many, many flying bugs and sending it ahead of them to scout the way. But there wasn't a singular path forward, meaning he'd have to maintain a small fleet of flies to cover whichever way Volo took them. Anyway, if he did see a patrol coming their way, he couldn't alert Volo without exposing his abilities. With no better option, he and Blaze flattened themselves against the bottom of the canoe and covered themselves in hammocks. The water thumped gently against the hull. Dante felt jumpy and irritable, blind. More than that, like he'd lost both his arms. He was so used to being able to call on his powers that being without them made even simple tasks feel abruptly overwhelming. He dozed on and off. Early that afternoon, Volo guided the canoe out of the main waterway and found an outcrop of ground where they could stretch their legs and eat lunch. I don't suppose there's another way to the capital, Blaze said. Preferably something that ends each day with an inn of fire and kegs of exotic beverages. There are some towns along the way. Volo glanced at a fish leaping from the water. But the problem with towns is they're full of people. Too soon, they were back in the canoe. Dante took his time in lying down. Before, there had been any number of gaps in the growth, but here the trees, brambles, and vines had grown into an interlocking wall. They were traveling more or less down a tunnel one that looked as though it only existed due to constant maintenance. He dozed off. Sometime later, something jabbed him in the ribs. Before he could yell out about snakes or swamp rats, a hand clamped over his mouth. Trouble ahead, blazed, dressed in green. Dante peeked over the gunwale. They were stopped at one end of a hallway through the trees. At the far end, roughly five hundred feet away, a house raft had been stopped by a double-hulled canoe bearing what appeared to be a roof. This would have been puzzling, if not for the green paint on its hull, and the piles of soldiers spilling from it onto the raft. It was a military vessel, and the roof was a shield against arrows. Dante rubbed grit from the corner of his eye. Can we go around? No other roots. Growth's too thick. She curled her lip. Just how they want it. No sense trying to hide. They're searching that boat. We could always act like we have nothing to hide, Blaze said, and pray that they've chosen today to quit enforcing their laws, the ones they are clearly in the process of enforcing right now. You never know when someone's going to make a mistake on your behalf. His tone went arch. Besides, if they look at us cockeyed, 
We can always just kill them all. For Volo's sake, Blaze presented the idea as a joke, but Dante took his meaning clearly. They could, if necessary, brute force their way through the situation. But that would mean revealing himself, not to mention massacring a score of soldiers, an event that was likely to be investigated by an even larger force of soldiers. We can't turn around now. It looked like we're fleeing them. Dante gripped his temples. When they're done with the raft, will they come over to inspect our boat? Or are they holding a static checkpoint? Sharp eyes don't sit still, Volo said. They'll come for us. Then Blaze and I will swim over to the shrubs and hide there until they check the canoe. There will be nothing for them to find, and they'll be on their way. But you don't get in the water, not unless there's no other choice. Ah, Blaze said, there isn't. At the far end of the tunnel, the soldiers had climbed off the raft and back into their war canoe. It was already paddling forward, heading toward their much smaller boat. Dante grabbed his sword from the bottom of the canoe and rolled over the gunwale. He landed with a soft sploosh. The water was the same temperature as the air. He'd expected to be able to touch the bottom, but his feet kicked through empty water. He dropped below the surface. It was so murky, he couldn't see anything except a vague sense of the light above him. He swam hard toward the gnarl of trees, hemming them in to the right, keeping one hand in front of him to ward off any submerged branches or rocks. His fingers caught in something slippery. He jerked back his hand, giving a short, bubbly shout. He kicked on until he was out of breath, then broke the surface. The war canoe was shockingly close, as if it had teleported halfway across the tunnel through the trees. Praying none of the soldiers had spotted his head, he dropped back under the water. He passed under the deeper shadow of the wall of shrubs. Stray twigs and thorns dangled in the water, grabbing at his arms as he broke through them. He emerged into an oval of relatively clear water, surrounded by trees and undergrowth. Blaze popped up next to him. Bits of leaves and flowers tumbled from the branches in a steady shower. Across from him, a giant fallen log rested in the water, its bark coated with green moss and orange mushrooms. Out in the waterway, the war canoe was backbeating its oars as it approached Volo, who now looked very alone and very small. Dante was treading water. Try as he might, he couldn't avoid making a few small splashes. With no dry ground in sight, he pushed toward the log. Most of its bulk was underwater, but at twenty feet long, and close to four across, it could easily support both his weight and blazers. He grabbed a knob on the log's side, searching for a knob of branch to haul himself up with. Despite the time it had spent soaking in the water, the log's scaly bark was so hard it nearly cut his hands. What the... Blaze whispered. Stop! Dante glared at him. Blaze was gesturing hard for him to back off.
Baffled, Dante turned back to the log. A yellow circle had appeared near one of its ends, barely above the waterline. In its center was marked with a smaller black circle. He was staring into a giant eye. The beast jackknifed, lunging for him. He saw fangs, a gaping throat like a hole through the fabric of the earth. He grabbed for the nether, but the jaws were already snapping closed around his chest, pulling him under the surface of the water. Chapter 20 The black carriage rattled through the streets, its driver yelling and swearing at any pedestrian who dawdled in its path. Inside, Rasha settled into the velvet seats. The air was awash in rosy perfume. My apologies for the wait you are to endure. The woman across from her spoke Gaskin at a rapid clip. She sounded like one of the aristocrats from back home, but to Russia's relief, she bore a light, malish accent. The guards who were assisting you were under the perverse impression that I value sleep more than the execution of justice. Needless to say... They're being flogged as we speak. Ah, Rasha said. Thank you. My name is Maura of Boscane. I'm going to ask you some questions, and then I'm going to help you. The carriage's sashes were open, letting in plenty of light. Lady Maura was fifty years of age, and her face was tan even by Brazilian standards. But as she gestured, Rosha caught glimpses of lighter skin around the collar of her dress. Spent a lot of time outdoors for a noble. She had thin, quick fingers. Deep laugh lines entangled her mouth and eyes, although she looked and sounded like the sort who never belly laughed, and settled instead for a constant state of low-level amusement. Rosha had no idea who she was, but she could already tell that the lady would want something from her. You are from Gask, Maura said, but Gask is so large its own weight caused it to collapse. Which fragment of the whole is yours? Dolindon, Rosha said. They're Joralyn family. Unfortunately, it has not been my pleasure to make their acquaintance. Most of my summers in the former empire have been spent at the lakes of Galador, a picturesque place. Do you know it? When I was younger, but not in years. Like you said, Gask is a big place. Large enough that one could tour it for decades without running out of new sites. Why, then, would one need to travel to Bressel? It's not a pleasant story. Most true ones aren't. But in the sharing of them, we understand that we are all bent beneath the same burdens. The carriage rocked through a pothole so deep, Rosha's rear left contact with the bench. My husband is the youngest of four brothers. With no fortune guaranteed to him, he had to make his own. The war that cracked Gask into fragments, as you put it, also opened the door to opportunity. You know about Norrin Art? Know it. In Bressel, I am its champion. I'm an avid collector of Norrin line paintings. My favorites originate from the Broken Heron clan. Roshon nodded as if she knew who that was. 
I'm less than an expert myself, but my husband seized on the bossin trade, started selling it across every corner of Gask. He did well, well enough to get ambitious. Last year, he brought a caravan of Norin goods to the Colin Basin. Maura wrinkled her nose. Why would an upstanding and well-blooded Gaskin want to do business with the Colin Basin? They care for nothing but spears and hoes. In Gask, competition is fierce. Others had already established markets in Mallon. My husband thought that if he was the first to open up the Colin Basin, he'd make all three of his brothers envious of his wealth. Spiting one's family is such wonderful motivation. When he got to Colin, he sent me letters weekly. Three months ago, the letters stopped. I waited as long as I could, and then I came to find him. What? All by yourself? I brought ten men-at-arms, Rosha said, along with two of my husband's men who knew the way to Colin. Bandits ambushed us in the woods north of Bressel. Killed everyone. Outrageous! Outrageous! Did they really think the woods cover would hide them from the gods? How did you come to elude them? When it was clear we couldn't win, one of my guards grabbed me. He tried to sell me to the bandits. I had to. She looked down, biting her lip. To stab him. I ran then, hid in a stream while the bandits hunted for me, shouting what they'd do to me. It was so cold. I think I fell asleep for a while. When I came to, I went back to the site, but all my guards were dead. They'd taken everything but a few clothes. She gestured at herself, smiling wryly. This was the best I could do. And then? You came to the city with nothing? I didn't know what else I could do. Last night I was trying to find someone to take me to Colin when I was robbed. If the town watch hadn't saved me, the thieves would have killed me in the street. Maura regarded her for several seconds. Rosha had the idea it was the longest the woman had gone without talking in some time. Your story is dreadful, the woman said. I consider it an affront to the reputation of the entire city. How can I help you reattain your footing? I've heard the Colin Basin is at war with Malin. Is it true? Colin has rebelled. Again. This time has been more successful than past efforts, thanks in large part to the aid of a grotesque sorcerer who summons abominations to use as weapons. Colin broke free. Will Malin go back to war? The woman made a flicking gesture. The rebellion makes King Charles look weak. His pride might lead him to strike back, even as others in the palace wonder if we wouldn't be better off without the troublesome basin. Rorschach gazed at the floor of the carriage. I can't travel there to find my husband alone. I'll ride home and find a way to care for myself until my family sends my men-at-arms. Nonsense! There's no need for you to care for yourself. You'll be staying with me. 
But we've just met. Why would you help me? Because I have a keen interest in all things Gaskin. Maura smiled, crinkling the corner of her eyes. And because I'm a person who enjoys ruffling feathers. I think your story will turn some heads at court. Rosha smiled hesitantly, then gratefully. The carriage passed under the shadow of a wall. They had entered the palace grounds. All the secrets of the kingdom were no more than a short walk away. Lady Maura, her husband, and their staff were housed on the third floor of one of the Fabians, the wooden buildings ringing the palace. Their apartments were stuffed with fancy rugs, plush furniture, all the usual rich person junk. Rosha's room had beeswax candles and a feather mattress. As she sank into the bed for a nap, enveloped by the cloud-soft bedding, Rosha wondered if, once she was done spying on Malin's plans for Colin, she could find a way to stay and spy on someone else as well. When Rosha woke, Maura took her for a stroll around the mall between the palace and the Fabians. The shade trees were starting to push out new leaves. Upwards of fifty people were out enjoying the temperate morning, all of them well-dressed, all of them useless. How much silver did it cost to dress them in linens, to feed them beef and quail eggs, to house them in their lordly quarters? Why didn't the peasants rise up and take back what these leeches had bled from them? With that thought, she stiffened. She'd always considered herself to be fighting against these people. Now she was working for their equivalent in Narashtavik. That was the way, wasn't it? Whatever you thought you were, the world corrupted you. She set her jaw. The mall was only a small fraction of this gathering of parasites. The palace and the Fabians must be filled with hundreds of courtiers and nobles. Finding the few of them who knew what she needed would be rough. The afternoon was spent fitting her for court-appropriate dresses. By the end of it, Rosha felt martyred. At twilight, the door flew open, admitting a man of fifty, whose hair and beard were frosted with silver. He seemed to close on Lady Maura with a single step, hugging her tight. Nothing best terminates a woeful day like the embrace of one's wife. He noticed Rosha, his bushy eyebrows climbing. Ah, we have company? This is Lady Yera of Dolondon, Maura said. She is currently suffering from a surfeit of bad luck. We are going to reverse that trend. We are? He sized Rosha up, then smirked at his wife. A northerner bearing a story of sorrow? Tell me this wouldn't have anything to do with your dispute with Loris. Mara smiled thinly. It is purely an act of altruism. If that act also has the consequence of thwarting Loris, I can only ascribe it to the gods showing their approval for my good deed. 
Lord Boscane winked at Rorschach. Well, Lady Yera, please see that my clever wife doesn't get herself into too much trouble. Rorschach smiled back at him. If they thought she was a pawn, she was happy to let them, because Maura was a mark. And the key to working a mark was to find out what they want from you, then pretend to give it to them. As long as she could do that for Maura, she'd have the run of the palace. They ate. It was opulent. Rosha tried not to enjoy it as much as it deserved. After, she declared she was tired and retired to her room. She moved to the window and gazed across the dark mall, where young courting couples now wandered in the night, working up the nerve to kiss. Rosha could only slum around in the shadows for a few minutes per day, Unless she knew the exact time the king's ministers were slated to discuss their plans for Colin, and then showed up at the precise moment they quit the pleasantries and got down to policy, she had no real chance of hearing what they intended to do about the basin. She'd need to steal documents. She supposed she should start with the Lord and Lady Boscane, try to figure out what they were up to, whether Orsha was getting herself into any trouble. She'd already made an assessment of the apartments. After napping, she crept out into the moonlit hallway and headed for the Lord's study. The door was locked. Interesting. Hadn't been earlier. She had it open in seconds. She moved to the writing desk. The surface was scattered with blotting sand. She picked up a page and held it to the moonlight and saw it was written entirely in Malish, which she couldn't read. Cursing herself, she set it down and returned to bed. The entire morning was spent having her hair done and modeling for the finishing of her dress. Once it was done, and on her, she was paraded in front of a mirror. The woman who stared back at her looked very elegant, and nothing like her. That afternoon, Maura took Rosha around to tell her story to a few friends. Rosha played her part. The other women looked suitably horrified. Rosha could tell Maura was sowing the seeds of gossip, but still wasn't sure what the game was. On their way back to their apartments, Rosha asked, Is it possible I learn to write malice? Maura cocked her head. We're going to be quite busy. Why would you wish to learn the writing of Malish? Because to not know it and to be in Malin is to look like you are stupid. The lady laughed warmly. The fight against ignorance is our noblest war. I will secure you a tutor. Meaning Rosha would soon have access to all the writing materials she needed, too. During dinner, she did her best to not sound too distracted. She was due to meet Sorowan that night. After days of trying to figure out a way to break into the palace, she now found herself trying to break out of it. As midnight neared, she changed into her old clothes, bolted her door, opened the window, and slipped into the shadows. She dropped down to the balcony on the second floor, 
grabbed its rails, and lowered herself, dropping lightly to the ground. Still in the nether, she sprinted across the cobbled span between the Fabians and the outer stone wall. She ran right through the wall, found a dark street, and returned to the normal world. She jogged most of the way to the park. Even then, she was late. Sorrowan didn't mention it. Well, he said, did you make it into the ghosts? I stopped trying to join them when they tried to kill me. They tried to kill you? But if you can't get in with them, how are you going to find out if there's going to be another war? Rosha shrugged, thought I'd get into the palace instead. The boy laughed, trailing off as he saw she was serious. The palace? Like the palace where the king lives? How? Ask the lady who's housing me there. I'll pick up what gossip I can, but the good stuff's going to be in the minister's documents. I think I can get to them. But there's one problem. I can't read them. I'm going to start learning to read Malish tomorrow. Why would you do that? So that I can read Malish. You don't have to do that. Just copy them and bring them to me. You can read them. Because you were born here and spent years in the priesthood. She grinned at him. Quit making me look like an idiot, will you? I wish I was in the palace. They have me chopping wood and reading about Gashin's victories all day long. It's so boring. He always wins. Picked up any dirt yet? It mostly just seems normal. Sorrowin tilted his head. But yesterday, I was going to sharpen my axe when I heard two of the masters talking. Master Jameson said... The boy closed his eyes, remembering... If the war brings the foreigners to us, I wonder how merciful they'll be after all. Rosha snorted. They can't seriously believe the Colin Basin's going to invade them. Galan's not sure the colonists can keep their own borders safe. That's the whole reason we're here. Maybe so, but Master Waymore thinks they might counter-invade too. He replied... They will spare us. They need us to keep peace among the people. Remember that it is our only chance for reform. Then I dropped my axe on my foot and yelped, and they stopped talking. Well, pass it along to the bosses. Then, if they get it wrong, they can only blame themselves. Heard from them lately? Early this morning. They're nearly to Gavana. Let them know we're in position, that it's only a matter of time until we have what they're looking for. He peered at her, his eyes lit like the candles of a scholar working late into the night. How did you get like this? Like what? So, sure of yourself. By having been through much worse. Now let's get out of here before someone sees a young male monk fraternizing with an older female roughneck in the middle of the night. Rosha went back to the Fabians at a jog. Despite her haste, by the time she got home, she'd been out for nearly three hours. When a servant came around in the morning to see her, Rosha was so thick-headed from exhaustion 
that for a moment she couldn't remember where she was. The day was filled with more gossip-mongering. Maura emphasized that Rosha's husband had chosen to do business with the Colin Basin over Malin, implying that it was because of the unfavorable tariffs Malin placed on northern goods. Even so, sensing some resentment toward Colin, Rasha was careful to guarantee Malin's blue bloods that her husband had wanted to come to Malin, but the dictates of business had thwarted him. The day after that, she got her writing tutor. Along with enough parchment to cover the sails of a ship, and enough ink to dye them. Within minutes of starting her lessons, Rosha was incredibly bored. But she gritted her teeth and did her best. Combined with bits and pieces she remembered from Galan's lessons, she learned fast. Maura assured her that she'd requested audiences with several ministers who could apprise Rosha of the situation in Colin and how she could best look into her husband's disappearance there. She also gave Rasha a flippant warning about how long such requests could take to be fulfilled. Several days drifted past, a tasteless porridge of court chatter, writing lessons, and strolls around the mall. At least this gave Rasha a good look at the palace. Each night she catnapped then got up in the darkest hour to slip outside and shadow-walk into the palace itself, getting to know its escape routes and its exits. A handful of them, anyway. The palace was gigantic, a town unto itself. She could only spend a few minutes inside it each night until she had to hoof it back home before she ran out of juice and got kicked out of the shadows. Using dead bugs, she tried spying at a distance, but she had a hard time hearing anything the people were saying. It was like she didn't know how to get her ears to work with the bug's ears. She tried to hone her skill, but it was slow going, and any energy she spent on the bugs was juice she couldn't put toward shadow-walking. She preferred to do her work in person, anyway. And as day after day passed with no word from the royal cabinet— Rasha was starting to think she'd have time to memorize every stone in every room of the palace. I possess good news, Maura announced one morning after breakfast. The Minister of Foreign Dignitaries has agreed to see you this afternoon. This afternoon, Rasha said, but I've only waited twelve days. Is he sure he doesn't need twelve more to prepare his office for my arrival? You can make japes now. Your malice is improving. Shall I inform the minister that you will be there, or would you prefer to pout that the men you need to speak with because of their importance also have concerns that don't involve you? Rosha smiled. There was no denying that Maura was a cold-blooded aristocrat who couldn't imagine anything better to do with her wealth than try to make more of it. As Lady Yera's story had rippled through the court, Maura had begun to openly question whether the newly opened Galadee's passage was enriching the Middle Kingdoms at the cost of Malin's coffers, and if so, whether the king had any choice but to reduce tariffs on all goods out of the north.
Rasha had zero doubt Maura had only taken her in to use her as a political bludgeon. Yet Rasha liked her anyway. Tell the minister I'll see him. And thank him for his attentions on this matter. And thank him for his attentions. Servants helped Rasha garb herself in various undergarments and the dress Maura had made for her to wear to any such audiences. At the appointed time, Maura accompanied Rasha into the palace, where a royal servant delivered them to a modest-sized hall. A man rose from a table. He was dressed in a pine-green doublet with floppy sleeves cinched at three points along the arm, making them resemble a string of mouldy onions. He bowed. I am Odin Lexley, King Charles's Minister of Foreign Dignitaries. I am sorry to hear the conditions that brought you here, but I am glad to meet you nonetheless. Rosha thanked him and grabbed a seat. Laxley had already heard her story, but he prompted her to tell it herself. I'm waiting for my soldiers to come from Dolenden, she concluded. Anything you can tell me about the situation in Colin will help me find my husband. Laxley frowned, the ends of his long moustache hanging past his chin. It is not advised that anyone should travel into Colin at the present time. The locals have savagely murdered many of our people. They have made raids across our own border. There is even talk of witchcraft. But I must find him. If there's to be another war, I have to get him out before anything happens to him. It is not known whether our king will dedicate more resources to quelling rebels who may be incapable of accepting civilization. However, we do possess certain assets within Colin. They might make inquiries of your husband on your behalf. Rasha did her best to pry more from him, but either he truly had no idea about Malin's plans for Colin or he had no intention of revealing them to a northerner. She did a careful dance around the malish spies he'd implied were working in Colin, but he stonewalled her there, too. He wasn't altogether unhelpful, Maura decided once they'd returned to the Fabians, but I assume a woman like yourself is not satisfied by the assurances that strangers will ask questions on your behalf. Not in the slightest, Rosha said, I need to know more. I will inquire of Harold Walpole, but it will mean more waiting. Fine by me. The longer he makes me wait, the more time I have to spread my story. That drew a smile from Maura. Once Rosha was alone, she killed a spider, painstakingly reanimated it, and sent it on the long crawl toward the palace. When Laxley concluded his day, it followed him to his chambers. That night, Rorschach snuck into his rooms, rifled through his writings, and spent hours copying down a page from each. If Sorowan found anything interesting in one of them, she'd go back for the rest. At her next meet with Sorowan, Rorschach told him that Malin had spies operating in the basin. He told her that Galand and Blaze had diverted to a place called 
Tanar Attain, something about one of their other people getting arrested while snooping around. She didn't know whether to be concerned that Galan's other spies were getting snatched up, or relieved that he was bothering to rescue them. Sorrowen paged through the copied documents she'd brought, repeatedly shaking his head. Some of these talk about Colin, but it's just about keeping track of which malish people of note are still in the basin. I don't think this guy gets much of a say in things. Rasha had been afraid of that. Over the next two weeks, she made another couple of trips into Laxley's quarters, but nothing she turned up seemed significant. She had just about given up on seeing the Minister of the Eastern Reach when she was summoned to his presence. Harold Walpole was a tall man with a craggy beard, a frown carved from granite, and eyes that looked like they could see your secrets. When Rasha entered the hall, he barely nodded. Lady Yara, he said, I know your story. Why should I care? She raised an eyebrow. My husband is missing, my lord. He might have been taken hostage, or even... She trailed off, letting her voice quiver. Walpole's rock-like expression didn't budge. Your husband is a northerner who means nothing to me. Thousands of my men have died in Colin. For the moment, the fighting has stopped, but the slightest nudge could cost me thousands more. So, I will repeat myself one time. Why should I care that your husband went somewhere he shouldn't have? Once the truth, you shouldn't. This got him to raise his eyebrow. Rosha was surprised it didn't creak. Let me guess how this normally goes, she went on. Woman walks in with a tragic story. She beseeches you, cries at you, and demands you make it your business to make it better. Wrong, he grunted. It isn't just women. You should care about me because you don't have to do anything for me. I'm taking care of this for myself. The only thing I need from you is to know what I'm getting into. He'd stayed on his feet and hadn't offered to let her sit down. Still standing, he crossed his arms. What do you need to know? When I go to Colin, will I be walking into a war? Can't say what the coloners will do. I'm not asking what the coloners will do. Then you're asking me for state secrets. Rosha sucked her upper teeth. My men will get here one month from now. Will there be fighting by then? Arms folded, tapping his right upper arm with his left hand. Walpole turned his back on her to regard an oversized map of the region mounted on the wall. Collins bunged themselves up like a keg. An outsider looking at the situation would conclude that it would take months for anyone to mount an effective attack on their defenses. She smiled. Thank you, Lord Walpole. He dismissed her with a nod. This time she'd brought her spider with her. She let it crawl down her dress and onto the floor.
Walpole soon left the hall they'd met in, the spider hitching a ride on his trousers. He retired to a high tower in a room by himself. He worked well past dark. He took no visitors. Rorschach ate dinner, drank wine with the Boscanes, napped. At midnight's bells, she woke and slipped outside. The tower was deep into the palace. Rosha ran as hard as she could, deep in the shadows, the stars overhead burning like white coals. She entered the building, following the path she'd laid out for herself to minimize the distance she'd have to travel. Even at this late hour, guards stood silent, pole arms in hand. She dashed up the spiral steps to Walpole's tower. Shooting through the wall, she threw herself back into the real world. The run had taken several minutes. She'd have enough juice to make it home, but not much more. The chambers included a larger study and a smaller room furnished with stuffed chairs and a cabinet stuffed with stout liquors. The window in both rooms looked down on part of the palace roof, a secret courtyard of flowers and shrubs chopped up into animal shapes. Rorschach got out her parchment and went to work. The room was laden with documents, way too much to get in one go. She copied the first page of everything that mentioned Colin, one of the few malish words she recognized instantly, then moved on to everything recent. It was laborious work, time-consuming. She deactivated her spider long ago, couldn't suffer the drain on her powers. So she kept one ear cocked to the stairwell, straining for any sound above the scratch of her quill. Finished, she dried her ink, the smell of which she was starting to hate, rolled up her pages, and ran fast as hell back to the Fabians. Climbing was easier in the shadows, but even so, her grip on the netherworld was starting to quiver by the time she had scaled the balconies up to her window. Two days later, she brought what she'd found to Sorowan. In the darkness of the park, he shuffled through her copies. A third of the way through the stack, he swung up his head so fast, a lock of hair flopped down his forehead. You got it! Rosh, are you— She reached out and bopped him on the side of the head. Keep your voice down, you idiot! We're holding our own death warrants right now. Sorowan rubbed his head, still grinning. This is a payment order, for enough money to raise a small army. Is that what it's for? An army? It doesn't say. It doesn't say who it's for, either. All it says is that it's about the East, about the coming fighting there. There were other pages to this. If I get them to you, can you tell me what the Crown is paying for? Well, I can't know that until we have the rest of it. I'll bring you the rest two nights from now, Rorschach said. I've spoken to the man who runs the Eastern Reaches. Tell Galand war is coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. She spent the next day fending off a steady dose of nerves. When midnight finally came, and the uninteresting people were snoring in bed, she climbed out the window, ran across the mall, and re-entered the palace.
The entire hall smelled like roast grouse with rosemary. Scullions were still cleaning up the mess. She ascended the tower to Walpole's private offices. These were dark, but down in the rooftop courtyard, lanterns glowed and courtiers laughed, crystal glasses glinting in their hands. Rosha lit a candle, keeping it back from the window. She moved to the desk and opened the top drawer. Half of the parchment she'd gone through the day before was gone. She poured through what was left. The payment order was missing. Heart pounding, she opened the drawer below and found another stack. Recognizing them from the day before, she paged through them until she found the order. It was three pages in all. She got out her stuff and started copying. She was just moving on to the third page when a key scratched in the lock of the door. Chapter 21 Teeth scraped against his ribs. The beast's jaws squeezed him on both sides, threatening to crush him. It felt like his head was spinning, because it was. The monster was rolling in circles, dragging him under, meaning to drown him. He called out to the nether, feeling it surround him, drawn to the blood leaking into the water. He shaped it into a spear and drove it blindly into the creature's midsection. It relaxed its jaws. Pressure relieved, with his face momentarily above water, Dante gasped for air. He'd barely gotten a breath in when the creature clamped down again. His assault should have blown straight through its body, but it didn't seem weakened at all. He was back under the water, and its jaws were forcing the air from its lungs. He gathered a second strike and hammered it toward the beast's middle. Yet the black bolt seemed to waver, impacting sidelong. Dante felt it do little more than scrape across the bark-like scales, the monster squeezed harder yet. He felt a crack, a gush of pain that made his vision go white. He forced his mind to return to its tethers. The nether swirled around the edges of his eyes, as if impatient to be put to use. He formed a third bolt and rammed it into the top of the beast's head. He held tight to the bolt all the way through, guiding it home. Yet it felt like trying to punch someone underwater. The attack's strength sapped away. His lungs were screaming now. So were his ribs. As it rolled him over again, he waited until the light brightened, then drove up his head and fought for a gasp of air. But a slug of water came with it, choking his lungs. He coughed, tasting blood. He tried to draw the nether together for another strike, but he was coughing and writhing and drowning. Trying to shape the shadows was like trying to shape dry flour. His pain and anguish peaked until he thought he couldn't stand it, then withdrew like a boat leaving a pier. In his state, he could hardly think, yet he knew exactly what was happening. It was ending. A part of him embraced it. An end to this pain, yes, but also to all the strife, the loss of friends and mentors and innocence. And all for what? To make things slightly better? Or too often, just to keep things from getting worse?
the gains were so small, and the costs were so big. Better to have been a farmer, a fisherman, a scribe for a kindly monk in a backwater village. Anger. Anger like a thunderclap. A great hand reached down through his mind, plucked up these thoughts and shook them until their skinny spine broke. He wouldn't let it be over. He had touched the world and he'd made it better. He'd freed people, saved lives, exposed fetid lies and learned soaring truths. He had rebelled against kings and resurrected a friend. And his power was too great to let it end here. He pumped Nether into his own body, strengthening his ribs, bolstering his blood. He sent it charging into his lungs, and it wasn't air, yet it was enough to let him see and think and move again. He tried to reach for his sword, but it was pinned against his thigh by the monster's teeth. He pounded his fists against its head, scrabbling for an eye. It grunted, a blast of foul air bubbling over his body, then spat him out. Dante knew he was still in incredible pain, but the removal of the crushing pressure felt like being reborn, and inhaling a full breath of air felt like winning a war. Through watering eyes, he watched as Blaze withdrew his sword from the monster's back, then stabbed it between two overlapping plates, wrenching one loose. Dante forged the shadows into a dark blade and rammed them through the hole Blaze had cut in the creature's hide. Blood showered into the trees. He ripped the nether toward him through the inside of the monster, shredding the flesh in a vortex of destruction. The creature reared back its neck in an S-shape. The nether exploded from its mouth in a hail of blood and teeth and pink goo. The monster went slack, collapsing into the water with a splash. Including its thick tail, it was thirty feet long, an enormous lizard with a broad, snake-like head. Blaze stood from its back, chest heaving. Did we just slay a dragon? Dante tried to answer, but his voice wouldn't work. Blaze hooked a hand under his armpit and hauled him halfway up the corpse. Get on top of it. If they kill our guide, we're as dead as this beast. Seeing Dante was in no immediate risk of drowning, he dived off the side of the monster. Through the trees, Dante glimpsed soldiers in green jabats firing arrows at Volo's canoe. She was nowhere to be seen. Something tugged at Dante's leg, which was still dangling in the water. He jerked his foot away, but the tugging repeated, followed immediately by more on his other leg. It was like something was pinching him with its fingernails or with little mouths. Swallowing down the urge to vomit, he scrambled for a handhold. The water frothed around him, red with blood. Silver scales flashed. A small fish darted for his hip, only for a whiskered red fish to dart forward and snatch the smaller fish in its teeth. Unseen others continued to tug at his legs, he grabbed tight to a knob on the beast's flank and tried to pull himself up, but the pain in his ribs was so punishing he slipped. He poured Nether into his side and heaved again, kicking his way up to the top of the monster's back. 
he looked down at his legs and fainted. After a period of warmness, he could see again. No thoughts yet, just a dull sense of confusion. People were screaming. But it wasn't him, was it? Right. His legs. They were still bare, but they were now pocked with dozens of red divots. Some ran deeper than they looked. He tried to wiggle his toes. His left foot did fine, but his right wasn't responding very well. Beyond the screen of trees, a man yelled out in triumph. Dante turned in time to see Blaze falling from the roof of the war canoe and diving into the water. But he was still holding onto both his swords. Good sign of life. A few bodies in green uniforms were floating face down by the canoe, the water around them boiling with fish. Others in the canoe took aim with their bows, trying to pick Blaze out from the dim water. Dante gathered the shadows in his hands and packed them into a ball. He sent it skimming along the water to plow through both hulls of the enemy vessel just at the waterline. Splinters twirled through the air, soldiers yelled out. One leaned over the hull to inspect the damage. Volo popped up from the arrow-riddled prow of her boat and loosed a slim arrow. It took the man in the ribs, dumping him into the water. Soldiers fired back on her, forcing her out of sight. Blaze reappeared in the war boat, stabbing a man in the back. Volo stood again, shooting a soldier as he charged at Blaze. Dante gestured to the nether, meaning to rain hell on the remaining enemies. But his vision went grey, and he crumbled to his side. He was bleeding heavily, inside and out. Woozily, he sent Nether streaming to the holes in his legs, filling them with drops of darkness. He'd mended countless cuts and broken bones, but replacing lost flesh took ten times the effort. After healing a few bites, he staunched the bleeding and the rest, and turned his focus toward the damage to his chest. His jabat was hanging off him in shreds, a row of puncture marks traced his upper chest, with another cutting across his hips. One by one, he erased the cuts in his skin, then delved beneath to mend the punctures to his organs. Once these felt stable, he glanced back at the war boat. Only a handful of soldiers were still standing. With Blaze blinking in and out of the shadows, and Volo sniping them from her canoe, the enemy would be wiped out within the minute. Though his torso wasn't fully mended, Dante switched back to the gouges in his legs, fearing they might never be healable if he didn't take care of them now. Shadows rolled to him in great waves and sank into the ragged bites, filling them with pale new flesh that left his legs spotted and dappled. Sweat broke across his forehead. Head swimming, he finished his right leg and moved to the left, starting with any damage deep enough to hobble him. His hold on the nether grew looser and looser. As he neared the end of his powers, he made a rough pass of the remaining bites, stopping up the remaining bleeding.
Hearing a splash behind him, he turned. The boat was silent. Bodies draped over gunnels and floating in the water, jerking as fish plucked at them from below. Volo stood in her canoe, looking forlorn. There was no sign of Blaze. Dante tried to stand for a better look, but the corpse of the monster bobbed beneath him, and his wobbly legs gave out. Blaze snapped into being in front of him. He'd shadow-walked across the waters to avoid the storm of fish within them. Blood spattered his limbs and clothes. He cracked a smile. Don't suppose you've got any arrow medicine left? He wavered. Dante's eyes lowered to his torso. A broken stick projected from the right side of Blaze's chest. A branch? How had he gotten a branch stuck to himself? And there was a second one in his stomach. Both spots sopped with blood. Realization flooded over Dante's reeling mind, horrific and ashamed. They weren't sticks, they were snapped-off arrow shafts. Dante reached for the shadows, but it was like trying to pick up the floor. He tried again, then a third time, working with the patient deliberateness of a barber shaving the king's neck. His next efforts were increasingly frantic. On other occasions, he'd been able to channel beyond his capacity at the cost of damaging himself, but he had nothing left to prime the pump with. As he understood what he was facing, cold panic prickled up his spine. His throat closed on itself. I'm out. Ah, Blaze said. Well, don't let Volo stick me in one of those cages, will you? There's no room to build a statue underneath. Blaze fell to his knees, clutching the broken shaft jutting from his stomach. He slumped backward, bent awkwardly. Volo was calling to them from the other side of the trees, but Dante barely heard it. Bile crept up his throat. He had nothing left. Too wrapped up in undoing the horror that had befallen him to imagine the others might wind up hurt, too. Sick anguish curled around his bones. For all that they'd been through, all of the ludicrous odds and fearsome powers they'd defeated, they'd been undone by a patrol of common soldiers, a wild animal, and a school of fish. He had healed himself quite thoroughly. But in that moment, he wanted to draw his knife, open his veins, and sink into the warm darkness. He would be alone in the pastlands. But once he muddled his way through to the mists, he could rejoin Blaze on their next journey. A memory snagged in his mind. The whiteness of the mists. Glimpses of mountain and ocean through the gaps in the fog. The light that came from everywhere, because everywhere was light. He closed his eyes, inhaling deeply, exhaling through his nose. Light shined through his eyelids. He blinked. 
A glowing speck hovered above his bloody palm. It was smaller than one of the fireflies they'd seen dancing in the night, but the dot expanded with every breath, growing to the size of a marble. His focus shuddered. The light twinkled, glowing translucent, shrinking on itself. Dante stared into it, his will hard enough to shatter steel. The light steadied, became opaque, and swelled to the size of a plum. Holding the light in his hand and mind, he saw the shape of what Blaze had been, unhurt and whole. The ether yearned to restore it. That was its entire purpose, to hold fast to order no matter how hard the storms of chaos battered against it. Just as Dante was doing as he gazed down on his dying friend. He nodded. The ether streamed toward Blaze, moving not with the turbulent torrent of the nether, but with linear precision, exactly like a shaft of sunlight beaming through a knot in a barn wall. It gathered around the base of one of the arrows and absorbed into Blaze's skin. The broken shaft pushed free from his chest and rolled to the side landing on the hide of the dead beast. The arrowhead was a cruel wedge of shaved bone. Dante sat back. While the nether was something you guided and channeled, he now saw that the ether was a process that unfolded on its own, like the blooming of a flower. Or better yet, like a magical book where, if you opened it to the page you wanted, it would begin to read itself. Carefully, he pointed the ball of ether down toward the arrowhead in Blaze's stomach. The light sank toward the wound, entering it. Though Dante didn't need to guide the healing process, while it was ongoing, he did have to continue to maintain the ether itself. This maintenance was demanding, almost frighteningly so. Fresh sweat beaded his temples and chest. His hands quivered. He could feel the core of his being wearing out, ready to collapse on itself. Already he was nearly done for. The ball of light evaporating down to a hazelnut, then to a delicate firefly. Dante was shaking like a leaf in a storm, but with a calm mind he rode the winds and hung on to the light. With a fleshy pop, the second arrowhead extruded from Blaze's gut. A pall of silence rolled across the swamp. It was the silence of the space between breaths, the silence of the moment after creation, the silence of a mind gone still in the wake of exhaustion. Blaze coughed himself upright. He spat blood looking impressed at the volume of mess he'd created, then grinned at Dante. That was just a joke. Oh, yeah, sorry about you bleeding to death, but I'm totally out of nether. You asshole. Dante tried to smile, 
but he couldn't seem to feel his face. The world was tilting. As he fell, his last thought was the hope that he wouldn't roll into the water. A bird was screeching like it had just been robbed in the street. He woke piece by piece, first his ears to the cry of the bird, then his nose to the smell of mud and flowers and decay, then the sweet ache of his muscles and the jabbing pain in his legs. He was lying in a hammock, suspended a handspan above the ground, on an island barely twenty feet across. He didn't see the canoe anywhere. The other hammocks were strung between the voluminous trees, but there was no sign of Blaze or Volo. His shredded jabat had been replaced with an older and shabbier one. He made a tentative gesture toward the nether. It responded cheerfully. Still feeling thoroughly banged up, Dante made a second pass at the worst pains in his chest and legs. There were a few shallow grooves in his left leg, but he no longer looked like a grub-riddled log. He stilled his mind. Nothing came. Refusing to let any annoyance or emotion of any kind disturb the pond-like placidity of his thoughts, he stared into his palm. A light glowed within it. Focusing on a single divot on his leg, he envisioned how it had once looked, and willed the ether to make reality match his memory. His skin tingled. The divot began to fill, but stopped short of disappearing entirely. Yet he felt like he still had a hold on the ether. Why couldn't he finish the healing? Because he lacked the skill? Or because the further removed in time an object got from its ideal state, the less the ether could do to restore it? Maybe it was... Something crashed down from the tall blue-leafed tree in the middle of the island. Dante shot to his feet and reached for his sword, but it was no longer hanging from his hip. Blaze dangled from a branch, swinging back and forth before letting go and landing in a crouch. You're awake, Blaze said. You're stating the obvious. In that case, you smell bad, and you're as pale as a fish's ass. You all right? There was enough blood on top of that lizard to fill a keg of really bad beer. Dante took a few steps around, bending his arms and legs. I appear to be remarkably well, considering I was partially devoured. Twice. As nice as it is to have anti-insect paste, what these people really need is something to ward off the enormous lizards. Where is Volo, anyway? Taking a peek ahead, we're starting to run low on a few little things, like food. We're low on rations. How long was I asleep? Hmm. Blaze did some counting on his fingers. Well, first there was the first day, then there was the second day. I was never much for schooling, but I'd say that makes two days. After the chaos of the encounter, Dante found the loss of time wasn't particularly disturbing. What was that thing? The lizard. Volo called it a swamp dragon. Interesting. 
The only problem with that is that dragons aren't real. Then apparently you got your ass kicked by your own imagination. I understand the act of getting swallowed can cloud your thinking, but did it ever occur to you to try killing it? I did. It was resistant to nether. Like the cappers? The cappers seemed impervious. This was more like I had to hit it with ten times the force to do one-tenth the damage. I've never run into anything like it. This reminds me. Blazer's pack was hanging from a branch of the tree. He opened it and retrieved a cloth-wrapped item a foot long and two inches in diameter. Volo said you should have this. What's this? Swamp dragon penis. Dante dropped it on the ground, skipping back a step. He swore. Is it actually a penis? It's a horn. Volo said that anyone who kills one of them should take it and carry it around. Sign of courage and all that. Supposed to protect you from evil, too. So be careful not to burn yourself with it. Dante bent to pick it up. The horn was black and slightly tapered, coming to a point at one end. Someday, when I'm looking up at this mounted on my wall, I'll smile and remember the day we finally left this awful place. He sat in his hammock, turning the horn in his hands. He brought a tendril of nether to him and probed the horn's surface, meaning to see if he could determine how it had shrugged off his attacks, and, with any luck, discover how to nullify its defenses on the chance they ran into another lizard. The probe sank a fraction of an inch into the surface before coming up against an unyielding screen. Blank. Smooth. Matte. But undeniably nether coating the horn from one end to the other. The shadows were stuck fast, like they were frozen. He could neither withdraw them from the horn or add to them. That appeared to explain the animal's toughness. This embedded nether was deflecting anything that came at it. You could wear it away if you struck the same spot hard and often enough, but the amount of force required would exhaust most nethermancers before they broke through. He was still examining the horn when Blaze croaked like a frog, indicating a boat was inbound. Dante moved to the north end of the island. Volo paddled toward them, bringing the canoe up onto a muddy landing. She hopped out the front and gawked at Dante. You're a sorcerer. You're deluded, he told her. You must have hit your head during the fighting and mistaken the stars you saw for magic. I know what I saw. You blew a hole right through their ship. They hit a rock. When Mr. Pendulous swam to you, he had two arrows sticking out of him. When I helped him get you into the canoe, he was fine. And so were you. But there was blood everywhere. Her young face twisted with anger and hurt. I'm not stupid. If you wanted me to not see, you should have blinded me with your sorcerous tricks. And if you can't let me know the truth, you should kill me right now. She stood across from him, feet apart, empty-handed. 
Dante grimaced. I need you to swear that this secret stays with you. What right do you have to tell me what to do with my own knowledge? I attained that right when I entrusted you with our safety and our ability to complete our mission. If you have any honor in you, swear you'll keep this secret. A smart person once told me honor is just something that powerful people use to stop you from acting in your own interests. In that case, we part ways here. Since you are paid to get us to Darabode, we'll take the canoe. He squelched through the muck toward the boat. Fine, Volo said. I swear to keep it secret. Bloody scales, do all sorcerers talk like you? Like what? Like you rule the world. Pretty much, Blaze said, although he makes something of an art of it. Volo gave Dante a quizzical look. How many people can you kill at a time? Dante rolled his eyes. That depends on how many stupid questions they ask. It's a lot, isn't it? Why would an investor send someone like you to chase down some dirty old sea captain? Aren't you worth much more than he is? Dante glanced at Blaze. Blaze said, You're right. That wouldn't make sense. He lifted a finger into the air. But if we're not soldiers, what makes you think the sea captain is really a sea captain? There are mysteries at work here, Volo. Mysteries within mysteries. All shall be revealed when the time is right. She regarded him solemnly. Is this a test sent to stretch my understanding, to remind me that what I'm told, even what I see, isn't always the truth? Could be. That's all part of the mystery, isn't it? What say we discuss this on the way to the village? Dante said. I'm starving. Blaze tilted his head. We're still doing this. Think it's a bad idea? Some might say that being attacked by a dragon, a squadron of soldiers, and a swarm of carnivorous fish might be the god's way of telling you it's a good time to turn back. We're alive, and we're not holding back anymore. We can do this. They packed up their things and shoved off from the island. Dante killed a dragonfly and sent it whirring ahead of them. Compared to the moths and beetles he was used to dealing with, it was as nimble as a falcon. The fish that attacked you, Volo said. Ziki Oko, world eaters. That's why you stay out of the water. Well, that's one of the reasons. Dante gazed down into the brown murk. Are they common? Wherever blood is shed so you might be seeing a lot of them. His airborne scout spotted a number of canoes and rafts, but nothing that resembled a patrol. Within three miles, sleepiness draped itself over Dante like a soaked cloak. He sat up straight, arching his back to ward it off, but his body was still recovering. Dante! Time had passed. Someone was shoving his shoulder. 
We could be in trouble. He swung upright. They were emerging from the shadow of the trees into a sunny clearing. In its center, dozens of rafts were lashed together. Green crops grew from the water. Four earthen mounds had been raised up, one of them supporting a formidable stone tower. It had the look of a thriving little community. Yet the only sounds on the air were those of the swamp. The frogs, the bugs, and the birds. Dante brought the nether to him. It came easily, sheathing his fingers. Two concentric rings of wooden posts encircled the village, extending two feet from the water. As Vola approached them, Dante made out a mesh net stretched between each pair of posts. Volo came to a gate, opened it, and paddled inside. An inner set of posts and nets still separated them from the settlement. What's this? Blaze leaned over to close the gate behind them. Keep the fish out. The outer net keeps the bad fish out. The inner keeps the good fish in. And the space between is filled with tiger fish. Dante caught a glimpse of something orange and whiskery drifting away from the boat. Vola came to the second gate and ferried them inside. To left and right, low dirt walls enclosed paddies of green stalks, sporting a handful of oversized teardrop-shaped leaves. The earthen walls were flat on top and wide enough to walk down, running to a wooden dock fronting the collection of rafts. A few trees provided shade from the sun, which was otherwise plentiful, making the settlement smell less miasmic than the swamp around it. Volo brought them to the dock and tied up the canoe. They got out, sandals thumping on the boards. On the other side of the dock, bodies bobbed gently in the water. Others were sprawled on rafts limbs trailing over the sides. Two hundred at a glance. Dante ran across the dock to the nearest of them, grabbing the woman's jabat and heaving her up onto the boards. Water streamed from her pale face. Her eyes weren't blinking, and her skin was the same temperature as the water. A deep gash across her stomach threatened to spill her cooling organs across the dock. Bolo slapped her hand to her forehead. I was just here. Dante scanned the wide clearing. How long ago? Did you see anything out of the ordinary? Such as a massacre taking place? It was fine. They were working, fishing. Blaze put a hand on her shoulder. Did you know any of them? I knew all of them. Her reddened face crumpled. I knew. She broke into tears, sinking to the dock. Dante watched for a moment. Aware there was nothing he could do for her, he went to the bodies instead. He'd seen enough massacres to know that there were often a few survivors, but most of these people had been dumped into the water. Even if they hadn't bled to death, they would have drowned. After he'd been investigating the bodies for a few minutes, Volo recovered enough to help the search. 
They went from raft to raft. Nothing but corpses. The front of the stone tower hung open. Dante sent a dragonfly inside. Blood spattered the first and second floor. On the top floor, bodies lay in a heap against the back wall. Dante went up to check them in person, while the others kept watch on the grounds. The corpses were women and children. No survivors. He returned to the sunshine of the late morning, wiping his nose and eyes, as if that would cleanse them of the sight and smell of the blood. Whole village, he said. Blaze nodded. Soldiers. Animals would have chewed them up, dragged them off. Had to have been people. Injuries almost look animal, though. All the puncture wounds. Spears, Dante said. They don't have a lot of iron here. Even their soldiers were using bone-tipped arrows. And what about the ripped-up guts? That I don't know. Maybe we should ask. Over here! Volo shouted. Help! They ran toward her, jumping from raft to raft. She kneeled inside a shack, hand on the back of a young boy, his eyes staring blankly. He looked to be about twelve, but every Tenarian looked younger to Dante. The boy said nothing as Dante checked him over. He showed a few scrapes and bruises, but nothing to be concerned about. Volo spoke with him in soft, quick words, mixing Malish with a local dialect. Within a minute, he was making shy eye contact with the three of them. His name is Tap, Volo said. I knew his family. Dante gazed down at the boy. Do you know who did this? The boy glanced up quickly, then spoke in a soft, worn-out voice. The soldiers, they came in their boats, and they told us to gather on the dock. They wanted to know, they asked, who killed the others. But nobody knew what they meant. The soldiers, they kept asking who did it, and the people kept telling them they didn't know. Then one of the soldiers said, he lowered his eyes, thinking. He said, this is punishment for your treason. That's when they started to... Tap choked up. Dante gave him a few moments to recover. How did you escape? I hid under the water. I breathed through a reed we use when we're spearing fish. Was there anyone else with you? The boy shook his head. Let's get him out of here, Dante said. There's nothing more to see here. Volo swung her head to the side. You want to leave? No, I want to get the food we came for and then leave. They butchered these people. We have to find them. You can kill them. 
And then what? Another group of soldiers are sent to slaughter another village in retaliation. This isn't fair. These people did nothing. She advanced on him, jabbing her finger at his chest. They died because of what we did. Dante squeezed his eyes shut. At that moment, he would have rather taken a swim in a tub full of Ziki Oko than get roped into another internecine bloodbath. But he had no idea how to express that without sounding like a complete asshole. He's right, Blaze said. We've seen this a hundred times. If we go after the culprits, the crown will fall on you like a drunken mountain. These people are dead, and we're going to honor their deaths by not doing anything to get more innocents killed in the name of vengeance. But justice is only what we make of it, she said. If we sail away, what does that make us? Dante could only shake his head. Years ago, he'd harbored the same burning wrath she was feeling right now. If he'd been ten years younger, he probably would have gone ripping off into the swamps to track down the killers and chum the waters with their guts. He told himself that path led only to more ruin. But did he reject it because he was wiser? Or because after he'd risked everything to help the Colin Basin, only for them to turn on him the moment it was convenient, he no longer cared about anyone's troubles but his own. A tear slipped down Volo's face. It makes us cowards. But she went with them, nonetheless, gathering food from the village and stashing it in the canoe. As they padded away, the sun shined warmly on the waters and the dead alike. They moved onward with cold purpose, and the grim knowledge that even if they found Neron and executed Gladic, they would walk away from Tanara Tain, leaving some crimes unavenged. Dante scouted the way ahead with a small armada of dragonflies and water striders. Following the sinking of the war canoe and the massacre at the village, soldiers prowled the swamps constantly, forcing Volo to backtrack and detour down obscure paths, barely wide enough to permit their canoe. As they squeezed through the shrubs, ticks gathered on the tips of the branches and flung themselves at the warm human bodies. Sometimes when a patrol neared, there were no alternate routes for Volo to flee through, requiring Dante to harvest a solid wall of brambles around the canoe, hiding them until the threat had passed. They kept tap with them. Volo had a friend in the capital who she wanted to hear the boy's story. But the boy made no trouble. If anything, he was so quiet and pliable, Dante worried that the things he'd seen in the village had cored what was vital inside him, leaving behind a shell of flesh that could only sometimes remember that it had once been something more. 
When he wasn't securing their path, Dante studied both the swamp dragon horn and the ether. No matter how he approached it, the horn's nether remained immobile, yet its presence reminded him of the Chardon. He had a wild idea that if he learned how to access the stored shadows, he might be able to make himself resistant to nether, just as the dragon had been. But for the moment, that remained no more than sheer speculation. He had better luck with the ether. He could still only command a highly limited portion of the light, but he seemed to have unlocked a more precise control of what he had to work with. The night after they'd gotten back on their way, he broke a small twig, leaving it dangling from the branch, then let the emptiness fill him. The twig glowed, straightened, and reattached itself to the tree. The following day, one of his dragonflies entered a clearing. Another raft village was spread across a broad expanse of paddies and docks, protected by the two-part net fences. A team of soldiers watched from the shade as villagers waded into the shallows, cast strange plough-like objects into the water, and dredged up loads of silt, constructing a new paddy. Every time a worker crawled out of the water, leeches spangled their legs and trunks. The soldiers watched impassively. If a worker took too long resting in the shade, they were dragged across the dock and shoved back into the water. Dante didn't tell Volo what he'd seen. Dawn came slow, the sky oppressed by black clouds. The air was as still as crystallized ether. Two hours into the day's voyage, the clouds opened as if they'd been slit. Rain slammed through the canopy, battering Dante's scouts to bits. He tried slaying a small pink fish and sending it ahead of them, but it couldn't see far enough through the water to be worth the effort. Abrupt flashes of light speared through the rain-racked trees, followed by the boom of thunder. Rain gathered in the bottom of the canoe, obliging them to bail it out with a bowl. With hours of daylight left, Volo gathered them onto the shore of a nondescript island. You get out here. No offense, Blay said, examining the trees. But your people didn't choose a very glamorous spot for their capital. Their capital's two miles from here, fool. That's why you have to get out now. You'll have to forgive me. When we hired you to take us to Dara Bode, I stupidly assumed that meant you'd take us to Dara Bode. If I did that, they'd catch us, and all three of us would wind up in the dungeons. Or was that how you planned to meet your friend? Dante brushed a strand of damp hair from his brow. Why don't we use the same trick we used to get out of Arisosis? She gave him a look like he'd suggested an archery contest using themselves as targets. Is your head full of mud? What business would I have bringing two dead hardy into the capital? Then what are you going to do instead? Tell you to get out and wait here. 
Only I hadn't planned on you being defiant and ruining everything. Dante pressed his lips together and debarked, bringing his gear with him. Once he and Blaze were ashore, Volo gave them a nod and shoved off, disappearing north into the driving rain. They strung their cloaks between some shrubs and huddled beneath them. After an hour, Dante went down to the banks, slew a water strider, and sent it skimming a few hundred yards in the direction Volo had gone. As it surveyed the waters for incoming boats, Dante cursed himself for not sending a fish to follow Volo into the city. Their cloaks sagged with rain, dripping on them. A short while later, one tore free from the shrub, exposing them to the downpour. Dante sighed, crouching in the muck. How long do you suppose we should wait here? That depends, Blaze said, on how long it'll take you to build a boat. Why am I the one doing the building? Would you trust me to build a boat? I'd probably build the keel on the top and the deck on the bottom. In fact, I don't even know what either of those words mean. Thunder rumbled sporadically, like the rantings of a drunk man who kept falling asleep mid-sentence, only to snap awake and continue his ravings a few seconds later. As the grey skies dimmed, a large outrigger canoe appeared in the water strider's sight. The boat was painted bold yellow and trimmed with pale blue. It sported a figurehead of an angry-looking fishing bird with a crested head. Lean men in yellow jabats paddled on through the rain. The outrigger came to a stop within a hundred yards of their island. The captain of the vessel stood and peered about. He bore a delicate moustache. Wispy as it was, it was the most facial hair Dante had seen since entering Tanaratane. Sir Spendeles and Smallhorn, the man announced. My name is Botuin. I have been sent by Volo to retrieve you. He gazed across the hazy swamp. I'm getting soaked, sirs. Might want to come out before I decide to go home and dry off. Keeping the nether in easy reach, Dante moved from behind a tree. Over here. The canoe made landing. Bo had brought clean jabats for them, powder blue with a shovel-shaped icon on the breast. They changed behind a shrub. They came back to find the captain gazing up at the rain-lashed branches. The trees protect us from storms such as these, Bo said. Give us fruit and such, too. You could say the trees seem to care for us. If so, suppose we've got any obligation to care for them. Dante and Blaze exchanged a look. Blaze cleared his throat, deciding it was his turn to handle the Danakide duties. Or, possibly, he just wanted to. He did seem to get a kick out of discussing things he didn't care about in the slightest. Depends, doesn't it? Blaze paced thoughtfully, sandals squelching in the mud. If a man comes by my house and steals some old firewood I'd been meaning to get rid of, he's done me a favor. But do I really owe him anything for it? 
Bow pursed his lips. So, we'd have to figure out if the trees intend to help us. I'll have to ask them sometime. He grinned, opening a knapsack. The greeting seemed to be over already. Either Bo wasn't much for formalities, or he didn't think they had time to indulge in them. He produced a pair of looped ropes. Pardon the shackles, he said, but your escaped Hari, being returned to the estate of Dorisa, your master. The man grinned wider. Don't worry, sirs, the Doe is a very merciful man. Frowning, Dante allowed himself to be bound. Men with the bearing of bodyguards helped them into the canoe. The bodyguards tossed Dante and Blaze's cloaks into the water and slipped their swords onto their own belts. In soft Gascon, Dante said, Are we being arrested for real? These days, I've been arrested enough that it doesn't bother me, Blaze said. But if he says he's sorry, but he has to pretend kill us, that's when I'll complain. The rowers pulled hard, racing to the north. Once they were underway, Bo made his way back to them, holding onto the mast for support. Stay quiet through the gates. Your questions will be answered at the Doe's estate. Dante nodded. Who is this Doe-Reza? What's his interest in us? I am but an agent of the hand, sir. Have you ever seen a talking hand? One time, Blaze said. I've sworn off Galadie's gin ever since. Dante sat back and resolved not to worry about anything until they'd arrived at their destination. The way forward soon grew littered with rafts and the half-sunken wreckage of them. It was still raining hard as the trees opened before them, and they looked on the great city of Darabode. The city was composed of a series of concentric rings. The outermost was a stretch of open water, about four hundred feet across. Where it touched the forest, the branches were neatly chopped back. Large, round areas were enclosed with nets, Dante suspected they were fish pens. They came to another ring of two net fences. A gate stood across the outer net, wide enough to allow the entry of one of the big barges they'd seen wallowing through the waterways. Bo spoke to the green-uniformed guards there, who gave Dante and Blaze a close look, then added a few knots to the little string board they used to keep records. The guards waved them through the two sets of gates and into the next ring, a sprawling patch of aquatic farmland. Paddies of the teardrop-leafed plants alternated with stands of short green-trunked trees growing in tight clusters. These bore extremely long rectangular leaves, some of which had tattered into thin strips. Squat green fruit grew in heavy bunches bananas. Dante had seen them in the plagued islands. Even in the rain, a skeleton crew of laborers was out among the plants, using bone-headed hose to uproot purplish roots from the paddies. Others inspected the banana trees. Wherever they spotted fruit starting to turn yellow, they hacked down the entire tree 
and cut loose the bunch. The canoe navigated through the farms and into a manic sprawl of rafts. People sat under roofs of banana leaves, sheltering from the rain as they passed around bowls of food, tossed dice, which seemed to exist in every land Dante had visited, and fooled about with cubic wooden frames, strung with innumerable threads and shiny glass beads. If not for the rain, the noise of their boisterous arguments would have been deafening. Dante crinkled his nose, but the smell of the city was oddly minimal and largely overpowered by the scent of the rain. Clear lanes were maintained through the raft slums. They sliced forward, coming to another ring of wooden platforms supporting simple homes and shops. There was a general lack of smoke. In the few places it was rising, people waited in line carrying covered clay pots and strings of uncooked fish waiting to make use of the communal kitchens. After so long on the water, Dante could smell the damp earth ahead. Past the platforms, manors of dark brick stood on artificial islands, protected from unwanted traffic by brick walls. Wooden watchtowers rose from the corners of the islands. Further ahead, stone towers defied the stormy sky. The canoe pulled up to an island dock. The men hopped out and helped Dante and Blaze, who were still shackled, debark without falling into the water. They were brought through a wooden gate and into a courtyard of ludicrously hued flowers. There, Beau passed them off to a servant named Key, who brought them to a sparse sitting room and informed them that the doe would see them shortly. Key removed the ropes from their wrists, but he didn't yet return their swords. Blaze took in the pastel hangings and the bamboo benches along one wall. This room's a little too nice to hack us to bits in, isn't it? Whoever the doe is, he hasn't brought us here to murder us, Dante said. He'll want something from us, something he can't do for himself. Pick his own crops. The door opened. A guardsman entered, followed by a slim tenarian in a tailored yellow jabat and black sandals with straps that rose to his knee. A second guard brought up the rear. Dante offered a shallow bow to Riza, but the man waved him off. What good does bowing do for anyone? Riza said. I know my place. Do I need you to show it to me? If I need you to bow, doesn't that imply I wouldn't be a lord if you didn't? Doesn't that grant you power over me? Sure, Blaze answered. Right up until the moment you remember the extra special power granted to you by the armed gentleman you brought into the room with you. The lord smiled. I am Dodiza and I expect you're wondering why you're here. The answer is simple. I desire more connections with Malon. I understand you carry some very strong ones. We don't represent King Charles, Dante said, nor any of the major lords. Glad to hear it, since I was to understand you work with merchants. 
Just as you had trouble getting into our nation, some of us have trouble getting things out of it. I'm not talking about anything untoward. I'm talking about simple trade. You can't do this through Arisosis. I should be able to, shouldn't I? Though my goods, I should have the right to sell them where I please. That's what most of us believe. Riza clasped his hands and paced across the room. Yet shouldn't a king have the right to govern what comes in and out of his kingdom? When there's a dispute between these rights, shouldn't the king's will prevail? If I answer yes, Blaze said, does that mean the two of us illegal foreigners should leave? Forgive the suggestion, but isn't this the sort of thing you should have worked out before you smuggled us into your manor? I'm about to make a vital decision. How can I be sure I'm making the right choice if I don't test my beliefs against other arguments? Well, let me know when you've worked it out. In the meantime, got any wine? Riza smiled thinly. I have decided that a king doesn't necessarily make decisions based on what's best for his kingdom. Sometimes he makes decisions based on what's best for himself. We will proceed. Regarding Ardis Osis, trade through its port is highly regulated. For a person in my predicament, it's made much easier if outsiders approach my agents seeking trade. Dante nodded. What if our employers were to come to Arisosis looking for something only you can provide? Then I would be well positioned to secure the right to provide it. We can start small. Once the stream's flowing, it'll be easier to divert it into other areas. Our superiors would be happy to expand their reach into Tanaritane. But isn't it dangerous for you to be working directly with a pair of outlaw Hari who've infiltrated the capital itself? That depends on what you intend to do here. Dante was suddenly aware that he didn't know how much Riza knew. Right now we don't even know why our associate was arrested. Once we've determined that, we might be able to broker a deal with the authorities— but we'll need a go-between. Or I could get you a permit to speak with them yourselves. There are permits for this. Why didn't they tell us this in Arisosis? Because it requires the favor of a doe, which I'm guessing you lacked. Even then, it would have been difficult to acquire until you were here in person. Get us our permit, and we'll get you your partners in Malin. Riza grinned and entwined his fingers with Dante's in a way that suggested the braid of a rope. Either this was the Tenarian way of shaking hands, or Riza was crazy. He made various promises about beginning the process of securing them a permit, then left them in the company of Key, the servant, who showed them upstairs to a pair of rooms decorated with dyed pieces of glass— and wall hangings that vaguely resembled harps made of dangling knotted strings. Okay, I'll ask the obvious question, Blaze said, once they were alone. Do we trust him? 
Dante picked up a green glass figurine, shaped like a rearing swamp dragon. He was awfully fast to help. That makes you less suspicious. There are political rifts here. We've seen them firsthand. If we're lucky, we just might be able to get Neron out of here without a fight. Are you betting on that vanishingly unlikely outcome? If so, hold still while I find some dice, so I can part you from the rest of your money. I'm not counting on it. In fact, I'm going to explore other options right now. Dante sent for Key, asking where foreign prisoners were typically held. After Dante repeatedly assured Key that he wouldn't use that information to go running around the city unescorted, Key informed him that foreigners of note were kept in the Blue Tower, which was within bowshot of the Bastion of Last Acts, all of which was a little bit to the north. Before leaving, Key noted that even if Dante did try to sneak out, he would find it impossible to reach the tower. Dante's mattress was elevated on a short wooden platform, presumably to reduce his exposure to bugs. He poked around underneath it and found an oval-shaped red beetle. He killed it with a pin of nether and bound it to himself. He was afraid it was going to have to make the journey on foot, but when he opened the shutter, he discovered the rain had slowed to a manageable rate. He sent the beetle north. It gained altitude slowly, fighting hard against the rain. It trundled over sloped rooftops, speckled with water barrels. Dante had seen a number of cities from above this way, and the view never ceased to delight him. The way the neighborhoods blended and shifted, the patches of greenery, the spokes and veins of the streets, or, in this case, waterways. What it exposed was that there was no single unifying plan, yet there was order nonetheless, one that emerged as the people who lived in a place built on the past and each other, forming everything from miserable slums to the soaring spires of cathedrals. Ahead, the islands and manors stopped cold. They weren't in the innermost ring of the circle. There were three more, a narrow band of dirt, another stretch of open water, and then, in the very center of the city, a walled fortress several times larger than the sealed citadel. This, presumably, would be the Bastion of Last Acts. A dock extended from its front gate, but even though there was no real way to deliver siege engines to it, the painted iron doors looked strong enough to outlast time itself. Rather than the brick used elsewhere in the city, the fortress's walls were made of faintly blue granite blocks. There was both an inner and an outer curtain wall, regularly spaced with towers, along with a generous bailey and an intimidating keep. It was all very impressive. Really, given the general lack of large-scale fortifications elsewhere in Tain, its scale struck Dante as a little ostentatious. As soon as he looked for it, the blue tower was obvious. A tall building of stone so blue it had to be dyed. It was set apart from the main fortress by a span of twenty feet. A wooden crane-like object had been arrested on the bastion's nearest tower. 
It appeared capable of lowering a wide plank across the gap to the blue tower. Windows ringed the tower's periphery. Little more than slits, but plenty wide enough for a beetle. Dante went from cell to cell. In Narashtivik, the dungeons only held a handful of souls at any given time. But here, each cell held at least one prisoner, and usually two to four, which hardly gave them the space to all lie down at once. Dante only had to travel one floor down to find him. Neron sat alone against the back wall of his cell. He looked as gaunt as a desiccated lemon, his eyes open but unmoving. Cuts scattered his face, arms, chest, and the soles of his feet. They had been precisely drawn. Found him, Dante said in a low rasp. They've been hurting him. Blazer's jaw tightened. Bad. Nothing that can't be healed. Ah, good. Can I kill them anyway? No more incidents. If we can't talk or bribe him out, we're grabbing him and getting the hell out of here. That sounds so reasonable, Blaze said. And yet, I have the uncontrollable urge to dull my swords on jailers' skulls. Dante flapped the beetle back and forth in front of Neron's face, but the captain didn't so much as glance at it, or blink. Suddenly afraid he was sitting up dead, Dante landed the beetle and confirmed Neron's chest was rising and falling. This accomplished, Dante turned the beetle in a circle, searching for anything small he could pick up, but the cell was swept clean. Dante trundled under the door and into a neighboring cell. Those with three or four people inside were scattered with dried reeds to soak up any fluids the cellmates might find objectionable enough to start screaming about. Dante grabbed a shred of reed in the beetle's jaws, laboriously dragging it under the door and back to Neron's cell. Neron still hadn't looked over but Dante was already planning to go so far as to spell out his entire message, then bite Neron's foot with the beetle. He sent the bug out for a second mouthful of reed, then a third. He'd almost finished spelling Neron's name when footsteps whispered in the hallway. A key chittered in the lock. The door swung outward. A tall man stepped inside a plain gray robe swirling around his long limbs. Gladick cranked his cadaverous face into a smile and turned it on Neron. Chapter 22 Less than two miles away, Dante choked on his own spit. He's right here. Blaze made a show of looking around the guest room. Thoughtful of Neron to save us from Gladick! Gladick! In the cell, Gladick tucked his hands into his sleeves and gazed down at Neron. Are you aware that the Bannardin considers it an offense to keep every promise that one makes? Neron said nothing. Gladick took a step toward him, lips slightly parted to show the tips of his teeth. 
You are receiving spiritual wisdom, sirrah. It is polite to not interrupt, but it is rude not to listen. Neron's eyes shifted toward the priest. Gladick waited a moment, then nodded. Time grants the measures. Among these is time, and it is a property of time to change things. When one makes a promise to do something, that promise is specific to the context in which it is made. Yet later, when it comes time to fulfill that promise, time will have changed the context in which it is now to be fulfilled. Sometimes it no longer makes any sense to honor that promise. But men will do so anyway, mistakenly believing that this serves their own sense of honor. The Barnardin states that this is a falsehood, for time has changed things. Since Tame has purposely allotted time to enact these changes, when you defy time, you defy tame. Gladick allowed Neron to absorb this, then went on, Thus, to honor tame, I do not keep all of my promises. In fact, I scorn those who do. But I kept this promise. I have returned. Nothing has changed. Neron's voice grated like an iron plate dragged over cobbles. If you wish to get from here to the Isle of Fanshane, that I can tell you how to do. But I can't tell you how they destroyed your demons. You believe this is about me, don't you? You pox-cocked sailor. This is about the world. And your wish to control it? Gladick went still for five long seconds. How strong is your friendship with them? Neron snorted, eyes flashing. Do you even understand friendship? Answer my question, or answer to the knives. I consider them my friends. I hope they think the same of me. Then I think we will test this. We shall see that they know where you are, and then see whether they care to come get you. What do you think of this? I think... As Naren spoke, Gladick glanced directly at the beetle. Dante severed his connection to it, senses returning to the room in Risa's manner. Gladick's in the cell with Naren, he said. They've been torturing him, trying to get him to tell them how we fought the Andrak. Either Neren doesn't know, or he's got a spine of steel, but he looks broken. Then it's only fair that we break something of Gladick's. Should we start with his face and work our way down? The good news is that he has no idea we're here. He wants to use Neren to lure us down here, then get the answers out of us. So he can fix up his demons and take a second run at obliterating every native citizen of Colin? Presumably. We're going to have to think of a way to off him without ruining our efforts to petition the rulership. Blaze gave him a level look. The petition's out the window. 
Gladick's paranoid enough that if he fears foreigners are speaking to the Drakebane, he'll pop by for a look. When he sees us, he'll bring the throne room down on our heads. So we grab Neren, then take a run at Gladick. Or just grab Neren. Either way, we can't tell Reza to call off the petition. It wouldn't make any sense. That means we need to get this done before we get invited to see the officials. Then it's a good thing it takes less time to grow a new orchard than it does to schedule a meeting with high officials. Dante paced around the room, head tilted up at the ceiling. How do we get to Naren? Well, you can start by telling me anything at all about the place we're breaking into. Dante described the general layout of the Bastion of Last Acts. The Blue Tower shouldn't be that hard to get into. This isn't the High Tower of the Tauren. It's just your ordinary pile of stone. It's surrounded by water, but we could always swim out to it. Swim? When you're in the water, and you move your arms and legs because you suspect drowning might be unpleasant. Do you suppose a ruler who builds a giant castle surrounded by an even gianter moat isn't going to fill that moat with the plentiful water horrors these swamps are literally swimming with? Right. So how do we figure that out? Other than dipping a toe in the water and seeing if we pull back a stump. Blaze shrugged. Rat. 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 Ah. Dante said. Rat. He called for key and received permission to go take the air in one of the island's many courtyards. While he pretended to admire a topiary of pink flowers trimmed in the shape of a thick serpent, he surreptitiously murdered a rodent digging at the base of the house. Once he'd revived it, he sent it scampering to the north end of the island, where it jumped into the water and continued swimming until it reached the ring of earth enclosing the bastion. Dante lowered its head close to the moat. The water was cloudy from all the rain, but he could make out the outlines of several placid, carp-shaped creatures lurking around and not causing any particular trouble. He backed the rodent up a few steps, then ran forward and leaped into the water with a rat-sized splash. Through its beady little eyes, the blue tower looked as tall as a mountain and as distant as the moon. It churned its paws, holding its nose above the water out of habit. Something tugged at it from below. Dante sighed and instructed it to keep going. A few seconds later, another tug jerked it to the side. The water frothed madly. If the rat had been capable of feeling pain, it would be squealing loud enough to make the dead wake up and tell it to shut up. Within a minute, its bones were sinking to the bottom, taking Dante's spirits with them. His link to the creature fizzled away. Zikioko, he muttered. Swimming's out. Unless you want to try scaring Gladick to death with our spooky skeletons. Blaze thumbed his chin. What's about the skeletons? Seeing as our flesh and guts require those skeletons to move around, I think it would be unwise to separate ourselves from them. Not ours. The rats. Do the fish eat the bones? They might. 
It wouldn't surprise me if they'd eat a steak, the bone inside it, and the plate beneath it. Would it be too much trouble to find out? I mean, if you're not too busy petting the flowers over here. It took him a few moments to locate another rat. Blaze kept watch while Dante flensed it. Once it was down to bloody bones, Dante reanimated them and lobbed them into the water. They sank into a dark, burbly confusion. Once it touched bottom, Dante sent it dawdling forward, stumbling over roots and unseen debris. An hour later, it nosed up onto the banks of the rampart enclosing the moat and looked around. Seeing no nearby observers, it ran across the dirt and jumped into the Ziki Oko-filled waters. A few silvery fish darted up to it and took exploratory nips at its flanks and limbs, then drifted away, uninterested. Bones work, Dante said. So what? How do we get Neron out of there with a measly rat skeleton? Blaze plucked a black flower and sniffed its center. That depends on whether Volo can get us a rope. Dante made an inquiry with Key, who informed him that Volo was currently out on business, but that he would see she got Dante's message. As the clouds dimmed, they were summoned to eat in a wood-panelled dining chamber. Pink and white fish were served on plates of powder-blue glass. They were also brought frog's legs, which Dante privately designated as tasting of the worst parts of both chicken and fish. I've made my initial inquiry, Riza informed them. It wasn't rebuffed. Assuming everything proceeds smoothly, I expect to attain an audience within two weeks. Two weeks? Blaze said. You tenarians move with the swiftness of stallions. In Bressel, I'm still waiting to hear back on some inquiries I made three pairs of boots ago. Preoccupied though Dante was, the meal was a highly pleasant one, with Doe Reza asking any number of penetrating questions about malish politics and commerce. Through a combination of vagueness, fabrication, and the odd fact, Dante and Blaze skated their way through the discussion. When the ice they treaded grew thin, Dante pushed the conversation onto Tanara Tain, and what Riza might be able to offer a trade partner. Riza waxed at length about Darabod's glass industry and the multiple workshops he operated. The wealthy are always happy to throw silver at exotic new baubles, Blaze said, after Riza had claimed Tanarian glassblowers were the best on the continent. But while their fickleness can be a virtue when it allows us to conjure up new trends from thin air, it also makes them apt to flee en masse when something spooks them. Your country is fascinating, but I've detected an undercurrent of... He gestured searchingly. Conflict. Riza smiled. Then you're not blind. There is dissatisfaction among some of my countrymen. They believe the vanguard of the Drakebane enforces ways of life that haven't been necessary in generations. They argue that years of peace and plenty have proven that the old strictures are outdated. But does this necessarily follow? What if we have peace because of these strictures? 
And this proves the Drakebane, in fact, does his duty very well. Fine questions all around, but here's the one my superiors will be concerned about. Are these divisions serious enough to disrupt trade? The Lord made a rolling motion with his shoulders. If the Drakebane misreads the current, his opponents could become disruptive. But the swamps are deeper than anyone knows. In hidden waters, there are always other paths. They moved on to other matters. When dinner concluded, Key informed Dante that Volo had arrived. She was waiting for him in a courtyard that seemed to serve as a foyer for those who weren't good enough to enter the manor itself. We need a rope, Dante told her, of highest quality Tenarian fiber. She gave him a dubious look. The best rope comes from the Hannah Oso family, and it goes for an ounce of silver per foot. Correction. We need a rope of second highest quality, Tenarian fiber. He handed her a small sack of silver. Just make sure it's light and strong. Those are the only qualities good rope has. If you're such an expert on ropes, then I'm sure you'll get me a great one. I need it by tomorrow night. Then we're also going to need a ride to the Bastion and out of Darabod. Can you do that? If this is what I think it is, I can do anything you need. She jogged off into the darkness. Dante spent the next day surveilling both the Bastion of Last Acts and the Blue Tower. Right after dawn, and shortly before sunset, the crane-like contraption on the nearby turret was lowered, creating a bridge between it and the Blue Tower. During these times, guards and servants arrived to serve food, swap buckets, and clean out cells and the occasional corpse. Otherwise, the prison tower was left to itself. That night, Riza provided them a Tenarian spirit called Adayin. It was made from Ada, the plants they grew in the paddies. The liquor was a cloudy purple and tasted mildly sweet. Dante drank as sparingly as he could, but by the time the house went quiet and he and Blaze stole down to the dock to find Volo, his head was still a little loose on his neck. Volo waited in her canoe. They nodded to each other and embarked. She paddled away with the stealth of someone who'd spent her life on the water. The night smelled like rain and mud and snails frying in nut oil. It was raining again, and they only passed one other canoe on their way to the bastion. Volo guided them up to the mound encircling the fortress. A brick retaining wall rose to a height of four feet. Carefully, Blaze stood, got a hold on the top of the wall, and pulled himself up. Dante followed. They flattened themselves to the dirt as Volo pushed off, heading for the lee of a nearby island. The moat was two hundred feet across to the front dock of the bastion, but the distance to the blue tower was half that. Dante had brought a pillowcase with him. He upended it, spilling a cohort of skeletal rats to the dirt. They looked up, expectantly. He set up a coil of rope and nicked his left arm. Moving his mind into the inner retaining wall, 
he opened a narrow hole in one of the bricks, burrowed half a foot into the hard-packed dirt beyond, then turned and ran parallel to the wall's surface. After two feet, he looped back toward the wall, emerging through a second hole two feet from the first one. He nodded to one of the rats. It took one end of the rope in its teeth and lowered itself down the wall, reaching one of the holes. It scampered inside, dragging the rope behind it. A few moments later, it emerged from the second hole. As Blaze leaned over the side and tied the rope fast, Dante sealed the dirt and bricks tight around it. With one end secured, he motioned to the team of rats. They bit down on the free end of the rope, pulled it to the edge and plopped into the water. On the bank, the rope uncoiled inch by inch as the submerged rats dragged it forward. A nerve-wrackingly long time later, dim white shapes appeared at the base of the blue tower. Dante coaxed a finger of stone from the side of the building. Using the rat's eyes for guidance, concentrating with everything he had, he wrapped the prehensile stone around the end of the rope. Barely able to feel what he was doing, he slid the rocky finger, now a loop, up the blue granite. Once it was eight feet up the side of the tower, he pulled the rope into the thick wall, embedding it firmly before clamping the rock down as hard as he could. Well, Blaze said, now to find out if you should have sprung for that Hannah Oso rope. He unpocketed a short length of finger-thick cordage, looping it over the main rope and through the belt of his jabat. Once it was knotted tight, Blaze spit on his hands and shimmied out on the rope, hanging beneath it. As he advanced, the rope sagged, lowering him closer to the black moat. Dante's attention darted back and forth between the two sections of brick and dirt anchoring the rope, seeking any sign that they were about to crumble. Hand over hand, Blaze crossed to the other side, hunkering down on the narrow lip of earth surrounding the base of the blue tower. Dante had sobered to the exact wrong point, where his head was still muddled, but not so much that it gave him any extra courage. He tied himself to the rope, grabbed on, and swung out over the moat. Cool air floated from the water. The rope was neither rough enough to hurt his hands or smooth enough to make him lose his grip. It was light and strong, too, without too much give to it. Really, it was remarkably woven. As he climbed forward, he had the rather absurd thought that he should try to import some to Narashtovic. A third of the way across, he glanced down. Flecks of silver moved on the surface. At first, he attributed this to the moonlight, but he'd never seen moonlight swim in expectant circles. He cursed and continued on. Halfway across, with the rope sagging him within two feet of the water, something splashed beneath him. Looking down, he glimpsed a fish springing into the air, tail flapping, jaws snapping. He would have sworn he could count every one of its arrowhead-shaped teeth. He continued on gaining a few inches in elevation as he came closer to the tower. Another minute and he swung his feet down to solid ground. He made doubly sure that his footing was solid before he untied himself from the rope. 
Blaze flashed a grin that looked a little too close to one of the Ziki Oko, then vanished. Dante listened to the frogs. Moments later, Blaze reappeared a quarter turn around the outside of the tower, beckoning Dante over. Dante joined him, flicking the scab off his arm to feed the nether anew. He nearly squeezed a drop of blood into the water to taunt the fish, imagining the sound of the entire moat boiling. He thought better of it, and proceeded with the business of creating an opening through the wall of the tower. The smell of sewage wafted from inside. They entered a room of barrels and boxes, pausing to let their eyes adjust to the near total darkness. The sky bridge to the blue tower had been pulled up hours ago, and Dante was virtually certain the interior was unguarded. But he sent one of his skeletal rats bounding up the stairwell, placing a second to stand guard in the portal he'd opened to the outside. He took the lead up the dank stairwell. Pale, chubby lizards clung to the walls. Dante exited on the penultimate floor. Behind one of the doors, a man sang softly to himself, voice dimming to nothing, as if the man had forgotten where he was, before resuming with the next line. Naren's cell was clasped shut. Dante struck the lock with a blade of nether and stepped inside. The singing stopped. It had been Naren, singing a song of the sea, a sea he feared he'd never see again. Oh, no, Naren said. I've finally gone insane. Blaze strolled forward. If we're the best your fevered brain can come up with, you really need to meet some more interesting women. Unless they don't interest you at all, in which case I'm flattered. Naren grinned and tried to stand, but he couldn't get his feet beneath him. No, sit there all night. Blaze extended a hand. It's not like we're in the middle of a jailbreak. Naren clasped Blaze's wrist. The captain pulled himself halfway up, then fell back. Gritting his teeth, he strained his legs, neck bowing with effort. He rose. Naren gave them a severe look. Took you long enough. Blaze laughed and wrapped him in a hug. Naren burst into laughter, too, deep gasps of it that veered toward anguish before resolving into relief. Dante hesitated a moment, then hugged the captain as well. Naren smelled ghastly, but Dante only felt anger. The sailor's once strong body had been reduced to a dry stalk. Naren withdrew and placed a hand on each of their shoulders. I don't know what I've done to deserve such friendship, but I will work to earn it. My life has always depended on my friends, Dante said, and they can always depend on me. Anyway, don't thank us yet, Blaze said. Not until you see what you're going to have to do to get out of here. Naren quirked a brow. After the last few weeks, I wouldn't care if we have to walk across hot coals. Let's make this a little easier on us. Dante called to the shadows and sent them over the captain, healing his cuts and erasing his aches. Naren cocked back his elbows, nodding once. Ready when you are. They left the cell. 
Dante thought about using the ether to restore the broken lock, then thought it might create more confusion among the jailers to suspect Naren might have had help from one of the bastion's own guards. As they descended the stairs, Dante found himself having to slow down to avoid outpacing Naren. So, what are you going to do first? Blaze said. Eat, drink, or eat and drink and eat? I think, Naren mused, that I will take a bath. At the doorway Dante had opened in the base of the tower, he surveyed the bastion and the distant rampart, then stepped outside. Can you help him across? Blaze rubbed his palms against the side of his tunic. We'd better hope so. If his life depends on your arm strength, he's got a better chance of trying to jump across. Naren didn't have a belt, and they hadn't thought to bring another. Blaze looped the thinner cord over the rope spanning the shores, passed it around Naren's waist, and tied it off. Naren gave him a disgusted look, untied the knot, then redid it with a sailor's aplomb. Blaze secured himself to the rope and took the lead. Naren followed shortly behind him. Initially, it looked like it would be an uneventful crossing, but Naren soon slowed. A quarter of the way across, he stopped altogether, breathing hard as he let the cord around his waist support most of his weight. His breathing slowed. He advanced after Blaze, but only made it a few more feet before exhaustion forced him to stop again. Pressed against the tower, Dante frowned. If the rope pulled loose, or one of them fell, what could he do? Try to slaughter every fish in the moat, raise an island under Naren, and elevate him above the feeding frenzy? Wait, there was a better route. Rather than worrying about saving them from disaster after it happened, he should worry about preventing that disaster in the first place. He could simply refresh Naren's muscles, allowing the captain to advance without getting tired out. As he was about to execute this plan, Blaze flipped around, grabbed Naren's collar, and pulled him along toward the other side. Dante laughed silently. He'd been out-clevering himself. Sometimes the mundane solution was all you needed. The two of them reached the other side and climbed up to solid ground. Dante hurried across the rope, giving the silver fish following beneath him a disapproving look. He got to the rampart, checked that the other two were okay, then moved to the outer retaining wall, draping his arms over the edge and waving slowly back and forth. A canoe materialized from the darkness. Dante and Blaze helped lower Naren down, then joined him in the boat. Volo shoved off from the wall. You should know something, Naren said. Gladick is here. Dante grunted. I saw him threatening you. Do you want to leave Darabode right now, or do we stash you with our ally and go back for Gladick? A shadow passed over Naren's face. I can't ask you to do that. But you want us to. I do. But I also believe that if you leave him be, he'll come for you. He's obsessed with learning how to strengthen his demons. I believe he thinks that if he can cure them of whatever weakness you exposed, he would become unstoppable. 
Better to hit him before he knows what's coming than to wait for him to hit us. Blaze? We already had a personal and moral reason to go after him, Blaze said. At this point, he's practically begging for us to detach his head from his body. Dante had a number of questions for Neron, but there would be time to ask them when he was back, or after they were all dead. They continued in silence to the dock at Reza's manor. Above, the house was quiet. Best of you two stay here, Dante said. We can get ourselves back to the bastion. Volo, if we're not back by three o'clock, take Captain Neron to Arisosis. Neron, wait for the arrival of our friend from House Oseda. She'll take you wherever you need to go. I've seen too many storms to share your full faith in the gods, Neron said. But if they care for this world at all, they'll be with you tonight. Aware they might find themselves on the run and in desperate straits, they took their packs with them, carrying a small amount of food and necessities. Lisa kept two small canoes at the dock, unadorned vessels meant for servants' errands. Dante and Blaze climbed into one and headed north. Though it was now after midnight, lanterns burned in the windows of several island manors. They came to the brick retaining wall, securing their boat and climbing up to the top of the dirt. Dante heard paddles churning somewhere in the distance, but the moat itself was silent. They crossed their rope over to the blue tower and entered its base. Dante had left his skeletal rats there as lookouts. He scooped all but two into his pillowcase, leaving one inside the bottom floor of the tower and sending the other scampering up the steps to scout. The tower remained as silent as a blown-out candle. They came to the top and exited through a hatch. A soft breeze coursed through the night. Exposed on top of the tower, with no trees above them and no water within eighty vertical feet, Dante took a deep breath. Ever since leaving Arisosis, he'd been trapped beneath the trees, confined to a boat, and surrounded by water filled with creatures that wanted to drink his blood, eat his flesh, and lay their eggs in his bones. This was the first time in days he hadn't felt claustrophobic and on edge. Blaze was clubbing him with a look that roughly translated to, Quit sightseeing and go murder our worst enemy. Dante glanced between the fortress and the city. In the brief time since they'd left Teresa's estate, nearly all the lights on the other islands had been put out. The bastion was just as dark. Dante moved to the edge of the roof and faced the crane-like structure on the tower across from him. He'd spent a good deal of the previous day studying it, along with other aspects of the bastion of last acts, such as the location of Gladick's quarters. He removed one of the rats from the pillowcase, wound up and hurled it across the gap in a high arc. It came down in the middle of the crane, claws snagging on a twist of rope. The undead vermin got its bearings and climbed down to the crane's controls. In truth, it was more of a trebuchet than a crane, albeit a very low-powered one. The rat found the appropriate rope 
and started gnawing for all it was worth. A minute later, the last strand popped. A counterweight fell on one side, swinging a long wooden platform down toward the top of the blue tower. Dante and Blaze moved to see if they could cushion the racket of its impact without getting crushed. It came down on their uplifted hands with an uncanny lack of weight, as if it was made from a wood of cork-like lightness. They lowered it to a depression in the rim of stone hemming in the rooftop. Blaze climbed up on the platform, extending his right foot beyond the roof and pushing down on the lightweight wood. It neither snapped nor creaked. Blaze made an expression so dour that he might as well have been walking into his own grave. Remembering Blaze's fear of heights, Dante bit his teeth together to stop himself from laughing. Mumbling curses, the way some men might pray, Blaze hitched up his pack and walked onto the platform. The boards jogged under his weight. He altered his gait so his feet swept a fraction of an inch above the platform. The good news was that this stopped the platform from jogging up and down. The bad news was it made him look like an idiot, and he took twice as long as walking like a normal person would have. Eventually, Blaze reached the other side. He hopped down next to the contraption and folded his arms impatiently. Dante rolled his eyes and started out. The platform was a full three feet across. If he'd been walking down a forest lane three feet wide, it never would have crossed his mind to worry about falling down. But now it was all he could think about. Ironic that after his days-long bout of low-key claustrophobia, he was now hampered by some rather serious agrophobia. He really needed to teach himself how to fly. He came to the other tower and stepped down beside Blaze, who was happy to turn his back on the bridge across the sky. Dante pulled on a rope handle, lifting a trapdoor set into the roof. He motioned his rat ahead, it hopped down from step to step. Dante nodded to Blaze and started down. They reached the bottom of the tower without incident, emerging into the lawn between the outer curtain wall and the inner. After a quick glance around, they walked to the inner wall. Blaze shadow-walked through it. Dante opened a narrow passage for himself. Guards overlooked the bailey and the keep's front doors, so they moved to the rear of the keep instead. There wasn't a door, but they didn't need one. They found themselves in a dark room that smelled like books. Odd. Dante hadn't seen a book, or so much as a quill, since coming to Tain. Interesting though it was, it had nothing to do with the heinous blasphemy he was about to commit against Tame. He'd already mapped his route out for himself and had no trouble finding the servants' stairs. They ascended to the sixth story and crept out into the hall. They were halfway to Gladick's room when the shouts sounded from outside the keep. Dante pressed himself to the wall, straining his ears. Tell me that's not about us. Someone could have seen the bridge was down to the Blue Tower. The shouts were growing louder by the moment. They'd passed an intersection a moment before. Dante backtracked and moved to the southern window, which had a view of the walls, the moat, and the city beyond. 
torches flapped from the entrance to the moat. Canoes were streaming into the water. Dozens more waited to follow them. Flames bloomed in two of the leading boats. Flaming arrows darted forward, lodging inside a lone canoe, speeding out to meet the disturbance. Strange, Blay said. If I didn't know better, I'd say that was a revolution. Dante wanted to deny this out of hand, but guards were racing along the outer walls, shooting bows down at the water. Lanterns flared to life in the towers. Dante had a clear view of the gates through the inner curtain wall. Against all reason, these were currently cranking open. Guards rushed in from the sides to push them closed, only to be fired on from the top of the wall. Dante pressed his knuckles against his forehead. Couldn't the people have waited to liberate themselves until tomorrow? On the other hand, it makes for a great cover for an assassination. We have to hit him right now, before someone comes to bring him to the fight. They hurried away from the window and toward Gladick's room. As they neared his door, Dante bit the inside of his lips and surrounded himself in great clouds of nether. He ripped the door open and charged inside, flooding the room with pale light. The room was as sparsely furnished as everything else in Tanara Tain had been. It took no more than a glance to know that Gladick wasn't there. Ah! Oh. Blazer's voice was thick with disappointment. Back to Rezus with us, then? Dante nodded numbly, hating the taste of the idea, but knowing that he had no choice but to swallow it. Just in case Gladick was using sorcery to hide himself, he sent probes of Nether to every corner of the room, but he felt nothing. He closed the door and headed for the servant's stairs. The blue tower's away from the fighting. If we hurry, we can get out the same way we came in. Blaze opened his mouth to reply. A door banged open. Sandals clapped down the hallway. Before Dante could tell which way they were going, four men spilled into the corridor across from him. Two were dressed in the green of Tenarian soldiers. Another wore a long white shirt and white trousers, both of which were baggy and flowing. And the fourth was a tall figure in a grey robe, with the sunken eyes of a man who saw evil everywhere he looked. Dante's heart took a flying leap from his chest. Before anyone could say a word, before any sense of recognition had entered Gladick's eyes, Dante hurled a swarm of black blades at the Malish priest. Beside him, steel flashed as Blaze drew swords. Gladick's head jerked back. He lifted his right hand. Piercing white light blazed down the hallway. The shadowy blades slammed into the priest's ether, obscuring the hallway in black sparks, white shards, and grey dust. The maelstrom of thwarted energy winked away. The floor and walls were blasted with grey-scale streaks. Gladick stood with his feet together, left hand at his waist, his right hand lifted in benediction. Galand and Buckler, he said. Why are you here? 
is that which is foul so obsessed with spoiling that which is pure? Blaze spun his sword in a circle. You're pure now? Is that as in I'd like to purify the Colin Basin of everyone who lives there? I would have brought peace. You, however, are true servants of the nether. You bring nothing but death and war, just as you have brought it to this place. Dante locked eyes with the man in white, who he suspected was a local priest. Do you know what he is, this man you work with? Gladick scoffed. You are the font of lies, the decay that rots not only flesh, but souls. He likes to be seen as the sword of the faith, the storm that will wash the heresy from the world. But when he thinks no one's watching, he uses the nether to create monsters and commit acts that would sicken the gods. He is the heresy he fears. Gladick's face tightened like a fist. A transparent cube of light shimmered beneath his right hand. It's true, isn't it? The priest in white turned a doleful eye on Gladick, then smiled. And that is precisely why we need you. These men are working with the rebels. Gladick narrowed his eyes. Every second we waste talking is another second their comrade spends slaughtering the innocent. For the heart! He splayed out his hand as if he was releasing a dove. Radiant lines shot down the hallway. Dante slung bolts of nether to intercept them, showering the ceiling with dark and fast-fading stars. Blaze charged forward, dropping into the netherworld. Gladick lifted his palm and crushed his fingers together, as if he were squeezing an orange. Blaze stumbled bodily out of the shadows, crashing into the wall and sliding to the floor. Seeing him exposed, one of the soldiers lunged, jabbing toward Blaze's ribs with a thin, quick sword. Still on the floor, Blaze shoved off from the wall and rolled to the side, hacking across the back of the soldier's ankle. The man spasmed and dropped. Blaze thrust his sword into the man's heart and popped to his feet. The second soldier turned and ran down the hall. The priest in white dropped into a low stance. Ether lanced from his right hand, Nether flowing from his left. Gladick followed this with a blast of crystalline light that glinted with rainbow facets. Blaze scrambled back, diving past Dante, as Dante met the assault with a brute wall of Nether. The energies collided with a thunderous whomp, scorching the floor and sending everyone staggering back. So far, the battle had been little more than a raw back and forth of power. The Tenarian priest was only moderately skilled, but Gladick could turn back Dante's efforts with finessed doses of ether, while Dante was forced to club down Gladick's attacks with awkward torrents of shadows. In a war of attrition, he'd be on the losing side. He reached into the stone beneath Gladick's feet, meaning to wrench it open and drop Gladick to the story below. Gladick snapped forth with snake-like speed, ripping the nether apart. The priest in white smiled and strolled forward, harrying Dante with a flurry of low strength but constant attacks. 
After two exchanges, Dante had picked up the man's pattern. He waited for the third flurry, then counterattacked with an arc of darkness that split apart as it neared its target. Blaze, poised for an opportunity, speared forward, ready to gut the priest while the man was distracted by the nether. Gladick thrust needles of ether directly at Blaze. Blaze swore and dropped into the shadows, the light shredding into the wall behind him. Blaze reappeared beside Dante. I'm no use here. I'm going for help. Blaze turned and ran. For a moment, Dante felt Blaze sliding through the shadows, but he lost all feel for him as Gladick and the Tenarian hurled dancing geometries of ether down the hallway. Dante lashed out at each shape and line, casting the passage into a pall of dark mist. As Gladick held his ground, the priest resumed his advance, decreasing the time Dante had to deflect his attacks. This was a sword that could have cut both ways, but Dante was too busy fending off Gladick to make a serious offensive against the priest. Dante fell back a step, then another. His foes pressed harder yet, flakes of deflected ether dashing against Dante's face. As the Tenarian took another step toward Dante, Gladick paused to gather a mighty pillar of ether. The hair stood up on Dante's arms. When the blow came, he wasn't sure that... Blaze stepped out of the wall right beside the priest. His right hand blade wheeled through the air. The priest yelled out in surprise and anger. The sound abruptly silenced as Blaze's sword cut through his throat and spine. Blood painted the ceiling. Nether swarmed to the toppling body and the stump of its neck. Gladick's face grew long in surprise. He loosed a symmetrical storm of ether at Blaze, who sprinted back toward Dante as fast as he could, his eyes bulging with effort and his face streaked with blood. Dante met Gladick's assault and diverted it into the walls, battering them so hard that dust shot down the passage. Beheading. Dante said. Blaze snapped his sword to the side, whipping off the blood. I've spent enough time around sorcerers to know how to deal with you. I'd have to cut him in half if I could. Rather than slamming Dante with the column of ether he'd been gathering, Gladick let most of it disperse, beginning a thoughtful and measured assault. They tested each other, fainting and probing, searching for holes in the other's guard. Yet, no matter how subtly or misleadingly Dante structured his attacks, Gladick turned them aside before Dante had had the chance to develop them. Blaze made a few trips into the nether, trying to flank Gladick, but each time Gladick ejected him nearly instantly. While Dante had to look out for both light and shadow, and was thus unable to fully commit to defending against either— Gladick seemed attuned to the slightest twitch of nether. Dante quashed a smile. Swatting down an incoming beam of ether, he pulled the pillowcase from his belt and dumped his skeletal rats out on the floor. He motioned toward Gladick. The rats bolted forward, claws skittering on the stone before gaining traction— at the same time, Dante pressed hard against Gladick with a chevron of shadows. Piece by piece, Gladick carved apart his attack, then turned to the rats, 
who were almost upon him. With a small twist of nether, he severed their connection to Dante. The bones tumbled apart, sliding over the stone. Dante flung a second wave of shadows at Gladick, exchanging thrusts, parries, and riposts, guiding Veneta to dart and weave in complicated, near-random patterns. As Gladick concentrated on picking off the screen of black darts, Dante quieted his mind, touched the ether, and asked it to remember the rat's prior form. The Scattered Bones swept together, cohering into complete skeletons. Focused on Dante's efforts with the nether, Gladick didn't even seem to notice. The rats raced at Gladick, throwing themselves at his legs and climbing up his trunk, biting and rending, blood staining their fleshless jaws. Gladick screamed in fear and revulsion. He slapped at the rats in panic, dashing one of them, then blasted three apart with shaky gusts of ether, so overdone that the rats' bones sprayed against the walls. The remaining rats burrowed harder, drenching him in blood as he gathered a second round of light. Dante yearned very badly to gloat, but that could wait until he and Blaze were kicking Gladick's head around like kids playing sally ball. Gladick had wriggled away too many times already. He reached for the nether and felt nothing at all, as if every shadow had vanished from the world. Chapter 23 Dante's mind locked up. Reaching for the nether and finding nothing was like trying to place his foot on a step that wasn't there. Like grabbing hold of a door handle, only to discover the door was painted onto a solid wall. Down the hallway, the light snapped off from Gladick's hands. He looked startled, then began to laugh raucously, bashing at the gnawing rats with hammer-like fists. Uh, Blaze said. What? Dante scrabbled at the shadows, but they wouldn't budge. Neither would the ether. He drew his sword and ran at Gladick. Gladick's eyebrows hopped up his brow. The priest got to his feet, tiny bones tumbling from the folds of his robe, and hobbled down the hall, leaving smears of blood behind him. Sandals smacked against the floor. A crowd of men swerved from around a corner. The soldier who'd fled the encounter had returned, but all Dante could look at was the two warriors he'd brought with him. Their faces were concealed inside helmets that resembled eyeless heads of swamp dragons. They wore mail vests, bracers, and skirts, but rather than being made of metal or the lacquered wood he'd seen a few warriors wear in the plagued islands, the knight's armor appeared to be made of black scales. In their left hands, they carried small shields shaped like black half-moons. In their right, they bore curved black swords lined with silver. The pommels ended in thick black spikes. But even more commanding than their arms and armor was their sense of stillness. Their presence felt like the distillation of the dead of night in the dead of winter when even the wind has found somewhere warmer to hide. At once, 
Dante knew that whatever force was blocking his access to the nether, they were the ones behind it. Gladick laughed again. One of the rats had gouged open his forehead and painted half his face with blood, tracing the creases of his crow's feet. You know nothing of this land. How does it feel to know you'll die here? His knees buckled. A soldier grabbed for his elbow, helping him hobble away. Dante pointed the tip of his sword at the knight across from him. You're harboring a man who killed thousands of innocents in the Colin Basin. Step aside and go defend your gates. The knight stared back at him, eyes hidden behind his helmet. Are you servants of the Aiden Rane? We don't even know what an Aiden Rane is, Blaze said. He made a let's-get-on-with-it gesture with the tip of his sword. Out of the way, will you? Do you choose arrest or death? Blaze sighed. I should start carrying the heads of my enemies around so you guys will know I'm serious, but I'm not sure where I'd get a big enough wagon. He lifted his swords in a guard. Dante kneeled and picked up one of the bloody rat bones, then edged beside Blaze to cover his flank. Dante himself remained a fair swordsman, better than most, but lacking the training or instincts of a true expert. Yet the possibility that the knights outskilled him didn't bother him in the slightest. Blaze had skill enough for them both. The knight nodded once, then brought up his sword along his center. The blackness of it seemed to be moving, like a river on a moonless night. Out of habit, Dante called out to the nether. Its absence made him feel naked. More than naked, more like he'd lost his arms and legs. The lead knight swung a diagonal blow toward the intersection of Blaze's neck and shoulder. Blaze twitched up his left-hand sword, meaning to catch the enemy's blade and guide it past him as he drove his right-hand weapon into the knight's torso, a maneuver Dante had watched him execute a hundred times. The black sword hit Blaze's blade with a high-pitched metallic chink. Blaze's eyes went wide. The knight's weapon sheared through Blaze's steel, sending half his sword spinning away. Blaze grunted, jerking his hips forward and his shoulders back, yanking his head away from the incoming strike. The black blade hissed past his head. A lock of blonde hair fluttered to the ground. Blaze danced back two steps, gaze shifting between his severed sword, the lock of hair, and the knight's sword, which was now outlined in purple, shadows rippling across its surface. The pair of knights drew their shields closer to their bodies and advanced. Run, Blaze said. Yes, run. He turned and fled down the hall. Dante matched him step for step. This time, it wasn't a ruse. The knights gave chase, slowed by their armor. Blaze grabbed a lantern from the wall and flung it in front of the two men. It smashed open, the oil going up with a blast of air, shooting light and heat down the corridor. The knights didn't make a sound, simply backed up and waited for the fire to fade. Blaze swung down a long hallway, breaking right at the next intersection. A few steps in, it became obvious it was a dead end. 
but turning around would expose them to the knights. His eyes fixed on an open door to a dark room. He rushed inside, Dante on his heels, and closed the door as silently as he could, enclosing them in near total blackness. For just a moment, Dante could feel the nether around him again. As soon as he tried to reach it, it once more clamped down tight. This is the plan, Dante whispered. Hide? Why not? They'll have to go deal with the rebels eventually. Shouts and the ring of iron poured through the window, punctuating his claim. Or I suppose we could climb out the window. Dante moved toward it, then clasped his hand over his mouth and nose. No, we can't. We'll just knot together some sheets or something. Climb down to the window below. Is that before or after you rip the iron bars out of the window with your bare hands? Blaze rocked on his heels, then walked to the wall and reached out to feel the dim, X-shaped metal bars running between the corners of the window. Lyle's twisted balls! Why would they bar a bedroom window six stories off the ground? How should I know? Maybe they have a problem with giant bats. It's not... He cut himself short as footsteps sounded in the hall. They advanced without haste, steadily approaching their door, as if the night could somehow see through the walls. Blaze held out his hand. The horn! The what? The swamp dragon horn! Do you still have it? Dante unshouldered his pack and opened the compartment where he kept his more interesting and precious items. He passed Blaze the horn. What are you doing? Blaze gripped the horn like a knife. Ambush! Dante was about to ask what the hell he was talking about, but the footsteps had just arrived outside their door, stopping there. His torch stone rested in the same compartment he'd taken the horn from. He plucked out the small white stone, holding it up between his forefinger and thumb. Blaze looked at it blankly, barely able to see it in the gloom then nodded in recognition. Blaze crept closer to the door. The handle began to turn. Dante gripped the torchstone and brought his fist to his mouth. As the door swung inward, Dante blew into his palm, covering his eyes with his other hand. Blaze looked down and away. The torchstone flung piercing light to all sides. The knight paused halfway into the room, jerking his shield up to protect himself from being dazzled. Blaze sprung forward, driving the horn toward the man's exposed armpit. The knight whirled and lashed out with his sword. Blaze adjusted his attack into a block. As the black blade struck the horn, purplish sparks spat into the air. The horn held. The knight, anticipating that his sword would cut through whatever it was wielded against, was already leaning forward, attempting to continue a strike that was now stalled. Blaze slipped inside the knight's guard and speared the horn into the side of his neck. As blood showered into the air, Blaze jerked his elbow back as hard as he could, ripping out the man's windpipe. The knight reeled backward, dropping his sword and clutching at the loose tubes flopping down his chest. Blaze flipped the horn to his left hand, took up the sword, and slashed it into the knight's ribs. The armored vest seemed to slow the sword a little, but it passed halfway through his chest, 
Someone shouted a question from down the hall. It sounded like a name. The query repeated, more insistent. Blaze closed the door, muffling the other man's calls. There's blood all over the hall. They can't miss it. Don't suppose you've got your nether back now that this bastard's dead? Dante shook his head. Think that sword can cut through the bars? It snipped my sword easily enough. Blaze hustled to the window. He drew back his arm and swung. With a sharp, metallic ping, the sword clipped halfway through the bar. Another swing severed it. As Blaze chopped through the other bars, Dante dragged the knight's body in front of the door. Blaze took a final swing, sending the bars tumbling down into the night. Say what you will about these pricks, but they have excellent taste in swords. Dante leaned out the window. They were on the east side of the keep, lacking a clear view of the southern bailey the rebels had stormed through. Fires flickered to his right. Some yelling and screaming was going on, but it sounded stifled, as though it was happening within the lower floors of the keep. He and Blaze were currently fifty feet above the ground. If he'd had the nether at hand, he could have built them a staircase down the side of the keep, or simply massacred the horde of people who are currently thundering down the hallway toward their room. Faced with nothing but mundane solutions, he had no idea what he was supposed to do. Die? Blaze was busy slicing up a sheet and knotting the thick strips together. Dante tied the other end of the makeshift rope around a stump of the iron bar that remained in the corner of the window. As Blaze continued to work on his end, Dante picked up a bench and added it to the corpse barricade at the door, supplementing this with a low, compact desk. I got blood here, a man yelled directly outside the door, startling Dante back. They're inside. Blaze tied another strip to the rope, pulling it tight. Bad news, I'm out of sheet. That's it. The rope wasn't quite thirty feet long. Dante gritted his teeth and tossed the free end at the window. Climb down as far as you can. It isn't long enough. So men tells me. Now go. Blazer's hand went to the hilt of his sword. As if he was ready to argue, they'd have a better chance fighting off the small army that was even now starting to push on the door. Seeing the look on Dante's face, he calmed down, grabbed the rope, and jumped out the window. As Dante grabbed the sheets and swung his legs outside, someone banged into the door, jarring the debris he'd thrown in front of it. Blaze slid down the rope, looking about for other windows they could climb into. There's nothing here! He reached the end of the line. Dante stopped just above him. The air smelled smoky. The clamor of battle echoed throughout the bailey. He'd overestimated the length of the rope. It would be a fall of close to thirty feet, directly onto hard ground. He glanced up. A pale face protruded from the window. The man produced a bow, knocked an arrow, and rather awkwardly drew it back. Jump! Dante yelled. Blaze looked up at him like he was crazy, then noticed the archer drawing down on them. Well, that's just rude. Dante coiled his feet against the wall, pushed himself off, and let go of the rope. Blaze did the same. An arrow whistled past them and thumped into the dirt. 
Dante's head dizzied as he fell into empty space. He threw his mind in all directions, beseeching and berating the nether. The ground raced to meet them, and smashed them apart. Like the lighting of a candle dispelling the darkness, the oppressive stillness vanished. Heart beating so hard he couldn't form coherent thoughts, Dante dived into the nether in the ground beneath them, softening it, letting water flood in from beneath. The two of them splashed down into a pool of thin mud. Disoriented, he fought his way to the surface. The bow twanged above them, the arrow slapping into the muck. Dante reached the edge of the pit and pulled himself free. Blaze got out beside him, covered from head to toe in blackish mud that smelled of rotten eggs. The color made for the perfect camouflage as they ran across the bailey. Blaze slicked mud from his face. How did you know you'd be able to reach the nether again? I didn't, Dante said, but I figured that I could heal our broken legs once we'd dragged ourselves away from whatever was blocking it. How did you know the night sword wouldn't cut through the horn? Because my intelligence is matched only by my keen powers of observation. Still running, Blaze held up the knight's sword and the severed horn. Next to each other, it became obvious that the sword's pommel was a swamp dragon horn. Did you see the nether on the blade? The knights use the shadows the same way you do, to cut through things steel can't. They're powered by nether. Since the swamp dragon's hide was hardened against nether, you thought the horn would turn the sword aside. You're the almighty wizard, you tell me. I'm just the guy who swings a few pounds of metal to make enemies dead. Dante swerved around a dozen bodies strewn in the grass, half of them wearing the green of the crown. Right now, I think we should both be the people who run as fast as they can from whatever the hell's going on here. I'm all but spent. They made for the looming inner curtain wall. Reaching it, they walked briskly along until they came to the gap Dante had opened through the stone. Blaze took the lead through the narrow passage. He walked out into the wide avenue between the inner and outer walls and stopped short. Across from them, a squadron of ununiformed soldiers jerked to attention, brandishing a motley assortment of spears, short bows, and a single sword. Just who we're looking for, Blaze said, keeping the point of his black sword pointed at the ground. You're the rebels. The man with the sword cocked his head. Rebels. Blaze pointed back toward the keep. The not-those-guys. We're not rebels. We are the liberators of our country, the fighters of the tyrant who beguiles us with illusions of freedom while knotting our bodies in trap-rope. We are here to cut those bonds. Excellent. As you can tell by choice of mud, we're unsophisticated foreigners and very confused about what's happening here. Would you be so kind as to ferry us across the moat so we can leave you to your glorious revolution? The rebel considered them, face slowly darkening. What are foreigners doing in the bastion of last acts? Trying very hard to get out of it. Or pretending to. I think you're tools of the Drakebane. Spies sent to beseech our aid and then take advantage of our pity by undermining us from within. 
He motioned to the other soldiers. Arrest them! Blaze smiled and backed toward the gap in the wall, which he might be able to defend interminably, or at least until someone came up with the idea of attacking him from both sides at once, or shooting arrows at him. The soldiers trained their weapons on him and shuffled forward warily. As Dante reached for his sword, the gears clicked into place. He let his hand fall to his side. Is Doriza here? The rebel lieutenant stiffened. What do you know of the Doriza? I know he likes drinking expensive Ardayin, and that he has a very nice estate. Though the beds could be more comfortable, Lay said, dropping his voice to a gossipy tone. Then again, enough Ardayin, and you could sleep on the point of a spear. The rebel shifted his weight from foot to foot, then gestured to his troops. Take them to the Soulcast Tower. I'll find Doriza. Six soldiers escorted Dante and Blaze to a staircase in the outer wall, delivering them to the donned top floor of a stout tower overlooking the southern approach to the fortress. Though they could still hear the clamor of fighting further into the bailey, along with the nearby groans of a makeshift physician's ward, the tower itself was serene and secure, its interior painted with pastel geometry, along with murals of knights in dragon armor doing battle with hideous creatures of all kinds. Dante found a bench and picked off the patches of mud that were starting to harden on his skin. Blaze seemed perfectly content to leave it be, leaning back against the wall and whistling an old malish drinking song. They didn't have to wait long before Riza joined them. His hair was a bit bedraggled, and his jabat sported a few dabs of blood, but otherwise he looked hale and untroubled. He dismissed the sentries, along with the pair of secretaries and bodyguards who had accompanied him. He stood across from them, face unreadable. Did you accomplish your goals tonight? One of them, Dante said. The other one got complicated. Did Volo tell you who we are? Riza smiled like a Nulladoon player, admiring the opponent's move. Don't blame her for it. I could see the guilt in her face from the moment she arrived with you. When I questioned her, she did her best to hold back. How did you convince her? I simply spoke the truth, that if what you were here to do could upset the balance of our plans, we'd lose everything. Was that true? It could have been. Blaze sighed. Are you two trying to talk like a pair of old lovers? They've had this attack planned for a long time, Dante said. I presume it wasn't scheduled for tonight, but they had to move it forward after Riza discovered we were going to break into the Blue Tower. Correct. Riza moved to the northern side of the tower for a better look at the keep. If you'd succeeded or failed, it could have prompted the Bastion to enhance their defenses even further, and to investigate their soldiers for signs of disloyalty. Additionally, as your sponsor, I might have been implicated. Either event would have spelled disaster for our movement. Which is? Why? 
The overthrow of the Drake Bane Yoto dynasty, of course. What were your goals here? Dante glanced at Blaze. Blaze shrugged. Dante said, To kill a priest. What was his crime? Heresy. Risa's eyes twinkled. If so, should I fear for the safety of the entire realm? None of us believe in your squabbling northern gods. Do you believe in the extermination of the Colin Basin? If not, we should be all right with each other. But we need this man dead. Do you think you'll take the keep? I don't have to wonder. We've already done it. The man we're after is named Gladick. He's a sorcerer and an extremely dangerous one. You need to hand him over to us. Reza's amusement left him as neatly as if he'd tucked it into his back pocket. Your warning is appreciated. Once I better know who you are, I may decide to make him yours. Until then, I have business to prosecute. He left them in the tower. As it turned out, there was no decision to make. Along with the Drake Bane, his cabinet, and his coterie of knights, Gladick had fled from the city and into the swamps. No one knew where they had gone. I see. Naren lowered his eyes to the table. If we try to follow him into the wilds, are we cutting the grey? Blaze wrinkled his brow. Are we whatting the what? It's a sailor's term. When a captain finds himself on the fringe of a storm, if he's skilled, he can harness the winds to his benefit. But if he's not skilled, or he's too reckless, he can find himself overtaken and wrecked by that storm. We call that cutting the grey. We landlubbers have a term like that, too. We call it having a dumb idea. The three of them were seated on rolls of fiber that were apparently used as chairs in the more formal parts of the land, such as the secondary dining hall in Doriza's manor. Outside, starlight glinted from the dark waters. Smoke bleared the sky where it rose from the bastion. Lanterns burned across the city, with patrols of armed commoners paddling around in canoes to scout the waters for signs of resistance— but the city was oddly peaceful. If someone was to wake up for a glass of water and glance outside, they would have no idea an insurrection had just thrown down the government. This whole thing feels strange, Blaze went on. We have no idea where Gladick is headed. I've got a bad feeling that if we try to find out, we're going to find ourselves sucked into a maelstrom of awful. What if we did know where Gladick went? Dante said. Then I'd like to think I wouldn't have said otherwise. Dante reached into his pocket, withdrew a rat bone the size of an apple stem, and set it on the table. One of its knobs was stained red. That's Gladick's blood. Blaze grinned. You can follow it right to him though that still leaves the small matter of navigating a bunch of swamps that were deadly enough before a civil war broke out amongst them. I think we can talk the locals into giving us a hand. 
They want this Drake Bane captured or dead. If Gladick stays with him, I can lead Riza straight to him. Sounds like that's enough to buy us passage. I'm in. Naren? Naren thrust out his lower jaw in thought. As long as we confine ourselves to Gladick, I have no issue with the Drakebane or these rebels. The rebels clearly have popular support, Dante said, and from what we saw on our way here, they deserve it. Even so, I have no intention of getting involved in their struggle. If Reza tries to twist our arm into fighting for them, we'll make our own way. As far as Dante could tell, Reza wasn't the chief conspirator, but wherever he stood, he was far enough up the pecking order that he would likely be embroiled in strategic talks for the rest of the night. Dante stressed to Keith that he had information that could deliver the Drake Bane to the rebels. Even so, it was close to an hour before Key returned and instructed them to get into one of the Doe's canoes. Key brought them to the bastion, where rebel eyes gazed down at them from the battlements and troops sang drunkenly in the bailey. The front steps of the keep were darkened with blood. They were led through a great hall into a smaller adjoining chamber furnished with a few low tables and a rack of seating rolls. The air smelled of the fresh smoke of wood and the stale smoke of an unfamiliar herb. Riza entered a minute later. His face looked tired, but his movements were energized. You say you can bring us to the Drakebane. How can you know our land better than we do? Dante shrugged. Magic? What do you care if we can find the tyrant? I don't. I care that he's traveling in the company of my enemy. As Dante spoke, Riza leaned closer, craning his neck owlishly, watching Dante's face as if concerned that a predator lurked beneath it. This man is a priest, yes? Riza said. A man of your gods? What has a holy man done to make you want him dead so badly that you would travel into Tanaretain and gamble your own life for the chance to take his? He killed one of our friends. Dante squared his shoulders to the Lord and in the Colin Basin he killed thousands of civilians. Unprovoked, during a war. Isn't one of the properties of war that when it comes, people will die, guilty and innocent alike? By definition, the innocent are innocent. Those that murder them have to be punished for it, if only to dissuade others from doing the same thing. What were his reasons for war? Were they just? His goal was to pacify a region that wanted to govern itself, then kill everyone there, and replace them with colonists from his own people. Even a Tenarian couldn't argue the justice of that. Dante might have said more, but Riza was leaning in again, staring into Dante's eyes as if they were texts that could be read. Dante drew his head back. I'm sorry, but do I have something on my face? You will forgive me. I'm merely attempting to ascertain if you've laced your claims with Rido Ashe. Rido Ashe? 
Visa twirled his right index finger. A manner of insidious sorcery. What you might call black magic. Impossible. Nether can't touch words. I don't claim that it can. I claim, I insist, that words themselves are ridor ashe. They can be used to cloud your mind, to trip it and ensnare it, to confuse it and turn it against what is right. You see, we already know what is true. All we have to do is turn our ears away from the babble around us and towards the words waiting in our hearts. This is why the Drake Bane tells us it's so important for the people to say anything they like, so that the people, and in particular the people he designates to do so, can flood us with lies and nonsense. He fills the land with so much empty water that when we try to swim down toward the truth, we'll drown before we ever reach it. Dante frowned. You think giving people the freedom to speak their minds is a bad thing? When those minds have been swept out on a tide of ideas as poisonous as seawater and as treacherous as the swamps? Absolutely. Thus we must limit what can be said, dike the seas, drain the swamps, until the truth thrives once more. This sounds like it could be a belief of convenience. Dante fully believed this, but tried to couch it in the casual, interrogative tone employed whenever Tanarians engaged in ritual debate. Couldn't this just be a way for you to protect yourself from having to listen to their arguments? Reza pulled back from Dante's face, as if it had just split open with oozing sores. That is the exact manner of falsehood that threatens to wash the truth out beyond anyone's finding. It's pure Rido Ashe. The very reason we must put a stop to it. The room was suddenly very quiet. Dante lowered his chin a fraction of an inch. You'll have to pardon me. I was attempting to participate in Danakide. Riza looked unconvinced. Blaze cleared his throat. This thing about Rido Ashe. That's why you're out to stick the Drake Bane's head on a pike? It's but a symptom. Reza's anger pivoted back toward the crown. Dante silently appreciated Blaze's gambit. The Lord strode across the chamber. In obscuring and diluting the truth, our great master is better able to hide any number of unfortunate facts about his empire. Primarily, the fact that our citizens don't really have the freedoms they're promised, and are instead kept subservient through a number of cunning systems. Among the most wicked of these is the idea that anyone can build and own land. Is this true? Well, yes, I'm sure it's written into the law, but a whole spider web of related laws comes with it. The raising of land requires the payment of an initial tax that most laborers can't afford. Even if you can afford it and spend the time and effort necessary to create your plot of land, it is then taxed even more heavily. Given that it can take years to make a piece of land profitable, most would-be freeholders wind up bankrupted by taxes, at which point 
the land is forfeited to the state. Blaze grunted. Did they set it up to work like this on purpose? Does it matter? Either way, the outcome is the same. What the peasants lose, the crown gains. Reza snorted archly. This hasn't even broached the subject of the body of the people. We are told that we each have our part, and that each part is vital to the whole. Perhaps so, but some parts are clearly more vital than others, and rewarded in kind. The crown's answer to this, of course, is, so what? Anyone can become whatever part they wish. Now, I'm no genius, but I'm picking up the idea that this might not strictly be true. A few people attain their desired part, yes. But most aren't allowed beyond the simplest trades, following the same rut laid down by their fathers and mothers. It is believed that just enough of us are allowed to drag ourselves out of the swamps to convince everyone else that it's possible. Reza stopped his pacing and turned to regard the three of them. I'm not particularly concerned whether our reasons satisfy you, because they are for us, not you. But this is why we fight. Our only concern is Gladick, Dante said. We won't interfere with your business. Which doesn't mean we want any part of yours. You came here under the guise of merchant enforcers from Malin. To Volo you revealed yourself as sorcerers. Where are you really from? And who do you represent? I'm from the North, and I represent myself. That's not good enough. My time is valuable. Continue to waste it, and I'll see you out of the city. Dante exhaled through his nose, searching for the right admixture of truth and omission. I'm from Narashtovic. I'm a priest of our holy order. But my involvement here is purely personal. Narashtovic. Riza tipped back his head, mouth pursed. The city where the dead are on constant march against the walls? Such reports are highly exaggerated. Fortunate for you. If your interest is merely personal, why should I be concerned with it myself? Oh, because of the demons, Blay said. Gladick makes them, you see. And we know how to kill them, assuming he hasn't come up with anything worse in the meantime. He drew the black sword, purple light crackling silently along its edges. Though this might help even the odds. Reza's lips parted. Where did you get that? From the body of a man who was trying to turn us into bodies. That came from a knight of Odosein. The nobleman put his right fist into his left palm, clasping them over his navel. We will pursue the Drake Bane. If you can help us find him, Gladick is yours. We leave in two days. Chapter 24 The key scraped for its hole, metal on metal. 
Rosho's heart threatened to blast out the top of her head. She stuffed the stopper into the ink bottle and swept the documents into the desk's top drawer. She stuck her thumb and forefinger in her mouth, then snuffed the candle with a quick sizzle. As the tower door swung open, Rorschach tumbled into the shadows. Harold Walpole entered the room. He wasn't carrying a candle, and from inside the shadows, the silver pools of his eyes seemed to be looking right at her. He held a dagger against his thigh. In perfect silence, he moved across the room, pressed himself to the doorway to the sitting room, and swung inside. A moment later, he returned to the larger chamber, sheathed his dagger, and went to the window overlooking the rooftop courtyard and the happy party that laughed on below. He glanced back and forth between the festivities and the wall opposite the window. He'd been below, hadn't he? He'd seen light in his quarters, and rather than sending a servant or a sentry, he'd come to investigate for himself. He made a noise, low in his throat, and walked back out. He closed the door, locked it. Rosha waited for the shuffle of his first step, then eased from the shadows. Whispering a curse, she reached for the desk drawer. The footsteps reversed. The key clicked into the lock, and Rosha jumped back into the black and silver. Walpole re-entered and moved to the desk. He leaned over the snuffed candle and sniffed, reached out, and felt its wick. He drew back to stand in brooding darkness. Rorschach could feel each second sapping her stamina. Should have grabbed up the papers rather than stuffing them into the desk. She'd been blindsided by haste, moving too fast to think things through. Now, she shifted in and out of the darkness twice, sucking away her juice each time. She could walk out right now, but if she did that, she'd leave the documents behind, including an obvious half-finished copy. If Walpole found it, he'd take the original somewhere else, or, from what she'd seen of him, decisive, hard-nosed, he'd destroy it. Walpole exited to the hallway, leaving the door open. He returned with a candle and lit the one on his desk. He sat, planted his elbows on the desk, laced his fingers together. From his bearing, Rosha wouldn't be surprised if he stayed there until dawn, and every second she wasted waiting for him to go away brought her that much closer to a rude boot out of the shadows. She moved into the sitting room. Weak candlelight fanned through the doorway, but the walls lay in darkness. Rosha emerged into reality, opened the drink cabinet, and smashed a bottle of brown liquor in the corner. As the sweet smell of rum gushed through the room, she dived into the shadows and ran past Walpole as he charged into the room, dagger drawn. She moved to the desk, flicked back to the real world, and stole the papers from the drawer, both the original and the copy. She closed the drawer with a tight wooden squeak. Vaulting back into the nether, she booked it through the stone wall and into the hallway. The shadows were already getting slippery. 
Wouldn't have nearly enough to get her all the way back to the Fabians. Needed to get away from Walpole and out of the nether as fast as she could. She thought about climbing to the top of the tower to hide and sneak down later, then growled to herself and loped down the stairs. She'd barely gotten one floor down before Walpole's boots racketed on the steps above her. Within a few turns of the stairs, she could see him coming down behind her, his eyes shining like pockets of angry quicksilver. She knew the base of the tower was flush with the roof. On the last floor, before the descent into the larger palace, she veered directly toward the wall, praying she had her orientation right and wasn't about to fall down the side of the palace. She emerged through the wall onto a flat stretch of roof. Tucked behind a row of shrubs, she returned to the world. Hands shaking, she caught her breath, smoothing out her dress. She'd chosen something court-worthy, just in case of a contingency like this, but also unencumbering enough for her to work with if it turned out she needed to do any climbing or tumbling. Not a hundred feet away, partiers exchanged witticisms and compliments, flattering each other like idiots, their drunkenly healthy faces aglow in the pool of light cast by the lanterns. A stone block rose behind them, housing the stairwell down into the interior. Rosha checked her hair with her hands. Seemed relatively intact. She straightened her spine, tipped back her chin, and walked forward. Nearing the wash of light, she beckoned to a servant carrying a tray of goblets. He hastened to bring her one. Prop in hand, she slowed to an unhurried pace, meaning to draw as few eyes as possible on her way to the stairwell. The door to the stairs banged open. Two soldiers spilled out, scanning the mingling courtiers. Down on the grounds, a guard yelled out an order, his voice echoing through the courtyards. Walpole had already spread word throughout the palace. They'd be stopping anyone of lower birth than a prince. The rooftop garden was fenced on one side by an iron railing overlooking a lawn of trees, grass, and flagstones. Rasha made her way to the rail. Keeping her hand inside her pocket, she folded the pages into a tight packet. She leaned over the railing, as if drinking in the cool night breeze, and let go of the creased parchment. They fluttered on the way down, threatening to snag in a tree then landed on the paving stones by the base of the wall. She lifted her glass of pink wine and took another drink. Smiling, she moved toward the door to the stairs. One of the guards moved in front of her. Ah, he said, as if he hadn't thought about what he'd actually say until this moment. There's been... an incident, my lady. No one can leave unless they've been... checked. Checked? She arched her eyebrows. For what? I don't know, he admitted with tangible relief. Just come with me. Please, milady. Rasha did some requisite scoffing, then followed the soldier downstairs to the front hall. A businesslike servant with the imperious bearing of a minor lady took Rasha into a side chamber and asked her to turn out her pockets. Rosha protested just enough to make it look like she cared about her dignity. 
then relented. Finding nothing on her more suspicious than a jackknife, the woman delivered her to the palace doors. Please wait here, the servant said. I'll find a soldier to escort you home. No! Rosha's denial had been a little too fast. Her wit put a knife to her brain's throat and demanded it provide a reason. I couldn't possibly. You need all your men here to help you in your search. But, Lady Yera, I live at the Fabians. If I can't walk from here to there without being assaulted by brigands, then I don't fear for myself. I fear for the city. She'd been around the nobility long enough to inject this with enough arrogance that the servant had no choice but to smile tightly and let her go on her way. Roshaw strolled across the mall. Soldiers were posted in a loose ring around the palace, holding lanterns up to watch the night. Was Walpole always this paranoid? Or were the secrets in his quarters just that serious? She reached the façade of the Fabians, then turned and walked alongside them until she provoked a rat out of hiding. She pointed at it. A black bolt sizzled from her finger to its head. As it spun away, she was afraid she'd blown it to pieces. But it was still mostly intact. Crouching over it, she called to the nether. It hung back, then dislodged from its hiding spot, reluctantly filling her hand. Gathering the dregs of her strength, she sent it into the rat. The rat shuddered. It lifted itself to its feet, collapsed, then forced itself upright, gazing at her with its dead and glassy eyes. Feeling disgusted with herself, yet powerful, she sent the rat scampering across the mall. Watching through its eyes made her want to barf. She sent it onward, past a stationary guard, who glanced at the rodent and shook his head, muttering something foul. The rat crossed a paved space, approaching a high wall. Rasha searched for ten minutes before she found the folded papers. The rat picked them up in its mouth, then trotted back across the mall. When it returned, Rasha pocketed the papers, went upstairs, and collapsed into bed. Eventful night. Rasha looked up from her breakfast. Breakfast in the sense that it was her first meal of the day. By the bell's reckoning, it was eleven in the morning. Maura had appeared to her right, gliding across the carpet without making a sound. At least not one that Rasha had been able to pick up over the clamor of her own chewing. Rasha dabbed egg from the corner of her mouth. Should it have been? I couldn't say myself. There were some who considered it the event of the month. You mean the party? The one on the roof? Maura rolled her eyes. Don't tell me there was more than one. I couldn't sleep. I had the window open and I could hear them laughing. I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. I just wanted to ask what it was for. I didn't think they'd invite me up. The only thing you have to apologize for is thinking I wouldn't want to go with you. Next time, yes. Rosha smiled. 
she spent the day convinced someone was about to kick down her door, tear her room apart to the floorboards, and drag her off to a dungeon. Instead, it was as quiet as the morning after Falmac's Eve, when hungover farmers stayed huddled under their covers, emerging only to grumble at their children to go see to the chickens. She didn't bother to copy Walpole's order sheet. There was no point trying to return the original to his desk. After the last night, it was so creased and rat-nibbled that its return would be more obvious than its absence. Anyway, whatever it was for, it was too big to cancel just because someone else had found out about it. She tried to read it, but the combination of cramped handwriting and fancy words was too much for her. At last, midnight. She put on her trousers and doublet, tucked the orders into her pocket, and shimmied down the balconies to the ground. The night before had been a tough time, the kind of thing that would scare some people into lying low for a while. She'd always thought that if you gave in to the fear too often, one day you'd go to ground and never find the guts to come up again. The only thing was to get back out there the very next day and prove that the last time was nothing that the world should be afraid to run into you. On the off chance that someone had been watching their meets, she and Sorowan had arranged to rendezvous at a different park not far from his monastery. As usual, he was already there waiting for her. Without a word, she handed him the two sheets of parchment. As he read, raw glee spilled across his face. Rasha made a note to invite him to play cards with her sometime, he had so little control over his expressions, she'd take him for every penny in his pocket. Finished, he jerked his head up from the orders, waving them around like they were on fire. This is it! The order! For what? Weapons? Mercenaries? I don't know. She gave him a pained look. I thought you said this was the order. Yeah, but it doesn't say what it's for, other than so much money that these people should be ashamed they're spending it on a war, and not a cathedral to the glory of the gods. But it does tell us where the goods are supposed to be delivered. He peered down at the page. Keller's Pier, three nights from now. They're making the exchange during the night? Sorowin bobbed his head. Two in the morning. That's weird, isn't it? Sounds like something you'd do. And I deal in things I've taken from other people. Makes you wonder what they're buying that they don't want anyone else to see it. Camp followers. Rosha was too exasperated to smack him. What about you? Heard any prime dirt? Or just the usual stories of the gods being awful to each other? Sorowan looked perturbed by her borderline heresy, then rolled back his eyes in thought. There is one thing, but it's a little strange. The masters have been preaching about the return of Daris, and the need to kill him. He chuckled heartily. Can you believe it? What's a Daris? Rasha, have you never even set foot in a church? Not since I learned to walk on my own. He swayed back from her, 
as if afraid of breathing the unclean air that surely surrounded her, then sighed. If Dante hears I had to tell you this, he'll make sure you spend the next decade locked in a seminary. The story of Darius is told in both Malin and Narashtovic. Do you at least know about Carvajal and the fire? Who's Carvajal? Oh, for the love of— He stole the fire from Tame, Rosha said, who was keeping it for himself like a greedy arsehole. Carvajal's the one who brought it down to humans. Correct, except for the part where you call Tame an arsehole. Although, I guess in this story he kind of is, because the first thing he did when he saw the theft was gather up his army to go kill Carvajal. Carvajal could see he was going to get clobbered, so he passed the torch of flame to Eric the Draconet, the greatest dragon slayer in the world, so he could climb up to the heavens, fight Darius, Darius being a dragon, you see, and make Darius join his side. Why the hell would Darius join Eric if Eric was trying to kill him? Because, I mean, that's how honor works. Oh, Rosha said. No wonder I've never thought much of it. Sorowin blinked, then plunged onward. Eric beat Darius, so Darius and all of his other dragons had to help Eric and Carvel go fight Tame. After the biggest fight the world had ever seen, Tame slew Darius, and the whole world tilted. But just as Tame was about to win the day, take the fire, and thrust humans back into darkness, Eric stabbed him in the heart, forcing him and his allies back into the heavens. So we kept the fire, and it's kept us warm and defended us against the night ever since. Eric is the big hero of this story, but, as you can see, he couldn't have done it without Darius's aid. I mean, doesn't this seem weird to you? That the father of time went to war against a giant lizard to get back his torch? Darius was a hero, but when the masters discuss his coming return, they warn us that we'll have to stand against him. Now why would they think that? Because they love Tame? I think it's because of his origin. Before he died and Joras took over, Darius was the sole ruler of the Northern Kingdom, which, given what the people down here think about the North— marks him as untrustworthy at best, if not downright evil. I think the priests are trying to get people used to the idea that they have to fight the North, to fight Narashtovic. Malin can't even beat Colin in a fight. So how do you think that for their next move they're going to declare war on Colin and Narashtovic? Maybe they're going to retake Colin, then turn against Narashtovic for helping Colin. That's what Dante's afraid of. That's why it's so important for us to stop them in Colin. I know what we're here to do, Rosha said, but I don't know anything about your holy books. You'll have to run all this past Galand. Anyway, let him know we might be about to break open Malin's plans. I'll scout the pier where they're dropping off the goods. Meet me back here at midnight in three days. With her night's work expanding before her, she jogged east toward the river. As she neared the docks, the smell of cool, fresh water drifted through the streets, along with chatter from the wharfside pubs.
She entered the first she found, ordered a drink, and asked where to find Keller's pier. She had a story all cooked up about what her business there was, but the drunk next to her didn't care about anything except that she was sitting next to him. She stayed a few minutes in gratitude for the information, then headed north along the mile-wide river. Most of the piers were silent and dark. But at a handful of them, stevedores wheeled goods into waiting warehouses. Keller's pier was blocked off by the bars of a tall iron fence. A dozen docks extended into the lapping black waters. Rorschach toured around the fence to the other side. Several big warehouses occupied the grounds, big enough to hold just about anything you could ever want to buy. As she turned around for another pass, a watchman wandered out from one of the warehouses. Rorsha headed on past and didn't come back. Back at the Fabians, she kept her head down. Three days went by like nothing, the evening of the deal, she sat down to supper without much appetite. She didn't know what was going to go down that night. Could be they'd stumble into bad luck, have to run out from Bressel and not look back. She found her eyes kept drifting to Maura. Rorschach knew the score. A mark was a mark. When you were done with them, you tossed them aside like a spent corn husk or a shoe too worn to mend. The night before, she'd kept Maura up late drinking, so the lady wouldn't bat an eye when Rasha planned to say she was tired from the previous day's festivities and meant to go to bed early. They'd gone through a bottle of good wine apiece. In the middle of making good headway on a third, Maura had leaned back in her chair, or, more accurately, lolled back in it, and the typically arch, if currently sloppy, look on her face had been replaced by something thoughtful. I have a confession to make. Maura pronounced each word carefully, separating them from each other like she was plucking bay leaves from a stem. When you first came here... I didn't come to your aid because I am a nice person. Rosha moved to object, but Maura waved her off. In the dim candlelight, she suddenly looked too small for her chair. No, Yera, I am an effective person, and the core of being effective is understanding your limitations. Mine include the fact that I'm not nice. But since you've been here, I wish that I were, because perhaps it would cause more people like you to be a part of my life. Now, sitting at the dinner table a night later, Rosha felt an unexpected sadness. Tonight might be the last night she heard Maura's proper modes of speech, her crooked little sense of humor. Rorschach had always hated the nobility, but if she'd been born into it like Lady Yera was supposed to have been, she and Maura would have been friends.
She stayed at the table a while longer, stretching out the moments, then stifled a yawn, smiling in embarrassment. I'm sorry. I think I had a little too much fun last night. She excused herself to her room, undressed, then blew out her candles. Sitting in the darkness, she was terribly tired, but she made herself stay up until it was time to climb down to the street and get her ass to the park. That night, with a mission on the line, she was the first to arrive. Sorowin showed up five minutes later, looking mildly spooked. Rorschach assessed him. You're nervous? No, he said. Yes. Good. We're about to put ourselves in danger. You work with someone who isn't afraid of that, and they'll put you in danger. But the enemy won't know we're there. And if they find us, they'll have no idea what we're capable of. The strain on his face eased marginally. I keep the loon in a hole in the oak tree, up the lane from my monastery. He described the exact spot and how to use her blood to activate it. If anything happens to me, you'll need it to speak with Dante. They headed toward the river. Sorowin was dressed in the clothes he'd traveled to Bressel in, plain, sturdy coat and trousers. They didn't look like predators or prey, and drew no attention. At the docks, rats scurried for spilled grain and scraps of fish. She and Sorowin each killed one, returned them to whatever weird not-life the nether provided them, and pocketed them. Lanterns were already glowing from the docks of Keller's Pier. Guards patrolled, swords on hips, but rather than the blue of the king, they were wearing plain brown clothes. Rorschach hunched beside a warehouse, watching them make their rounds. Nobody seemed to be patrolling outside the iron fence. They circled around the back of the neighboring warehouse. Rorschach helped Sorowin climb up to the roof. He was terrible at it, almost dashed his brains out twice. She prayed they wouldn't have to make a daring escape. They crawled along the gently sloped rough wooden shingles, setting up against a stone chimney with a vantage of the docks. They'd left their rats down on the ground. They sent them meandering through the iron fence, moving from shadow to shadow until they were positioned near the base of the piers. Rorschach still couldn't hear much through her rat's ears, but at least she could see everything that it could. They waited, listening to the wash of the river, the crunch of the guard's boots, and the thunderous peals of laughter from the pub down the way. An hour later, carriages clattered through the darkness. Three vehicles arrived at the rear gate to Keller's Pier and were allowed inside. The carriages stopped at the front of the warehouses and disgorged a surprising number of men. The tall man got out, broad-shouldered, folding his arms as he watched his soldiers arrange themselves across the grounds and his servants unload heavy boxes from the backs of the carriages. That's our man, Rosha whispered. Walpole. Sorowin nodded, so earnest that she had to look away or burst into laughter. 
As another man scooted out from the carriage, arranging his grey robes around himself, Rorschach's grin died on her face. Shit! Kill the rat! What? Why? Kill it now! She slashed the connection to her rat. A flash of darkness filled her eyes, then blanked out. Beside her, Sorowin jerked. He squinted, then turned to her, young face bent in confusion. She pointed. See the priest? You think he would have sensed us? Rosha nodded. And now I'm wondering what they're doing that requires the skills of an ethermancer. The priest fussed with his robes a moment longer, then moved to stand alone, slowly swiveling his head to watch the grounds. The servants milled about, coagulating into small groups. As minutes crept past, Rorschach shifted position against the hard shingles. A soldier pointed upstream, calling out an order. Servants drifted toward the docks. Rorschach followed their gaze up the river. White squares cohered from the gloom. Sails. The hulls were patches of blackness against the starlight shimmering on the river. A small armada came to bear, sidling up to the docks and tying fast. The ships were long and slender, riding low in the water. A woman debarked and made her way to land, long, loose hair flapping down her back. Walpole moved before her. They clasped hands. She talked for a while, as Walpole nodded gravely. Sailors came to shore, gathering to the side. In time, the woman gestured to the pier she'd walked down. She and Walpole made their way to one of the ships, climbed aboard, and disappeared below decks. They were gone for several minutes. When Walpole emerged, he gestured to a cluster of soldiers waiting at the foot of the docks. They fanned out, going from boat to boat. Walpole moved on a second ship, pacing its top deck before descending to the hold. Once the inspections were done, Walpole and the woman from the ships met on dry land. Teams of servants lifted the heavy boxes and brought them before the two officials. Walpole flipped open a lid. Heaped silver shined in the night. The woman clapped, calling to her sailors. They loaded the chests into two of the ships. The woman talked with Walpole a while longer, then returned to her crew. The pair of ships they'd taken the cash into cast off and started rowing upstream, leaving the many other boats behind at the docks. A few of Walpole's people went into the warehouses. Most returned to the carriages, which exited the gates at the rear, hoofbeats fading into the night. Within minutes, the piers were quiet again, patrolled only by a trio of sentries. Need to find out what's in the boats. Rosha propped herself on her elbows. Ready to knife some watchmen? You want to kill them? That's typically what knives do. She let him twist a moment, then grinned. No knives, not unless something goes very wrong. I'll sneak onto the boats while you keep watch. They climbed down the back of the warehouse and walked two piers north of Keller's. 
Roshaw ran Sorrowin through the plan, which was as simple as they got. She'd shudder walk onto the docks and check out the ships, while he made sure nothing came up on her while she was below decks. They edged south along the riverbank, stopping one pier away. Sorrowin hunkered down in the shadow of the dock. Roshaw stepped into the shadows. The river and its reflected stars were already silver and black. In the netherworld, they glowed with the intensity of a black sun. She ran forward, stepping lightly over the mud at the edge of the shore. The iron fence ran all the way to the water. She crossed the shallows, the water feeling as thick as sand beneath her feet, then jumped up the side of the closest dock, grabbing the edge of its decking and swinging herself lightly up top. The three sentries remained in the yard, mostly watching the fence while casting occasional glances at the dark piers. Rorschach hurried past the nearest pair of boats, berthed at either side of the dock, putting a little more distance between herself and the guards, then jumped aboard the next ship she came to. The deck was clean and bare. She found the ladder below decks, dropping to the bottom and landing in a crouch. After a glance to all sides, she fell out from the shadows. She stood in a square of starlight. The rest of the hold was as dark as death. It smelled bilgy, but also strongly of pine wood and pitch. She let her eyes adjust. The hold was mostly empty, a few barrels and crates secured against the walls. Rorschach moved from the ladder, got out her flint, and lit a candle. She pried open the lid of a barrel, releasing the odor of potent beer. The one next to it held salted fish. Several others were empty. She checked from stem to stern, even knocking on the bulkheads near the front and back to search for hidden compartments. Finding nothing of interest, she ascended to the deck. A breeze tousled her hair. The grounds between the docks and the warehouses remained quiet. Dropping into the shadows just to cover her advance to the next ship felt like a waste. She crossed to the dock, crawling on her belly to the boat across from her. Its hold was every bit as uninteresting as the first one had been. A sense of unease dripped into her stomach like sour liquor. She moved on to the next pair of ships at the end of the long dock. Their cargo was yet more salted fish and bitter-smelling beer, whose odor was surprisingly similar to the planks of the hull. Bare essentials of sustaining a crew during a voyage. Nothing to justify the expense in Walpole's order. Had they already carted the goods inside? Rosha ran the scene back through her mind. Walpole and a few of his people had gone onto the boats. Walpole had paid the woman. She'd left with her people. Walpole and all but a few soldiers had left. No stevedores had entered the ships. Either the goods had been small enough for Walpole and his soldiers to remove themselves, and they'd brought down a whole fleet to protect those goods from pirates, or the cargo was still on board.
she climbed back up to the deck. Not wanting to take any chances, she hopped into the shadows, ran down the pier as fast as she could, hit land, and moved on to the next dock. She jumped aboard the closest ship and down the hatch to the hold. As soon as her feet hit the boards, she bounced back to the real world. She lit her candle, grabbed the iron crow from its pegs on the wall, and slid its flat end under the lid of a crate. The nails held fast. Roshaw bore down on the bar, grunting with effort. With a wrenching squeak, the lid flew open. She stumbled back, the iron crow flying from her grasp. Before it could clang to the floor, she threw herself forward, catching it and landing with a thump. Heart beating harder, she leaned over the top of the crate. It was filled with dried apples. She swore the words echoing closely in the damp, piney hold. She sniffed the air, then frowned down at the foodstuffs. She lifted her eyes to the ceiling. What if she wasn't finding anything because there wasn't anything to find? What if the order... Shouts sounded from outside. One was a man with a deep voice. The other was Sorrowin. She clambered up the ladder and peered over the gunwale. The grey-robed priest stood on the dock, halfway toward the boat, back turned to her. Sorrowin moved to the foot of the dock. A spark of ether shimmered in the priest's hand. Get out! Sorrowin's command quaked with nerves. He gestured as if to ward the man off, but his eyes were pointing down the dock, toward Rasha. He wanted her to run, to get out so that someone could tell Galand what they'd found— Sorrowin was clearly scared. As the ether grew in the priest's hands, the boy's widening eyes mirrored its size and brightness. But he was still walking forward, commanding the priest's attention. He was young enough that he probably thought his death would make any difference. Light seared from the priest's hand, trailing an incandescent stream. Sorrowin's arm squiggled forward spasmodically, Shadows spraying everywhere in an undisciplined spurt. Rorschach glanced at the dark waters. A quick dive into the shadows and the river, and she could be out of Keller's Pier without anyone having known she'd been there. Yet something held her back. Maybe it was that Sorwin was young, no longer a child, but not yet an adult. And she'd never been able to let the young get ground up in the gears of the world. Or maybe it was the latent urge to push her new powers and learn what she could really do. Couldn't Shadow walk up on the priest? He'd feel her coming, boot her out. Probably when she was so close that he'd rip her apart before she had time to defend herself. She bit open her lip and ran forward, the dock's boards bouncing under her feet. She spread her hands wide to scoop up every shadow she could find— Nether streamed to the warm blood sliding down her chin. She bent it into a big, black scythe and hurled it at the priest. He continued to hammer at Sorrowin, straight rays of light blasting the younger man's whirl of shadows. Her blade sped toward the priest's back in perfect silence. She held her breath, waiting for it to pass through him, and for his body to slide in half. He whipped his head around, pushing his right palm forward. 
A tight line of whiteness glared from his hand. It struck the scythe in the center, shattering the shadows. A few quick pokes of ether took care of the few shards of nether still coming his way. Rorsha had sent a whale of a strike at him, and he deflected and destroyed it with a few precise counter-thrusts. Because he was more skilled, or because that was simply the way the nether and ether worked. Galant had talked about this stuff, but she couldn't remember what he'd said. She lobbed a needle of shadows at the priest. Harried on both sides, he barely had time to shape his counter. A finger-sized rod of light lanced toward her needle, obliterating them both. So, it was a game of quickness and subtlety. Rather than broadswords, they were dueling with thin, twitchy blades. She smiled. Sarwan locked eyes with her, grinning back. A blast of ether illuminated his face, yanking his attention back to the priest. Rorschach jabbed at the enemy from her side, obliging him to turn to her before he could set up a killing sequence against Sorowin. Face reddened with wrath, the priest came at her with a flurry of attacks. It was too fast for her mind to follow, but somehow her hands spun out one answer after another, taking on a rhythm like fencing. Or no, more like music, like listening to it, or like inventing a song as you played. The notes and nether bending in ways you could never have predicted, but which always sounded right in hindsight. She became lost in it, like the nether was wielding her. Everything in front of her grew sharper and brighter, while everything around her dimmed out. Time slowed, and then it was something deeper than music, deeper than thought. Like she imagined the animals felt, the wolf out on the hunt, or the owl in flight. She'd never felt much for religion, no more than a light stirring or the occasional yearning towards something more. Yet, as she wielded the shadows, she knew what it was to believe, and better, to speak with powers greater than herself. They'd only been dueling for a matter of seconds, but already the nether was getting sticky, slower to arrive at her hands. Across from her, Sorowin's face was taut with effort. The priest looked tasked, too, but there was no telling how much juice he had left in the squeeze. She couldn't seem to get past his defenses, but she could still disrupt them. She flicked a needle at his head, and followed this with a denser wedge of shadows. As he gestured to parry the first strike, she sent the wedge driving downward, hammering into the planks a few feet from him. The boards splintered apart and upended beneath his feet, dropping him half a foot. He yelled in surprise. Sorrowin jerked his hand forward, as if swatting at a spider. Darkness zipped into the priest's back. He cried out, jerking forward, still caught in the broken boards. Rorschach drove a black spike into his forehead. Sorrowin grinned then grimaced in horror at the sight of the slack body. No time for feelings. Soldiers were already streaking from the warehouse toward the docks. Rorschach flicked bolts of nether from her hand like throwing darts. They converged on the lead soldier, cartwheeling him to the dirt. 
She grabbed Sorowan's sleeve, he was still staring at the dead priest, and pulled him along the pier toward the river. An arrow hissed past them, splashing down in the water. Roshaw skidded to a stop at the end of the pier. There, a rowboat bobbed in the current. Rosha had spotted it while checking out the boats, noting it in the space in her mind dedicated to making sure she always had another way out, if not two or three. She shoved Sorowan inside and untied the rowboat's rope from the cleat. They shoved off, Rosha rowing hard, the current sweeping them downstream from Keller's pier. His body was just... Sorowan said. He was gone, like a shank of beef. Rosha dug her oars into the water. Yep, but how can that be right? He shouldn't have gotten in a fight with us. You okay? Yeah, yes, I think. Are you? She nodded, gazing back at the pier. The soldiers were swarming into one of the smaller warships. Within moments, they were free of the docks, oars punishing the water. They'd be on the rowboat in another minute. Got much juice left, she said. Juice? Nether. Oh, uh, some. He glanced back at the advancing ship. Not enough to fight an army. We only need a little. In a few seconds, I need you to put a shadow sphere on the rowboat. Extend it past the gunnels, but don't cover the whole boat. Leave the stern uncovered. You want me to hide us so they can still see us? Just do it, okay? Behind them, a man called out, spotting them. Rosha rode on, giving them a few more seconds to catch up. Now! They were swallowed in darkness. For an instant, she was afraid she'd been shot in the head with an arrow and was now dead. But she could still smell the river, feel the water tugging at the oars, hear the soldiers calling out in suspicion. She pulled in the oars. We're going over the side, she said. Keep your head low and the sphere up. Follow me toward the closest dock. Us away! She rolled over the side, plunging into the water. It was cold enough, her whole body went tight. She swam underwater toward the west, pulling free of the dark sphere, then surfaced, keeping no more than her nose and eyes above the water. Sarawan surfaced right in front of her, making her flinch back. They were almost parallel with a dock fifty yards back toward the shore. Avoiding any splashing, Rorschach paddled for it. The rowboat drifted downstream. The warship cut past them, oars bubbling through the water. Archers stood in the prow, bows bent. Men yelled out to the rowboat. Getting no response, the sergeant gave the order to loose arrows. They thunked into the rowboat's hull. Rorschach came level with the dock, pulling herself along it. Nearing the shore, loose flaps wrapped around her ankles. She kicked at the weeds and pulled herself dripping onto the firm mud. Sorowan was right behind her looking like a half-drowned cat. She pointed toward the streets. They took off at a run, stiff from the cold swim. Water squished from their boots. Dry clothes first, she said. Then we need to go to the loon. 
You found the cargo? What was it? Nothing. Nothing? Okay. You get to tell Dante that one. They weren't delivering goods, she said. They were delivering the ships. Sarawan stared at her like a cow. After a moment, his eyes popped wide. Dante cut off overland routes into the Colin Basin, so Malin built a fleet to invade instead. Did you see their hulls? Flat-bottomed. They can land anywhere. If we don't warn Colin, they'll never see the invasion until it's already behind their defences. Chapter 25 The claws of the rats gouged his skin as they climbed up his body. Some stopped on his torso, pawing to his organs like a dog digging into sand. One continued up his neck and came to his face. Compelled, Gladick opened his mouth. The rat reached inside his mouth with intelligent delicateness, took hold of his tongue, and tugged. The tongue pulled away, as easily as dough with too little water. He awoke from the dream sheathed in sweat. He lay in the bottom of a war canoe. Stars and clouds fought to be seen through the wicked branches of the trees. Before the dream could fade, he held it in his mind remembering the pain of his mutilation and the feelings that had arrived with each hurt. He did so in part to punish himself, but also to tease out the dream's meaning. There were some who believed that dreams could hold visions sent by the gods. Pagans thought they were the dreams of dead spirits passing through you, or worse, that they weren't the spirits' dreams of their experience in the afterlife. Others yet held that dreams were utter nonsense. Gladick thought none of these things. He believed that dreams were missives from the soul. The rats had been galands. It would be simple enough to conclude that he was simply afraid of the sorcerer hunting him down again, but the primary emotion he'd felt on being eviscerated by the rats hadn't actually been fear. Not of physical violence and pain, at least. Rather, he felt as though he was being judged, and he'd feared that he deserved it. Drifting on the waters of the swamp, among the splash of the oars and the scent of the night, he let his mind drift as well. Galand dogged him everywhere he went. The man's pursuit extended beyond all reason. What if that was because he was beyond reason? Perhaps he wasn't in command of his own faculties. He might have been possessed by the gods to punish Gladick. How else to explain his willingness to leave the land he ruled and risk his life so many times? Not long ago, Gladick would have considered these thoughts of his persecution, first with self-pity and then with rage. But he had changed, hadn't he? Yes, he had. He knew guilt, 
In truth, it had always been there. Yet his calling in Colin had been so righteous that he'd locked away his guilt like a filthy criminal. Now it rushed through him like the celicet. It was strong enough to have compelled him to roll out the side of the canoe into the waters and their vicious fish, or to blast a beam of ether between his ears. But he was now on a quest of far greater gravity than what he'd failed to do in Colin. The thought struck him like a thunderbolt. Likely the gods had cursed him in Colin in order to return him to Tanaratain. And that was the truth within the dream of the rats. For rather than fearing them, he had accepted their terror, knowing his path was just. He would carry that same acceptance into the depths of the Gokaza. No matter the pains and horrors that awaited him, he would make his stand against the evil that brewed in the shadows. Either way, he would find peace. Either he would bring light to the darkness that would consume the world and no redemption, or what awaited him at the wound would put an end to this wretched life, where gods played with men like toys and evil stood proudly on all sides. He sat up in the boat. They were sailing in brute darkness, barely able to see what lay ahead. In the Golcaza, it was better that way. The armada struck out from the captured city, oars churning the stagnant water. Dozens of canoes bore hundreds of soldiers away from Darabod. It wasn't the most overwhelming war band Dante had ever seen, but to the rebels' best knowledge, they easily outnumbered the forces that had escaped with the Drake Bane. The goal would be to run the enemy down before they could gain recruits from other towns and garrisons. Dante sat in a double-hulled canoe next to Riza. Holding the mousebone in his hand, a steady pressure built in his forehead. Northeast. He pointed inland, adjusting his finger. Straight ahead. Riza called the directions to Commander Bahrain, an older man with a piercing, hollowed-out glare, then turned back to Dante. Do you know how far? Dante closed his eyes, examining the shape of the pressure hidden beneath his brow like a third eye. Fifty miles from here, give or take, but they're on the move, too. He'd tried more than once to send a dragonfly to shadow their foes, but whenever the insects had drawn close, his connection to them had been severed. He didn't know if that was the doing of Gladig, the Drakebane's sorcerers, the so-called Knights of Odosein, or another force entirely. He had too many questions and too few answers. Doriza had been so busy organizing the pursuit that Dante hadn't had the chance to speak with him since reaching their agreement. But now that they were underway, Riza appeared to have few immediate responsibilities. I know how to deal with Gladig, Dante said, but I don't know how to combat the Knights of Odosein. 
What can you tell me about them? Riza took a seat on a rowing bench, gazing ahead into the trees, vines, and clouds of gnats. The knights of Odo Sein exist outside the body of Tanaratain. Rather, they are its sword. They are devoted, they are potent, and they are vicious. When we fought them, they seemed to be able to stop all sorcery in its tracks. Riza chuckled. That is precisely what they were created to do. Above all else, they are the reason Tanara Tain lives in misery. Many years ago, an order of sorcerers sought to topple the Drakebane dynasty. To their credit, they succeeded. To their disgrace, when the deposed tyrant returned from the wilds with the Odosein, the sorcerers had no answer to their powers. Do they use artifacts to suppress the nether, or can they do this through a magic of their own? If I knew a secret like that, they would have killed me long ago. Is it safe to assume they'll be traveling with the Drakebane? Oh, yes. They are his bodyguards, servants, and executioners. How many will there be? The nobleman shrugged lightly. The Erosain keep their ways secret. Their numbers, too. Personally, I'd count them at no more than a score. But the Odosein have always been more interested in the hinterlands than the cities. Who knows how many more they have lurking out in the deep swamps. And they were created to stop sorcery. The Drakebane will tell you that our own sorcerers forged them to defeat the Dragon of Ages and his manifold demons. But the Drakebane would say that. In the old ways, the ways that were drowned out in the babble of a billion beliefs, there was no mention of the Odosein. Our defeat of the dragon was always a temporary victory, and it was told that one day, for all our efforts, we would finally lose. Dante was immediately intrigued. He knew almost nothing of Tenarian religious beliefs, other than that they didn't seem to believe in the Selicet. Such a thing was bizarre, almost eerie. Gask, Narashtavik, Galador, Hukali, and Tatonin all, more or less, followed the same tenets. Malin denied Aron's status, but otherwise recognized the same gods and goddesses. Colin and Elibolgia emphasized things that were simply wrong, or beside the point, if you wanted to be charitable, yet the questionable branches of their faith extended from the same trunk Narashtavik grew from. Hell, even the Wesleyans believed in a system that had its roots in the Selicet. Every corner of the continent believed in some form of the Twelve Gods. Well, except the Norin, at least, who followed their own ways, as they always did. But Dante thought that human and Norin beliefs could coexist without contradiction. It made sense that different races could be overseen by and responsible to different gods. But as far as he knew, the Tenarians were human. It was harder to see how their beliefs could coexist with the fact of the Selicet. 
Regretfully, he didn't have time to explore that just now. I know I can put Gladick down, Dante said, but the Odosein are another matter. If you can think of anything that could help me deal with them, we'll all be in a better position to do less dying. He turned and waved his arms over his head, signaling Volo to bring her canoe beside Riza's vessel. They'd been offered space in one of the command ships, but Dante had thought it wiser to maintain some semblance of independence. Volo matched the double hollow's speed and course, drawing within inches of it. Dante hopped across. He explained what he'd learned. Blaze listened with a single-mindedness he rarely displayed outside of their strategy sessions. Naren paid close mind, too, although he sat with his hands folded and his spine straight, as if he were an attentive student. Dante nodded at the sword sheathed at Blaze's hip. The short of it is that, right now, the only weapons we have to fight the Odosein with are one of their own swords and a dirty lizard horn. We have to come up with more. None of your skills worked in their presence, Naren said. I couldn't so much as touch the nether to put it to use. It was like it was locked behind a glass case. Same with the ether. Same here, Blaze said. I couldn't shadow walk. Couldn't get a bridge going. The captain frowned at the looted sword. Yet you say their weapons displayed unnatural powers. Their swords were crackling with so much nether, they were as purple as a twisted nipple. That's a damn fine question, Dante said. Why do the swords work when nothing else does? The question lingered in the canoe like an odor no one wanted to claim. Blaze brushed off a cobweb they'd just passed through. Do you actually expect us to be able to answer this? While I'm at it, should I also explain why bad things happen to good people? I expect you to try to help. Dante reached out his hand. Here, give me the sword. Blaze unbuckled it, passing it over sheathed. Dante drew it slowly. Initially, the metal was a dull black, as inauspicious as a sleeping body. But once it was free of the scabbard and exposed to the light and air, bolts of silver-black nether sizzled from its crossguard to its tip, turning purple and then fading from sight, only to be replaced by a new wave of shadows. Dante followed them down to their apparent source. The grip, crafted from a swamp dragon's horn. Yet the tough chitin deflected his efforts to move inside it. He could have used the nether to scrape a hole in it, but with extremely little desire to accidentally destroy their only working artifact, he turned to the swamp dragon horn instead. Wielding the nether like a carver's chisel, he chipped away at the horn's armored exterior. Minutes later, he broke through. He was expecting a reaction of some kind, a blast of shadows, or even, for some reason, a small explosion. But nothing happened at all. The hollow interior was nothing more than an empty chamber, roughly the size of an index finger. Dante turned the horn in his hand. There's nothing there. 
Maybe it's only a useful vessel, Blaze said. Try cutting into the one on the sword to see what's in it. What if I damage it? So what? If you break it, can't you use the ether to restore it? That's just... Dante was about to call it idiotic, but once he stilled his metaphorical knee, he rubbed his chin in thought. A good way to learn how to fight back against our lethal and mysterious foe? Rather than verbally conceding Blaze had a point, Dante carefully worked away at the pommel of the sword, leaving the blade sheathed. As the horn's outer shell thinned, Dante quieted his mind, preparing to send the ether to reverse his work. But on boring to the center, he found it was hollow, too. He gave it a good inspection with the nether, then sat back with a scowl. Empty. I'll refrain from comparing it to anyone's skull. Neren cleared his throat. You're certain that when the sword is in active use, the nether is coming from the horn? I'm not certain of anything. When you approach a problem, certainty is the enemy of the solution. Could this be similar to your loons? I've been thinking about that, Dante said. But if a nethermancer watched a loon in action, even if they didn't understand how it worked, they'd still be able to see the shadows powering it. With this, I'm not seeing anything. He drew the sword again. Dark lightning shimmered along the blade. This was an encouraging sight, as it meant he hadn't ruined anything. Yet, but even with the hole dug into the horn, he still didn't see any source for the power. The weapon wasn't drawing Nether from outside itself, either. He spent a good minute passively observing, then a long span poking, massaging, and vigorously eyeballing every square inch of the weapon. Satisfied that there was nothing to see, and highly dissatisfied that that was so, Dante became thoughtless, asking the ether to restore the item to its original purity. The hole in the horn faded. He sheathed the sword. This makes no sense. It has to be coming from somewhere. Nether can't just appear like magic. Blaze looked stupefied, then grinned like a kid who's discovered where his parents hid the cake. Yes, it can. If that's what you believe, it's no wonder you can barely conjure up enough Nether to dab a quill in. The shadows are always there. True enough, but you can't always see them. Dante leaned back. His mind spit out the answer like a lemon pip. Like the cycle. You think? I do my best not to, but sometimes I can't stand to watch you flail about. So let's find out. Hand over your torch, Stone. The horn, too. Dante rummaged through his bag and handed over the stone and the horn. Blaze picked up the sword, whisked it from its sheath with a flourish he'd obviously spent many hours practicing, and disappeared. Volo paddled on. The canoes were approaching a narrow gap through the trees. Captains hollered orders, directing the armada into a double-file line. 
As soon as the force passed through the gap, they dispersed once again. Blaze returned with a self-satisfied smile, the torch stone shining in his hand. He sheathed the sword and held the stone up to the hole in the horn. Take a look. Dante peered inside, but the core was no longer hollow. Instead, it was filled with six black stars, a couple of inches across, stacked one on top of the other. Tracers? That's what they look like to me. Then again, I'm just the humble sellsword who sometimes has to do your job for you. Dante laughed. Nothing raised his spirits like making progress toward an answer. What if the Odosayin are able to clamp down on the shadows in our world, but their ability can't reach into the netherworld? So, if you're drawing on something from the netherworld, such as the tracers, their ability can't stop you. Hence, they get to wave around these amazing glowing swords. Dante gazed in at the motionless black stars. There are enough tracers in here to form an andrak. Why aren't they merging? Maybe swamp dragons don't like having soul-eating demons spread from their horns. I could draw on these to fight the Odyssean. They wouldn't be able to stop me. Yeah, unless they think about using their netherial swords to bat down whatever you throw at them. Blaze drew the stolen sword a few inches, letting the ambient sunlight fall into the abyss of the blade. There isn't much nether in one of those horns. Rather than wasting it on a few black arrows that are spent as soon as you've used them, I say we make another sword. Dante held the weight of the horn in his hand. He'd meant to use it to learn how to battle the knights, but he supposed that forging it into a killing weapon would satisfy that girl rather well. But there was one large assumption looming over that plan that he'd be able to learn how to craft such a weapon before they ran into the Drakebane and his army. Yet there was nothing else to do but get started. Using the nether as a scalpel and a crowbar, he sliced and pried the wooden handle and leather wraps away from the tang of his plain sword. Once the steel rod was revealed beneath the crossguard, he carved a slot into the flat end of the horn and wiggled it over the tang, forming a new handle. The fit was already quite snug, but deviled by paranoid thoughts of the blade slinging itself free mid-swing, he stilled himself, allowed the ether to begin to mend the slot, then cut off the light's progress as soon as it started to close off the hole he'd cut in the horn's end. Dante tested the handle and found it gripped so tightly that none of them could budge it. He had hoped this process would take long enough for his mind to gin up the solution to how to make his sword do what Blazes did, but his hope was sadly misplaced. He drew the looted Odosein sword, observing the now visible traces flow up from the handle and into the blade, then turned to his weapon and instructed the traces in his dragon horn to follow suit. They moved, but there was nothing crackling or purple about them. They moved less like lightning and more like viscous oil, which they were about as sharp as, and rather than circling of their own accord, 
as soon as he stopped guiding them, they quit whatever they were doing and returned to the hilt. As he experimented with various configurations of the tracers, he didn't seem to be making any progress whatsoever. But sometimes progress was just a matter of trying dumb things until you stumbled on a smart one. Early that afternoon, the pressure in Dante's forehead began to increase slowly but steadily. They were catching up. At the rate it was going, he feared they might reach the deposed ruler and Gladick by the next morning. But as the sun tumbled toward the hazy horizon, the pressure stabilized. The enemy was on the move again. He took a break to clear his head. He'd tried to loom Sorrowin a few times over the last two days, but hadn't gotten any response. This time, the young man answered within moments. The boy told him that he and Rosha were on the verge of unraveling what seemed to be a major Malish military investment, one that was being overseen by Malin's Minister of the Eastern Reach. All signs pointed to the renewal of hostilities with Colin. Sorowin didn't know the nature of the investment, but seemed to think they'd have the answer within a few days. Let me know as soon as you've found it, Dante said. We won't directly intervene in Colin again, but if Malin's planning a final push to retake the basin, we can still warn them. I think this is about more than Colin, Sorowin hesitated. I think they're starting a drumbeat against Narashtovic, too. The priests are saying strange things, beliefs that didn't exist when I left here a few years ago. The boy recounted the priest's stories of a resurgent Darius, Lord of the North. Dante listened with a furrowed brow. You might be right, he said when the boy concluded. But scriptures and parables are often designed to be impenetrable to people who aren't steeped in your beliefs. Keep your ears open. We need to learn more. He closed the loon's connection, relaying what Sorowan had told him to Blaze. What if Malin's preparing a third invasion? Blaze said. Are we still going to leave Colin to face it on their own? We can't run off to Colin every time they're in trouble. Not without forsaking our own land. If things had been different between us, maybe I'd return a third time. But they decided they didn't need our help. Let's see if they're right. That's a bit cold. Blaze stared down at the murky water. But I don't think I disagree with you. Anyway, Gladick's the architect of the Malish plan. If we kill him, interest in fighting the coloners might collapse. As soon as Dante spoke these words, he wondered if they were true, or merely the balm of wishful thinking that allowed you to turn your back without the sting of guilt. Either way, he couldn't spend time worrying about what might befall Colin, not when he had his own troubles to tend to. He turned back to the matter of the swords. He thought to ask Neron whether Gladick had ever said anything about the Odo Sain during his interrogations, but Neron was curled up on a tarp next to a bench. The captain had been sleeping, and eating, a lot since being plucked out of the tower. Other than that, Neron seemed healthy enough in both body and mind. According to him, his arrest had been sudden and unexpected. 
He'd been making inquiries among his merchant contacts at the docks, and must have said something indiscreet in front of the wrong ears. Next thing Neron had known, he'd been snatched up by a gaggle of soldiers in green jabads, and informed that he'd committed the crime of sedition for prying into imperial business. After a round of questioning, they whisked him off to Darabod, where they tossed him into the Blue Tower, questioned him again, these had focused on his interest in foreigners inside Tanaratane, and then largely forgotten about him for multiple weeks. It hadn't been until Gladick's arrival that the Tanarians had resumed their questions, more forcefully than before. This time, they'd seemed quite concerned to learn that Neron did most of his business from Bressel, asking repeatedly what he knew about the Tenarian enterprise in the city. At last, Neron confessed that he'd come looking for Gladick, the malish priest, which had only prompted them to cut him up a bit more and ask if that was really the only reason he'd come to Arisosis. Other than the few days at the start and finish of his captivity, however, Neron had mostly been left to himself. If Dante had been trapped in a dingy cell with nothing to read and nothing to do, he would have spent each day practicing with the nether, assuming, for the sake of the scenario, he couldn't use it to open the walls or blast the entire tower apart. He couldn't imagine what it had been like to be so alone, and worse, to be separated from all of your interests, studies, and pursuit. With these dreary thoughts sliding around in his mind, he alternated between studying the authentic Odosein blade and trying to make his copy imitate it. As the afternoon wore on, a sluggish, mild nausea crept over his body. He tried to push through it, but soon found himself on the verge of vomiting and passing out, not necessarily in that order. He put away the swords and tried to soothe himself with nether, but it didn't seem to help. At sunset, the commanders ordered the canoes to a halt. Some of the soldiers bivouacked on small islands, while others bedded down in their boats. There was almost no chance of an attack, but the troops seemed less rowdy and argumentative than any group of Tenarians Dante had witnessed up to that point. After a dinner of fish and root paste, Riza sent a messenger to summon Dante to his island. Riza greeted him with no pretense of Danachide. How far? It's not precise enough for me to say for sure, Dante said, but we're closer than we started the day, maybe as much as five miles. The Lord stared into the north, face pinched. I fear we won't catch them for many days. I thought they'd be recruiting help. Won't that slow them down? Mustering their loyalists is only part of their plan. I believe they're making for the Gokaza, the land's wound. Sounds cheery. They'll hope we won't follow, Riza said grimly. It might be wiser if we didn't, but I don't think they're traveling to the Gokaza to hide where we dare not follow. I think they're going there to summon something unholy to their cause. Gladic demons, 
Maybe. Or maybe something worse. Dante tried to press him for more, but Risa had fallen into a dark mood. Dante returned to his island camp. Was Risa trying to sway him into supporting the rebels against the Drakebane's heinous tactics? It was hard to say for sure. Perhaps he was only venting. Yet a subtler approach was always more effective at convincing a neutral party to your side than it was to preach at or berate them. Whatever the case, he didn't care. Caring was Reza's job, along with the other leaders of the movement of the Righteous Monsoon. Dante didn't even have to care if the Righteous Monsoon won or lost. With that thought, he fell asleep with a smile. Morning came. The pressure in Dante's brow told him the enemy's northern path was drifting eastward. Hearing this news, Riza looked unhappy but unsurprised. As they set out, an unsteady rain beat at the waters. Whatever illness had afflicted Dante the day before was long gone, so he resumed trying to duplicate the captured sword. After an hour of getting nowhere, he sat back and got out the other artifact he'd successfully reproduced, the loon. The loons worked for two reasons. They used their own internal source of nether, requiring no input from him. In fact, they could easily be used by someone who had no talent with the shadows whatsoever. And their function was based on qualities found in the objects they were made from. In order to hear from and be heard by someone else, you built the loon from the skull bones of a creature that had once been able to hear. Being such a poor user of ether, he'd never tried to make a torch stone, but he understood the concept was similar. By using a base of azomite, a particular kind of cloudy gemstone that could focus ambient light into a brighter, condensed illumination, and imbuing it with ether, you could cause the stone to magnify and even create light. By comparison, it seemed as though the nether in the Odosein blade could magnify the cutting strength of the sword. But how to access the sword's inner virtue of sharpness, the ability to cleave, to take a hole and sunder it into two? In the afternoon, the flotilla came to a stop. Their force had been skirting the settlements they'd passed, but the scouts reported that a nearby village appeared empty. Fearing the Drakebane had orchestrated another massacre, the monsoon diverted to investigate. The Arda paddies had been ripped up, the roots plundered. The docks were intact, but most of the house rafts were gone. There were no bodies. It was as if everyone there had picked up and left, or been taken. They gathered food from what little remained and moved on. Dante had hoped the interruption would jar an idea loose from his mind, but he felt thoroughly stalled. Volo, he said, do you know any stories about the Odosein? The girl laughed. I got more stories about those bastards than a frog has pollywogs. Are there any involving their swords? You mean like the red tide of Farlow Lock?
Before I was born, the Drakebane's father, Evo Yoto, decreed his soldiers needed more ardor so they could fight back the interlopers from the deep swamps. He said that when harvest time came, he needed ten percent more from each village. Well, the people of Farlow Lock worked hard to meet their quota. But halfway through the growing season, a blight killed five out of every six plants. Harvest came, and Drakebane Evo sent Odosein to collect the Empire's share. But Farlow Lock couldn't meet their obligation. So the Odosein killed everyone, chopped them into bits. Dante waited for more. But Volo's laughter indicated that was the end of the story. What the hell does that have to do with the Odyssean swords? What do you think they used to kill the villagers? Blaze shrugged. The shame of not meeting their quota. I'm looking for something that gives me insight into anything unique about their swords— I'm already well-versed in the notion that swords as a class are capable of cutting people up. Volo stuck out her lower lip, swerving around a bare branch reaching out of the water. Well, that's about the only thing the Odosein do. Know what? Tell me any story that comes to mind. You never know when something vital's going to spring up. Volo launched into a string of tales, starting with the story of how the Odosein had created swamp dragons as mounts and ridden them to battle to expand the Tonarian Empire across the marshland. After several successful campaigns, however, the dragons had escaped their masters. They'd been living in the swamps and killing innocent travelers ever since. Next was the legend of Ro-Woto, widely regarded as the greatest swordsman of all the knights of his time. For years, his loyalty was as unparalleled as his skill. One day, he and several other knights were sent to travel into Yataga, a lesser kingdom that had been at war with the fledgling Tanara Tain. The knights were ordered to pick up a large group of Yatagan children, orphaned after a recent battle. Once they had their young chargers in their war canoes, the knights started back toward their homeland, where the orphans would be resettled. Ro-Woto was supposed to return by himself to Darabod to inform the Drakebane of their success. But he'd only gone a short ways before spotting a group of Yatagan warriors ahead. He turned back to warn the others and witnessed his fellow knights tossing the Yatagan children into the open swamp, then canoeing away as the Ziki Oko feasted. Seeing this, he was overcome with black wrath. He flung himself at his former brothers, striking down one after another until their bodies lay so thick on the water you could walk across them without getting your feet wet. It wasn't until seven Odosein surrounded him on the central platform of a war canoe that they were able to wound him. Even then, he fought on, his sword crackling against theirs, as he slew first one, then two, then four. But in the effort, the surviving three wounded him a second time. Ro-Woto collapsed to the deck.
As they closed on him, he was too weak to lift his sword arm. Yet he reached inside himself, and his soul streamed forth to his sword, and it lifted of its own accord, dancing between his foes like a skipperfish. When it finished, all three enemies fell dead. Then Rowoto smiled and died. But his soul stayed always with his sword. And whenever it was carried by another knight of Odosein, the bearer was inspired to help the helpless. After that, Volo told three quick stories about the pacification of the West, where the Odosein were deployed to put down an insurrection in the Western territories that had been spearheaded by a division of Malish priests sent to gain a foothold in Tanaratain. The knights were described as whirling through the enemy's soldiers like tree nodders, a type of local windstorm that made the trees seem to bob their heads. When the priests came forth to stop the slaughter with their magic, the Odosein called upon the stillness of rocks in the stream. When both light and dark were fastened in place, the Odosein lifted their blades, which blazed with shadows forged of the knight's own spines. The priests looked on in terrified wonder, spending their final thoughts to ask their gods why their magic had failed them, while the enemy's swords whistled down upon their necks, uniting them with the awful darkness. That's as morbid as something out of Dante's diary. Blaze eyed Volo. You said your people tell that story to children? It's the truth. Volo cocked her head. Do you foreigners lie to your children? We practically make a sport of it. How else are you going to get them to do what you want? Have you tried the truth? Truth doesn't work on them. Not when you've trained them to be unable to tell truth from lies, and why it matters. Blaze gave her a dirty look, sputtering for words. Dante, help me out here. You justify lying to people all the time. We lie to them to control them, Dante said. And because we're so frail, we can't imagine that they are not. When we lie to them, it isn't really to protect them. It's to protect ourselves, to allow us to pretend that they're the weak ones. Volo had stopped paddling. Her head twisted around to watch him. Her face had the stunned, almost alarmed look of a worshipper hypnotized by a sermon. Do you really believe that? Or is that just Dana Kide? I don't know. I wasn't even thinking about it until I said it. That's the sign the gods are speaking through you. She narrowed her eyes. At least that's what the Drake Bane wants us to believe. But we all know we already have the truth inside us. So what do we need the gods to tell us anything for? Before Dante had the chance to respond, she turned and drove her oar into the water, stroking hard to regain her place in the loose formation of boats. Dante was momentarily annoyed by her withdrawal from a debate she'd started, then remembered that he didn't give a damn. 
Instead, he silently recapped the stories she'd just told them. Usually he thought he had a good ear for what was historical fact and what was myth, but in Tanara Tain, the borders of truth felt as foggy as the mists. Even so, he thought he might have a lead. In both the last stand of Rowoto and the massacre of the Malish priests, the stories had said the Odosayin had drawn on something inside themselves to lend strength to their swords. He handed the night sword to Blaze. Take that into the shadows, will you? Watch it close and tell me if you see anything like you do when somebody's reading the cycle. Like nether flowing between me and the sword? Yes, but don't limit yourself to only looking for that. That's a good way to miss what's right in front of you. Blaze blinked from sight. Through the ripples in the shadows, Dante could feel him moving in slow, deliberate motions, like he was practicing a new sword form. Two minutes later, he reappeared in the canoe. The tracers are moving around like crazy. Blaze rolled his wrist, twisting the sword back and forth. But I'm not seeing anything coming out of me. You're sure of that? Why do you need me to test this? Do you think the sword's drawing on another trace, one we haven't seen yet? I think that's a possibility. Then we know how to test that, don't we? Give me the torch stone. Blaze reached out. Dante handed it over. Blaze walked into the shadows again. This time he was back within a matter of seconds, the torch stone glowing in his hand. Just lit myself up good. Now watch and tell me if you see anything. Blaze propped a knee on a seating bench and tilted his sword through a chain of techniques. The ether shining from the torch stone threw each moat of nether into sharp relief. Shadows gushed up from the handle of the sword, jagging along the blade before returning to the grip. As far as Dante could tell, however, none of these shadows were coming from Blaze himself. He watched for another couple of minutes, then cursed, pressing his fingers into his brow. There's nothing I hate more than having a great idea refuted by stupid reality. Then again, just because it didn't appear to be the traces, that didn't rule out all forms of nether. What if they'd been powering the swords with the common nether inside their own bodies? Dante lifted the sword he'd been working on, reached inside himself, and summoned the shadows from his blood and bones. It looked and acted no different from the nether he could have called out of the water or the mud, but it was always possible that it contained properties he didn't know about. He sent it into the traces in the sword's handle. This accomplished nothing. Except, he supposed, that it ruled out one more possibility for how to craft the swords. This might have been useful, except that he suspected that the ways to not create the swords, were infinite in number. He was getting frustrated again. Frustration was the enemy of discovery. Before it could poison his mind, he set down his sword and picked up the Odosayin weapon. 
As the nether swept out of the handle and coursed along the blade, it sizzled and jerked, flowing and branching as unpredictably as turbulent water. Yet the longer he watched it, the more convinced he became that there were small patterns within the chaos. Or if not patterns, for they didn't repeat themselves exactly, then tendencies. It was like watching water pour down an uneven slope. While it looked like it was going whichever way it pleased, and often did just that, over time it was prone to follow the same routes. He didn't think the nether's course along the blade had to do with the shape of the sword itself, at least not its physicality. Nether could pass straight through the steel without knowing it was there. Why, then... Did it follow these patterns? And if it wasn't following the physical planes of the sword, what was it following? As he turned these questions over in his mind, a dull ache formed in his head. His stomach started to toss and turn like a young soldier whose fear of the coming battle won't let him sleep. He found it more and more difficult to concentrate. Bad airs from the swamp, probably. But when he tried to cleanse his blood with nether, it didn't help in the slightest. Blaze and Volo appeared unaffected. Even Neron, thinned and weakened by captivity, slept peacefully. If it was bad air, it seemed unusually interested in him. And, come to think of it, it only seemed to afflict him when he was handling the Odosane blade. Do me a favor, he asked Blaze. Will you hold the sword for a while? My wrist's getting tired. Blaze shook his head in disgust. Should I find a pillow for your delicate ass, too? Just trying to find a way to make you useful. Blaze took up the sword. Dante resumed observing the shadows snapping along the blade, sketching out any tendency that repeated more than twice. He'd run out of ink many days ago, and the Tenarians didn't seem to use writing instruments at all, just their string-harp things. This had required him to fill his inkpot with a small quantity of his own blood. Running low, he paused to refill it. Blaze made a gagging sound. That's easily among the five grossest things you've ever done, and I've seen you stick your hands inside corpses like you're looking for prizes. You're afraid of blood now. What do you think is the red stuff that comes out of all the people you stab? I just set it free. I don't play with it. Dante rolled his eyes and continued sketching, filling one page and moving on to the next. The effort helped distract him from the illness he felt, which was slow in fading. After ten minutes, Blaze was making swallowing noises. After fifteen, Dante glanced up and saw that his tan skin was ashy, with sweat beading across his forehead. He set down his quill something the matter. It feels like I've been stricken with a hangover. If so, I'd really like to know where I found all those spirits so I can do it again. 
How long have you been feeling this way? Blaze shrugged. The last few minutes. It came on fast. How would you describe it? I'm not a physician, but I'd say it's a general shittiness of the head, followed by a shittiness of the gut. Feels like something's sucking the strength right out of me. Have you experienced something like this before? Like I said, hangovers. Blaze frowned. Hold on. You're deducing something. Were you expecting this? I think, Dante said, that the sword is consuming our traces. What do you mean, our traces? The one each of us carries inside. The one that's left behind in the shadows when we die. Blaze swallowed again, then glanced in horror at the sword and flung it to the bottom of the canoe. As soon as he let go, the purple nether vanished from the now inert blade. You mean it's been sucking my soul? Blaze wiped his hand on the side of his jabbat. When were you planning to tell me? Once it happened. What if part of my soul's gone for good? I'll turn into you. Lyle's balls, will you calm down? The same thing happened to me yesterday, and I'm fine today. It happened again about an hour ago, and I'm already feeling better. Slightly. Slightly. When you spend nether, it tries to return to wherever you called it from. It just takes a little time. I'm betting the traces are no different. Blaze ran his palms down his face. It's immensely comforting to know that my soul will probably come back to me eventually. You couldn't have waited until tomorrow to confirm this on yourself. Always better to confirm a phenomenon's existence by using a second subject. Dante picked up the blade. As the nether began to whirl about its edges, he sheathed it, then pointed to the hilt. The stored tracers aren't getting used up. They're circling back and forth around the blade, providing its cutting power. But what powers them? In the legends Volo told us, when the Odosein needed to, they were able to draw Nether from within themselves and channel it into their sword. But we looked for this exact thing earlier and couldn't see it. We thought that proved it couldn't be the traces, but we fell victim to our own egos. We couldn't see the traces in action, but that isn't hard proof that they aren't part of the process. All that proves is we might be morons. Here's what we know for sure. The sword isn't consuming its own nether. Meanwhile, it's draining something from us. And there's a historical record of it doing the same to others. Blaze burped in discomfort, then winced. Then you can only use it for so long each day before it starts to kill you? Seems like. Although it's possible it doesn't have to be powered by the wielder's trace. Maybe when you kill someone with it, it can use their trace instead. Uh, you suppose that's where the traces in the lizard's horn came from? The people it's killed? That's possible. So what happens if you run through your own trace? Does the sword break? Could be.
Dante said. Either that, or you do. Logically, the next step was to locate his own trace within himself. However, given that his trace had already been depleted to the point of illness, Dante thought it best to carry on with that line of exploration after he'd recovered. Instead, he studied his sketches, searching for anything that could help him understand how to guide or align the traces trapped in the swamp dragon's horn. Throughout the day, the pressure in his head inched steadily upward. By the afternoon, it was increasing rapidly. Sometime later, the enemy began to move northeast again, but the monsoon was still gaining ground. Or water, as it were. Dante made sure that Riza knew this, which made it all the more surprising when Commander Bahrain called for the flotilla to stop and make camp shortly after four that afternoon. Blaze frowned. We're stopping already? There's still nearly two hours of daylight. Volo made a murmuring noise. We're about to enter the deep swamp. Bet they want to spend as few nights there as possible. What's in the deep swamp? Things that make you want to stay out of it. Dante helped make camp, then got back to his sketches. He'd made around fifty. Flipping through his parchment, the images seemed to be suggesting something. But if so, the message was too subtle, or he was too dim to understand it. That night, Little green lights bobbed over the waters. He thought they might be fireflies, but sometimes the lights faded, darkening away to nothing. Other times they held perfectly still, as if watching the soldiers sleep. He awoke to rain falling on his face. He hadn't had time to stop being angry about that before Riza called him over to the nobleman's island. Servants scurried about, packing up tents and rolling up down-stuffed mattresses made from a Tenarian fabric woven so tightly that the feathers' quills couldn't stick through. Sorcerer! The doe's eyes skipped from tree to tree, occasionally dipping to the water, which was swirled with rainbow-colored oil. Be on watch today. For what? Dante said. The enemy's at least twenty miles ahead of us. The deep swamps lie ahead. The creatures there are rarely disturbed. Duly noted. Riza shifted, glancing at Dante and then back to the trees. Yet even these reaches aren't uninhabited. If you see anyone traveling without a boat, warn me at once. How would they get around without a boat? Are there no Ziki Oko? They are much rarer here. Is the water that shallow? Or do the people swim around? Riza cranked his head around to meet Dante's eyes. Do you doubt my words? The better I understand what we're getting into, the better I can protect us. Protecting us is my duty. Your duty is to abide my orders. Am I understood? Dante nodded and returned to his island. The flotilla advanced into the bog, 
The color of the waters shifted from a rich brown to an ochre laced with metallic ribbons that gleamed dully beneath the overcast light. With this change in water, the trees changed too, the singular boles replaced by irregularly braided orange trunks, as if several plants had congregated together for safety. Rather than willowy, draping branches, their boughs were angular and jagged, sporting slender black leaves. Some wore clumps of a dark matter that looked like sticky fur. Nearly a third of the craft were deployed as scouts, keeping close to the fleet and within sight of each other. Dante slew a few dragonflies and beetles and dispatched them a mile or two ahead. As he paged through the sketches, warming up his mind, one of the dragonflies blanked out. A minute later, motion attracted him to the eyes of a beetle. A bat with the jaws of a tiny wolf swooped toward it. Its mouth opened wide. An instant of darkness was followed by a glimpse from between rows of needly teeth. The connection was roughly severed. Dante considered making some fish or bats to do his bidding, but he couldn't spare the nether. Not until the sword was forged. If they had to fight their way through the Odosein with a single blade and no shadows to call on, they'd never get to Gladic. Suddenly glum, he turned back to his sketches and stopped in the middle of flipping over one of the sheets. Hurriedly, as if the idea might escape him if he didn't jot it down, he unstoppered his ink pot of blood and, guided by the patterns and the sketches, distilled them into an arrangement of seven red dots, roughly T-shaped. He blew on the markings, drying them, then shoved the parchment in front of Blaze. What does this look like to you? A sword. Blaze traced his finger from point to point. Blade, crossguard, hilt. It looks like a sword, but it isn't, is it? No, Blaze said slowly. It's your own blood dabbed on a square of cowskin. Are you being pedantic on purpose? Don't tell me you've bought into Norrin philosophy. I think it's more like a constellation. All right, it looks like a constellation. What does this have to do with anything? The Odosein blade has seven traces in its horn. When you watch the nether move around the blade, it appears to flow chaotically, but it always flows through the same seven points. I think this is the underlying structure of the sword, like its skeleton or its soul. Blaze was looking at him like Dante was trying to sell him a block of wood painted like beef. Rather than fighting to explain something he wasn't sure he understood himself, Dante set his sword in progress on a rowing bench and sent his mind into its hilt. His horn only held six traces, not seven, and as he lured them out with a few dabs of blood, he dearly hoped that the precise number wasn't vital to the operation of the sword. Working partly on the example of the Odosein sword and partly on intuition, he dabbed his blood along his sword, spacing it out in six points. The six traces stopped their slow circulation, each one settling on a different blot of blood. 
but by channeling them between dots manually, they flowed in a manner almost identical to the Odosein weapon. As he paused to think, he glanced out the side of the canoe and locked eyes with a pair of yellow cat eyes floating on the surface. These were attached to a scaly lizard as big as a fully grown man. Unlike the swamp dragons, its snout was as long and narrow as a sighthound's. It watched him pass by, then sank below the surface. He returned to the sword. He thought he'd found its underlying structure, its bones or its soul, yet it was still missing its blood, so to speak. He instructed Blaze to wield the Odosein sword again, watching every speck of nether as closely as he could. Just like before, he couldn't discern which of the shadows powering it were coming from Blaze. It was too stirred up, as cloudy as the orange waters they were paddling through. Volo's story of the swordsman had specifically mentioned him delving into his spine. Dante closed his eyes and turned his focus inward, finding his spine and the nether within. If there was a trace there, he couldn't see it. Even so, he mixed it together, withdrew a fraction. If he was fooling with his trace, the last thing he wanted to do was pull the whole thing out of his body and sent it into his sword. His sword sat there, pointedly doing absolutely nothing. Blaze scratched his temple. Shouldn't that have worked? Unless I'm not getting any of my trays, Dante said, or if the common nether it's mixed with is nullifying it somehow. He tapped his front teeth. Traces left by dead people tended to stay put unless you used blood to goad them into action. What if he removed all of the normal nether from his body? Would the trace be exposed? He did this excessively slowly, wary for any sign of the sickness overtaking his body and indicating he'd accidentally stripped himself of his trace, too. After a few minutes, with his body entirely void of nether, he couldn't feel any aches or nausea, but he couldn't see the trace, either. He was getting nowhere. He squeezed his eyes shut and leaned against the gunwale, trailing his fingers in the water. Almost instantly, he thought better of it, jerking them out and wiping them dry. This is ridiculous, he said. Narashtavik has fielded dozens of generations of priests and nethermancers across hundreds of years of travel and study. Not a single one of them could have figured this out for me. Blaze settled his elbows on his knees. If they'd done that, you'd be complaining about how there was nothing left to discover. Couldn't they at least have left me a hint? They didn't need to. A note of impishness had entered Blaze's voice. You already know how to access the trace. Interesting, Dante said, because, no, I don't. No? Then what's happening when you wield the Odyssean blade? But I don't know how it's drawing on our traces. Who cares? Cheat! Dante lowered his chin.
gazing at the stolen sword. It will draw out the trace for me. If I divert that into my sword, it might be enough to power it. He set the blades beside each other on the rowing bench. Keeping one hand on each hilt, the Odyssean blade black and wreathed in what might have been purple lightning, his sword shabby, plain steel in comparison. Streams of nether rippled around the black blade. He activated the tracers within the pommel of the steel one, sending them coursing along the stars of their bloody constellation. The river of tracers didn't want to leave the Odyssean weapon. But water's strength, its adaptability, its willingness to carve new channels, its relentless need to move forward, was also the key to controlling it. Working carefully, Dante guided a finger of Nether away from the purple-black flow and channeled it into the tracers calmly circulating the steel sword. Blackness welled from the guard, unreeling up the blade like spilled ink. Dante's heart galloped. The inky substance spread upward, reaching the tip and enclosing the blade. Blaze leaned forward. Did you? Dante shushed him. Nerves thrumming, he withdrew the trickle of nether from the Odossein blade. His own sword remained black. He sheathed the knight's sword. Blaze looked at him, eyebrows lifted. I think it's drawing from me, Dante said. But something's still missing. The nether isn't crackling along the edge like it should be. It's like I've built a body, but I still haven't given it life. Okay, then what does life need? Air, water, food. I don't think you need to feed your sword a rasher of bacon to get it going. Nether doesn't eat, Dante said, but it does need sustenance. He lifted the sword and drew its edge along his left arm. A red line appeared along his skin as if by magic, and purple-black light erupted from his sword like a bruise of fire. Still touching his skin, the madly whirling nether ripped into his arm. He yelled out and jumped to his feet, flinging down the sword. His motion rocked the canoe. Volo swore. Dante stumbled against the gunwale. Neron, jolting from sleep, grabbed Dante's right arm and pulled him down into the bottom of the boat. The sea captain scowled, rubbing his puffy eyes. Are you aware you're bleeding? Blood coursed down Dante's arm. Around him, strange trees twisted together like muscly orange snakes, while bulbous flies drifted about with scorpion-like claws dangling from their upper bodies. He was traveling into a nightmare, yet he felt as free as a hawk on the wind. It was one thing to create a weapon. It was another to learn how to use it. While the swords wouldn't simply chew through whatever you touched them to, the nether along the blade exaggerated the force of a strike many times over. Even a relatively gentle swipe would cut deeply and harshly into its target. Dante had some experience with this property from wielding the bone sword, 
but the bone sword was a heavier weapon. And to Blaze, the blade's ability was largely foreign. He spent much of the day performing a number of subtle exercises with his sword, practicing for a minute or two, then sheathing the weapon for as long as half an hour before attempting another set of maneuvers. That evening, as soon as they made camp, Blaze motioned Dante to a clear spot on the edge of the little island and drew his sword. Black light glowed in the gloom. Whipping motions, Blaze said. When Dante shrugged, Blaze spun to the side and snapped his wrist, swinging his sword at the braided trunk of a sapling. The blade clicked right through it, sending the tree collective to the ground in a whisper of long leaves. You see, what did that tree ever do to you? You don't have to spend much strength to cause a lot of damage. That means you can be quicker, less committed. A snap of the wrist is all it takes. He motioned for Dante to draw his sword, then began to fence with him, leading him through a few techniques at quarter speed. The techniques were subtle but uncomplicated. Engage the enemy's weapon, flick it aside, then whip the point of your blade at your foe. Too soon, he began to feel sickly. Blaze stepped back and put away his sword. When we're in the thick of things, don't overthink it. Thinking makes you slow, and we don't have enough time to train these skills into our bodies. But these aren't normal swords. If you can fight with them like they're meant to be fought with, you'll be the one left standing at the end. He tipped back his head, thoughtful. Although the downside of that is that you'll be the one who has to mop up the mess. In the waning light, Dante practiced for a little longer, keeping the sword sheathed as he repeated the simple forms Blaze had shown him. With his footwork taking him near the edge of the island, he took a fleeting glance at the water, then gasped. A pale face had lifted itself clear of the surface to stare at him, its eyes blank wells of darkness. Dante did a double take, but by the time he looked again, the face was gone. The water wasn't troubled by so much as a ripple. Shaken, he sent a tendril of nether into the depths, questing after whatever he'd seen. A person, some bizarre fish, but he found nothing. The night was a quiet one. When he woke, the pressure in his head indicated their quarry had returned to a northerly course. Riza accepted this information, indifferently enough, yet when they started out, the commander barked at a pace that left the oarsmen huffing and straining. Until that day, Volo had done almost all the paddling. She insisted, as if it were a point of pride. But the fleet was now moving so fast that Dante and Blaze had to spell her regularly. At noon, they broke to eat and rest. Dante boarded Riza's war canoe and nodded to the doe. We've been gaining on them all morning. At this rate, we'll be on them by tomorrow. Riza made an approving noise. Encouraging news. We might have reclaimed the capital from the Drake Bane's dynasty, but I won't trust that our nation is safe until his flame has been snuffed. Then why haven't we been traveling this fast all along? to preserve our strength for the coming battle. Has something changed? 
things suddenly feel urgent. This isn't a part of the swamp we wish to delay in, Riza said. Speaking of which, I believe we've rested long enough. The fleet got underway. Within half an hour of Riza's cryptic warning, men shouted ahead. Scouts paddled through the trees, faces taut with the strain of their haste. Boko Mai! The trooper's voice was nearly a scream. Three canoes darted forward. Archers stood up on the decks, propped atop the twin hulls, knocking arrows to their short but strong Tenarian bows. Beyond, scores of dark, slender shapes raced through the branches of the trees. They moved so fast, Dante initially thought they were flying. Rather, they leaped from bow to bow with frightening agility. Loose, a sergeant bawled. Arrows slashed into the trees, but it didn't so much as slow the Bokomai. As the swarm closed on the lead boats, the archers released a staggered volley. Their arrows crashed into the branches and exploded in shocking bursts of fire. The air thundered with the noise of the blasts. Smoking bodies fell from the racked branches, the beasts squealing as they plunged into the water. A few of the survivors scattered, but the others were undeterred, dropping onto the decks of the canoes. They ripped at the soldiers with scything claws, carving away chunks of meat and dashing away with their prizes. Men stabbed at them with spears and loosed arrows at the marauding creatures, but the Bokomai twisted their lithe bodies, dodging nearly everything that came their way. Dante's instinct was to unleash a hellstorm of nether at the attacking vermin, but he held back. This wasn't his fight. If he exposed his abilities now, they'd expect him to use them whenever they ran into trouble. Worse, they'd look to reel him into their conflict against the Drakebane. He watched with no particular discomfort as the beasts returned in a second wave, hacking off hunks of flesh. Was he wrong for not intervening? If you could help and didn't, wasn't your negligence as criminal as those committing the act itself? Then again, if a person was wrong for not acting, then so were the gods. And if you couldn't expect the gods to be good, why should a mortal be expected to be better? Arrows and swords dropped a few more of the Bokomai. The rest disappeared into the trees, leaving bloody decks and sobbing men. The Tenarians temporarily converted two of the more barge-like ships into floating physicians' tents, then continued north. Within the hour, the trees grew taller, the leaves pressing out the light, as if the sun had been wounded in a chase and was being dragged away by some great predator. Crags of narrow, angular rock sprouted from the swamp, spattered with moss in all shades of green. Buildings, or what was left of them. The ruins of walls jutted from the water like broken bones. Others lurked just below the surface, ready to disembowel any boat that tried to sail over them. Commander Bahrain ordered the fleet into a double-file procession. The sailors in the leading canoes thrust long poles into the water ahead of them, 
feeling for submerged ruins. Wherever their poles jabbed into a rock, they dumped a thick blue dye over the surface, where it clung fast to itself, barely troubled by the paddles of the passing canoes. Dante's head swiveled to follow an upthrust of stone that might have once been a tower. Its lower reaches were blue, but its upper section was blackened and slagged. Moss grew on the blue stone, but wouldn't touch the melted segment. What was this place? Volo eyed the gnarled arm of rock. Some people say it was the home of a bunch of people who went someplace they shouldn't have. Others think it was people looking to free themselves from the Drakebane dynasty. Which do you believe? That the people tell whichever story best fits their hate. Rain sifted through the leaves. Within seconds, it strengthened to a spatter, then to the roar of a waterfall. Dante spent the rest of the day bailing out the boat. They made camp two hours before sunset, though the clouds were so dark, it already felt like twilight. The swelling in Dante's forehead was getting harder to ignore, beating like a slow heartbeat under his skull. Sometime before dawn, his loon pulsed. It was sorrowing. His voice was ragged with exhaustion, yet pitched up with fearful excitement. He explained what they'd seen at the docks. Dante asked him a few questions, then thanked him and shut off the loon. Blaze was sitting up, a lump in the darkness. Well? Mallon's built a fleet of warships, Dante said. They're flat-bottomed. They could sail into the inlet we made in Colin, or land on a beach somewhere behind the coroner's lines. How dare they react to our reactions? So now that we know they're planning another attack, does that change our stance? I still plan to do nothing. That will show the coroners for looking after their own self-interests. We've been over this. We had a plan all set, one that didn't involve subjugating multiple Alibolgian cities. Yeah, just overthrowing their governments. One government, Dante said, and more like one wealthy house within that government, one that had been making all the other cities bow down to it. Blaze scoffed. Don't tell me that had anything to do with you deciding to work with House Osedo. No, but executing our plan would have caused incidental good. Colin's solution caused incidental harm. Point is, the only thing we had was a plan. The Keeper saw a way to make their goals real then and there, so she seized it. Don't tell me that's the same thing we would have done, or that you agree with her. Obviously, only an idiot of the highest order would doubt our ability to do everything we promised to do. Like, say, kill a single priest. Blaze took a swig of water from his skin. I don't think the Keeper was wrong to do what she thought needed doing, but I do think that in making that decision, she also decided to end our alliance, meaning you are free to do whatever you want here, whether that's to rush off to Colin's defense, or to ask Malin to tell you where they make the basin's grave, so you know where to piss. Dante rubbed gunk from the corner of his eye. The Coloner's abandonment of their agreement was, in a sense, 
claimed that they no longer needed Narashtovic's help. There would be grim justice in doing nothing at all with his spy's information. To let the Malish fleet arrive without warning and put the colonists' claim to the test, after everything he'd done for the place, that choice would best satisfy his anger. For grim justice was satisfying. It had a cold symmetry with the original offense. But the thing about ripping everything out by the roots was that it left you with nothing but a bunch of dirt. Or perhaps it was more like having a childhood friend who won't share his toy with you, so in a fit of pique you smash it. You'll feel quite pleased with your power in the moment, but when you wake up the next day, nobody will have a toy to play with. We'll have Jonah tell the colonists about the fleet, he said. That should keep things reasonably friendly between us. Besides, there's no need to make it easy for Malin. Blaze chuckled. I suppose it's one of those incidental goods that keeping Colin strong means Malin will have a tougher time turning its eye toward Norastovic. The thought had crossed my mind. Commander Bahrain had them on their way as soon as it was light enough to see the ruins sticking from the water. It was still raining, the swamps popping with droplets. Do you hear that? Blaise said. Dante cocked his ear. I don't hear anything. Exactly. No birds, no bugs, nothing but rain. Now that Blaze pointed it out, the lack was unsettling. He searched for hints of fish in the orange waters, or birds nesting in the trees, but saw nothing. Just as he was about to ask Volo what this meant, the morning grew lighter. At first, he thought the clouds were breaking up, but the sky looked as gloomy as ever. Rather, the trees were going pale. Abruptly, the small islands of trees and muck were replaced with bare, white knobs. Dante thought they were limestone, but as they floated past one, he saw the island was a heaped mound of bones. Blaze blinked. We didn't just sail into one of your dreams, did we? Volo, Dante said. What? She seemed to have some trouble getting her mouth open. The remains. Only been here once. I didn't stay. Nearer the center of the fleet, Riza looked mildly unsettled, but the commander's face was as stony as ever. Neither looked especially surprised by the shift in terrain. Around them, the trees grew whiter and whiter. Aside from the trees and a few patches of thorns, weeds, and pale flowers, Dante saw no signs of life. Yet the nether, the sign of life that had been, was thick in the air. The slow build of pressure in his forehead sped up rapidly. After a few miles, he directed Volo to rendezvous with Riza's boat. We're gaining fast, Dante told the nobleman. If this keeps up, we'll be on them within hours. 
Rizzo's smile lacked all humor. I had assumed as much. Make your preparations. Dante motioned to one of the ghastly bone islands. Were you intending to tell me what we're getting into? Or is it common in Tanaritain to sail past mass graves? This is the wound of the world, the place where your enemy and those who came before him first learned to create the Shadow Men. The Andrak, that knowledge came from your people. They aren't my people. Rizza spat over the side of the boat. When the Odosein cast down the rebellion of sorcerers, they didn't slay all of the magicians. Instead, they turned a few into slaves. These, they bent to the task of creating something that could control the borders of the deep swamp. In time, the slaves produced the Shadow Men. At first, the Odosein used the abominations as intended, serving the land. Yet as soon as the first rebellion arose, they turned the Shadow Men against their own people. This only engorged the demon's bloodlust. As the Odosein began to lose their grip on the Shadow Men, they had no choice but to destroy them. How long ago was this? The Andrak have been used in other lands as well. Nearly four hundred years ago, they appeared in the Colin Basin. Learned by dark pilgrims to Tanaretain, no doubt. As for the when, I can't say with any certainty. The Drake Bane's ancestors have altered our history so often, we're lucky to have preserved any truths at all. That, among other reasons, is why we fight him. For he destroys our history. And what is a people without their past? Dante wanted to learn more. For all the time he'd spent in Tanaretain, it still felt like he barely knew anything about the place. But Riza left to talk strategy with Commander Bahrain. As the flotilla carried on, the Oko water turned rusty, streaked with crimson. It smelled like old iron. If not for the thinness of it, Dante would have thought it was blood. Some of the trees were now no more than bent white trunks. By the afternoon, the force in Dante's brow had become so intense it nearly hurt. Gladick was within a mile. Hearing this, Bahrain dispatched small scout canoes ahead. Dante would have sent undead creatures ahead as well, but there was nothing to use. There were no flies or fish, no rats or lizards. He would have tried raising some of the bones, but they were so scattered it would have been impossible to gather up a single body. The scouts returned within minutes. Bahrain called for a stop to discuss the situation with his advisors. Awakened by the lack of motion, Neron stirred from one of his lengthy naps. The rain was still coming down, striking the trees and bones with hollow tocks. The war council seemed to reach a decision. Riza summoned Dante's canoe to him. The nobleman pointed north into the white forest. Ahead lies the wound itself. 
This must be where Gladick and his aides have decided to craft his new breed of shadowmen. Dante peered through the trees. Why here? Besides the fact it looks like a demon's garden, Blay said. It is a site of ancient power that will make their tasks simpler, Riza said. They might also have believed that we wouldn't follow them into the Gokaza, considering that they would either starve here or be forced in time to return to where the animals dwell and the fruit grows and be slaughtered by the beasts there. Whatever their motives, they've already been here for hours. We must stop them before they create their demons. Have you formed a plan? Dante said. Our scouts could only advance so far without risking discovery. They know the Odosein have formed a wide perimeter around the grounds, meaning to stifle any outside sorcery. For Gladic to wield light and shadow, he'll have to be somewhere near the center of the circle inscribed by the Odosein, where their powers can't impact him. We will attack the perimeter from the south— this should draw down most of the Odosein as well as the bulk of their soldiers. This will render it exceedingly easy for you to slip past the pickets, locate Gladick, and assassinate him. What about the Drakebane? Isn't killing him the entire reason your troops came all this way? Your elimination of the sorcerer and his demons will make it much easier for us to reach the Drakebane. Additionally, he might confront us with the Odosein expecting for Gladick to reinforce him soon after, only for no such reinforcements to arrive. Blaze rubbed his knuckles into his forehead. You're sure you can put up a fight against the Odyssean? I've seen swords of every size and shape you can imagine, and theirs is the second most I'd hate to be stabbed by. We have developed weapons to use against them. Risa glanced past Blaze. This reminds me, if Volo and your captain wish to accompany you, we can provide them with a small number of flaming stars. Flaming stars? It sounds like I want one. The bursting arrows. You may have seen them in use against the Bokomai. They are also quite useful against the armor of the Odosein. I will take them, Naren said. Better to fight beside my friends than to sit in safety while they risk their lives for my honor? Volo tilted back her head. Wouldn't it be even better to renounce your honor, paddle away, and go live a peaceful life as a farmer? That might be the logical path. If so, then count being illogical as one of my many flaws. Me too, I guess because I don't want to stay with the boat either. Riza snapped his fingers at one of his servants, who delivered them each two arrows. The heads were plum-sized black bags, packed tight with something that smelled smoky and metallic. Handle with care, Riza advised. They explode on impact. Impact, in this case, could include falling on them. Fair warning, Dante said. Gladick is an extremely skilled sorcerer. Fighting him will probably exhaust me. I doubt I'll be much use after that. You've made it very clear, 
Your only interest is in your foe. We have formulated our plans to account for this. Blaze loosened his sword in its scabbard. Ready when you are. The sooner we get this over with, the sooner we can drink ourselves into forgetting we're wandering around in a place that would make a Rawn himself wet his divine pants. After a few more instructions, Riza left, saluting with his forearm lifted high, his fingers held together and pointed skyward like the head of a spear. One of the scout canoes joined them. It led them away from the main force and across a route that would approach the wound from the west. The trees grew taller, spreading pale leaves that looked like the flensed skin of Gascons. Within a mile, a white hill loomed ahead. It didn't look much more than a hundred feet high, but after so long in such a flat and watery land, it loomed like the peaks of the Wodens. The trees closed in again, blocking it from sight. The next time it emerged, Dante's breath caught in his throat. It was indeed a hill, or at least something like one, but the sides of it were largely open to the air. Long strands of rock or bone stretched between the floor and ceiling, looking like disheveled harp strings or the fibrous mouths of great whales. The floor of the cavern was elevated above the red water. It looked phantasmagoric, the dream of a sleeping god who, lost in his slumber, had accidentally made his nightmares real. In the canoe beside them, the scout motioned to a shelf of dry land running along the base of the white hill. Dante nodded to the scout, tapped Volo's shoulder, and pointed to the shelf. She brought the canoe up to it and got out. There was nothing to tie up to, but the boat had a thin rope tied through a hole carved into a flat stone. In the slack water, it would be a fine anchor. Dante got out, the boat swaying beneath him. Once the others were on the ledge, he moved forward to where the wall opened into the vast cavern beyond. Light filtered in from all sides, illuminating a yawning chamber dotted with reddish puddles. The pulse of Gladick's presence was distractingly strong. The priest was to the east, and he was very close. Riza had told them to wait on the outskirts of the wound until they heard the cries of battle, so they stopped a short ways into the cavern hunkering down behind a boulder the shape and color of a molar. The surface felt almost like sandstone, but Dante couldn't shake the impression of boneness. Water dripped from the high ceiling. The room smelled like rust and wet rock. Voices rose somewhere to the southeast. As soon as Dante heard the first scream, he rose from behind the boulder, jogging across the cavernous space. As he weaved through the sheets and pillars of rock, he got out his antler-handled knife, opening a short cut on the back of his left arm. He reached for the shadows. They answered. Near the far end of the cavern, the walls narrowed. 
a pool of red water filled the way forward. Eighty feet ahead, the rock climbed back out of the water and opened toward the right, where the spike in Dante's skull insisted Gladic awaited. Dante glanced at Volo and gestured at the water. She shrugged. He dipped a toe in, discovering it was only a few inches deep. As he advanced, the water rose to his shins, then his knees. The others were strung along beside him. He and Blaze kept their ethereal blades sheathed, not wanting to drain themselves, but Neron and Volo carried bows with knocked arrows. Dante was two-thirds of the way across the pool, when its surface rippled on all sides. At first, he thought it must be rain blowing in from the cave's edge, but no water was hitting him. Around him, scores of stark white faces arose from the water, eyes burning with malice. Chapter 26 A hundred Tenarians surrounded them in the water. The men and women looked as though they'd been drowned, but there was still some form of life in their eyes. Some were dressed in rags, while others were completely nude, red water sliding down their concave stomachs. Black hair hung over their faces in clumps. Most carried jagged shards of bone. Blaze whipped his Odosein blade from its sheath, purple and black crackling down its length. Now listen here. Without so much as a word, the mob surged forward. Dante drew his sword in his right hand and the nether in his left. Naren and Volo let loose their arrows and two of the people dropped, trampled by those behind them. Dante slung a hailstorm of black bolts into the front ranks, felling half a dozen in one swoop. As he reached for another handful of shadows, the nether froze in place. Odosain! Blaze darted forward, slashing his sword at the closest figure. He struck the man at a downward angle, cleaving through the enemy's collarbone and into his upper chest. Blaze pulled the blade free without a hitch striking at the next man. While the weapon encountered some resistance as it churned through flesh and bone, with deft tweaks of his wrist, Blaze was able to keep it moving with little loss of momentum, allowing him to swing his blade about himself like a bolo. As the bodies fell away from him, the wounds seemed slow to bleed. Threads of nether streamed from the navels of the dead and into Blaze's weapon. Tighten up, Blaze called. Back to back. Push toward the water's edge. Dante shuffled closer to him. A woman stabbed at him with a length of bone. He cut through its shaft, then through her arm. She dropped back two steps, then leaned forward and charged him with both arms extended for his face, one no more than a bleeding stump. He cut her down. Behind him, Neron and Volo had had no choice but to toss their bows over their left shoulders and draw their weapons. Neron had his saber back. After the righteous monsoon had taken the bastion, they'd found it in the palace's collection of artifacts taken from foreign intruders and criminals, 
and Volo bore a stout, curved blade with a heavy guard over the knuckles, and a metal spike sticking from the pommel. It looked like, and was, a cruel close-quarters weapon. Which was very good news, because the enemy was throwing themselves at the four of them with inhuman recklessness. Within moments, the only thing keeping them from being completely overwhelmed was the corpses floating in the water and impeding the advance of those still living. As Dante chopped down a one-eyed man, a woman stabbed past his guard with a bone spear, goring him in the ribs. Dante stumbled into Blaze's back. As the woman moved to finish the job, Neron thrust forward, his saber spearing through her throat. Dante reached for the nether, meaning to heal himself. But it remained as locked up as the realm's crown jewels. Next to him, Volo stabbed a sunken-eyed man through the chest. He took the blade willingly, sliding closer to her and stabbing down at her neck with a broken thigh bone. She turned her head, grunting as the weapon scraped down her collarbone and shoulder. Dante leaned in and cut off the man's sword arm at the elbow. Volo withdrew her weapon and bashed the man in the ear with the heavy guard of her weapon. Blaze was the only one of them holding his own against the crush of bodies. For all of the ones they'd already killed, even more pressed in on them. No good, Dante said. No good, about to die, Blaze agreed, shearing through a woman's jaw. He gestured his mundane sword behind him toward the eastern face of the canyon-like space. Cut a lane toward the wall. Volo, behind us with a flaming star. Dante and Neron cleaved their way eastward while Blaze held off a throng of attackers at the point of their retreat. Volo paired with Neron, whose saber couldn't quite keep up with the frenzied men and women coming at them. Dante's side felt hot, the wound tearing at him with every thrust and hack. As they cut down the last of the enemy between them and the wall, Volo sheathed her blade with a clack, unshouldered her bow, and knocked one of the bag-tipped arrows. Ready? A note of shrillness pierced her voice. Chevron, Blaze said. He held the middle, Dante and Naren at his flanks. Push! Dante surged forward, swinging his netherial blade like a machete through the jungles of the plagued islands. Blaze bellowed in echoing defiance, cleaving a grisly path forward. To that point, their foe had fought with a feral madness, all but oblivious to the wounds they suffered for it. But for the first time, they hesitated. Some even dropped back a step. Fall back! Blaze disengaged, slashing across the space they'd opened between themselves and Volo. The girl sighted down the shaft of her arrow, arm quivering. Blaze flung himself forward. Loose! Volo released her hold. Dante jumped headfirst toward the wall. As he splashed down, a reddish light speared through the blood-colored water. A great fist slammed upon him, the impact jutting up his spine. The thunder of the explosion followed an instant later. Half-dazed, he found his feet reeling to the side. Limbs and torsos rocked on the unsettled surface. Pink foam sizzled and popped. Most of the enemy that hadn't been destroyed in the blast had been knocked from their feet. 
Blaze was already wading into them, severing anything he could reach. Dante followed suit. A man stood from the water, half his face hanging in shreds, teeth and jaw and throat exposed. Unarmed, he threw himself at Dante. Dante flicked out his sword and cut him down the middle. The man didn't stop reaching for Dante's face until his entire body went slack. Dante threw the corpse aside, chest heaving. They'd nearly cleared out the right flank of the opposition, but the people to their left were regrouping, gathering to mount another attack. Get down! Neron's clear voice carried over the thresh of legs through water. He had his bow out, body tense to the draw of the string. Dante dropped back into the water. An arm bobbed against his head, fingers brushing his cheek. He closed his eyes, but he could still see the flash of light through his eyelids, feel the bang of sound in his chest. He stood. The pool was slopping around him like a storm-tossed sea. The air stank of sulfur and an acrid, insidious tang that made him want to turn away. Or maybe his nausea was the product of the slew of scorched torsos, floating limbs, and exposed organs. A handful of survivors were regaining their feet and moving together. They didn't look scared, just hateful and pained. Blaze moved across from them, angling both swords down from his sides. Now would be a good time to surrender. The people arrayed themselves in a line. There were only nine left, and of those who were still on their feet, most were bleeding, burned, or both. Despite this, they lurched forward. Blazer's face tightened and twitched at the eyes and mouth. It was a fleeting expression, and so subtle that only Dante and possibly Min would have caught the anguish in it. He lifted his swords and cut down two men with three swings. Dante ran to join him, but by the time he got there, only a single man was still on his feet. With Miles' disgust, he put the man to rest. Their breathing echoed through the cavern. Water dripped from the ceiling. Other than the ripples of the bobbing bodies, the pool was still. Blaze turned, teeth parted. Is everyone all right? Stabbed. Dante hovered his hand over his ribs. I've had worse. Vola was bleeding down her collar, but it didn't look serious. Naren had deep fingernail gouges across his forearm and a gash to the thigh, painful but not crippling. What were those things? Vola's voice sounded half an octave higher. They looked like people, but... They didn't act like people. So were they people? I fought a lot of people, Blaze said, and I've never seen them come at you to the last man. They should have been shitting their rags after the first flaming star. Naren nodded. There is also the matter that they were lurking beneath the water. Not breathing is not a very peopleish thing to do. Either that, or you need to hire some of them as sailors. Watch the water, Dante said, and everything else too. We have to get moving. 
If the monsoon breaks through the Drake Bane's lines, Gladick might decide to run away. He tends to do that, doesn't he? Blaze slogged along beside him. Ought to write his superiors a letter of condemnation. We can send it inside the box we deliver his head in. The stone sloped up beneath Dante's feet. He left the pool, dripping red everywhere. With a start, he realized he still had his sword out, but he didn't feel enervated in the slightest. If anything, he felt energized, and so did the sword. The nether flowing along its blade was rushing like floodwaters. Yet the nether around him was still frozen in place. The shelf of rock bent to the right. Ahead, thin white lengths of matter rose in a blade-like forest, obscuring the view of what lay ahead. The roar and batter of combat sounded to the south. The pressure in Dante's head had grown so strong, it felt like a spike was ready to press through the middle of his brow. We're close. He glanced at Neron and Volo. If you have a shot at Gladick, take it. They made noises of agreement. Neron's gaze was distant but steady, as if his time in captivity had taught him that slaughtering a hundred hostile, insane people was just one of those things you did in life. Volo's face looked haunted on the brink of a breakdown, a stark contrast to the aftermath of the massacre they'd seen on their way to Darabod, when her response had been red-hot anger. Then again, that time, she hadn't had to kill anyone herself. They entered the forest of pale blades. These were smooth, with the occasional knob or curve. It made the formations look organic, like trunks or bones. Blaze let his fingers trail along a flat, rib-like projection. Know what this reminds me of? Dante nodded. Barden. Is that because it is like Barden? It has to be. This place is wronger than Lyle's prophecies. A sharp tingle poked into Dante's palm. He jerked back his hand, nearly dropping his sword. Blaze twitched, too. Dante looked up. You felt that? You mean the invisible bees, attempting to make a home in the center of my hand? Any idea what it was? Let me ask. He held the hilt up to his ear, glancing up and to the right. Hello, sword? My friend thinks I am a soothsayer. Any suggestions as to how I should best insult his intelligence? Dante turned his sword in his hand, eyeing the handle. There were no obvious signs of trouble, but it was still emitting a tingle that verged on unpleasant. Something drove into his side. The thing was Blaze, tackling him to the hard ground. As the air left Dante's lungs in a rude whoosh, he heard the twang of bows. Arrows swept overhead and wrapped into the white trunks behind them. Chunks of chalky matter spat down on their heads. Archers, Blaze said. You don't say, Dante wheezed, catching his breath. Were they the kind with bows and arrows? Beside him, Volo leaned around a bony trunk and let loose an arrow. 
She swung back behind cover. I count about eight. Then I hope the last battle gave you double vision. Dante reached for the nether, but it was still trapped fast, as if caught beneath a rock. Drakebane's men. Either that, or the Odosein therewith enslaved them from somewhere. Odosein. He peeked his head up from cover. The trunks of matter were rarely taller than a man's gut, and while they sometimes grew in small clusters, there was usually several feet of space between them. This meant both cover and visibility were decent. The archers were hunkered down in a line about eighty feet away. One snapped off a shot at him. He ducked, then reappeared on the other side of the trunk he was using for cover. A pair of Odosein advanced from hiding, ducking to the next row of bone trees. As soon as they were in place, a second pair got up to follow them onward. Two incoming arrows forced Dante back into place. Four knights. With no nether to draw on, his options felt comically limited. Advancing in pairs. Neron and Volo, time their advance. Then see if you can shoot them down. If you can take them out, that might free me up to use the nether against the archers. Volo and Neron knocked arrows, sticking an eye from behind cover. The Odosein were moving fast, already within sixty feet. When the next pair moved, Volo and Neron both fired at the lead knight. The first arrow struck it square in the helmet, glancing off the tough scales of the swamp dragon's hide. The knight jerked up his shield and caught the second arrow squarely. A barrage of arrows forced everyone back into cover. When Dante looked out again, the archers were slowly fanning to left and right, searching for an angle of attack through the field of thin white pillars. Volo hit another knight in the breastplate, but the arrow broke with a metal clink. Dante gritted his teeth. Hold, and the archers get behind us. Retreat. Blaze shook his head. Charge. Ha, huh, you first. Blaze rolled from behind cover, crouched too low to see or be seen. Dante ran at his heels. Ahead, he caught a glimpse of black-scaled armor. Boots clapped against the smooth ground. A knight spotted them, calling to the others in unworried words. Dante's heart sank. He'd been hoping to take at least one of them out before the enemy knew they were coming. He trusted himself to be able to hold off a single knight while Blaze dispatched the two others. But if he had to go two on one, then he'd hope Aron was watching. Or not, considering how embarrassingly he was likely to lose. The knights jogged toward them blades in hand, purple sparks popping from the edges like damp sticks of wood thrown in a fire. They were now too close to the Odosein for the enemy archers to fire on them. Dante stood and lifted his sword high, then brought it down to a guard. Blaze put his nethereal blade forward, his plain steel weapon held back in reserve. A pair of knights converged on Blaze. The other two circled toward Dante. Dante stopped in place, ready to dance back behind a trunk to try to keep himself from being engaged by both at once. An arrow zipped past his shoulder. 
the Odosayin it was racing toward lifted his shield, ready to knock it aside. The bag-headed arrow thumped into his shield. Dante closed his eyes and dropped his legs out from beneath himself. The explosion ripped the knight's body into quadrants. Flames spurted between the white trunks. They cracked and toppled, landing with a sound that was heavier than wood, but more hollow than stone. Heat breathed over Dante's right arm. He yanked it into the cover of the trunk in front of him. Blaze jumped to his feet and sprinted toward the blast. The dismembered knight's partner was down on one knee, sword on the ground. Blaze took off his head with a looping swipe. The two surviving knights exchanged a wordless look, then turned and retreated through the white pillars. An enemy arrow whipped over Dante's head. He got down. The air smelled like acrid smoke and an inside-out stomach. The archers covered the Odosseans' withdrawal, then fell back with them, continuing to pepper Dante and Blaze's position with shots. Crouching low, Blaze unbuckled the dead knight's belts. He crossed one belt over his hip, grabbed up a fallen sword, and sheathed it. Neron and Volo joined them. Blaze handed the other belt to Neron. Leave the sword put away until it's time to use it. That is, unless you enjoy feeling like this guy over here. He pointed to a gobbit of former knight, then to another. And over here, and here, and I believe I get the picture. Neron sheathed his sword with a click. Volo looked up at Dante. Is your face always that red? You look like a walking tomato. He scowled at her. Was that you who shot them? Next time you're going to explode something, try not to do it directly in my face. Then keep your face out of my explosions. Dante put away his sword. That tingling. It started when the enemy got near us. I think it might have been a warning. Blaze glanced down at his blades in disdain. And they couldn't be bothered to warn us about the half-zombies in the pool? Then maybe it alerts you when you're in the presence of another sword-bearer. Or maybe you don't know what you're talking about. In these circumstances, that remains a strong possibility. Everyone fit to go on? It turned out he was the only one who'd taken so much as a scratch— the retreating soldiers had gone in the same direction as the spike in Dante's head was pointing. As they moved through the trunks, the ground sloping gently uphill beneath them, he reached again and again for the nether. For years he'd drawn on it reflexively, often for no purpose but to work his skills near the end of the day. Its lack made him more anxious by the second. A physical repulsion was growing in his gut, telling him to get out. But there was a second option to get him back to the shadows, to destroy everyone who was keeping them away from him. The rain had stopped while they were inside the cavern, but as they hurried onward, it broke open again, drumming against the stony landscape. At the ridge, they got down on their bellies, and crawled over the rim.
continuing forward for fifteen feet before Dante was confident their silhouettes wouldn't show against the line of the hill. Ahead, more white trunks poked from the ground, but there were fewer of them, offering little cover. The land below them was a bowl-shaped valley, hundreds of yards across. The white surface was spattered with deposits of iron-gray rock, which, judging from the shine and the smell, probably were in fact iron ore. Where their edges touched the white matter, the ore had turned not the rusty orange of iron-bearing rock exposed to the weather, but bright crimson. Shallow pools of blood-red water collected in the depressions in the terrain. A hillock rose in the center of the valley. At the center of the hillock stood a dark cylinder. The two knights and their complement of archers were running toward the cylinder, where a group of thirty people stood in the rain. Multiple Odosein held watch on the perimeter of the hillock, obvious in their heavy armor. Most of the others held position between the night sentries and the center. But next to the cylinder itself, a figure in gray robes gestured his hands to the sky. That's Gladic, Dante said. And there's a small legion with him, Blay said. Under normal circumstances, I'd tell them to go get some more friends to make it a fair fight, and then kill Gladic when they fell for my ruse and left. But I'm guessing by the constipated look on your face that you still can't use the nether. But again, if we kill all the Odosein there, then we still won't know if there are others lurking around until it's too late. Then what do you want to do? Sneak across this almost completely open field and try to surprise the people who are about to be warned by the other people whose asses we just kicked that we're about to sneak up on them? I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's typically a reason that people don't launch attacks on people who outnumber them ten times over. Because it's stupid, Volo said. We could return to the monsoon, Naren said. Beseech them for assistance. Dante pinched his temples. We don't even know if they've won their battle with the Drakebane, or if they'd help us. Besides, whatever Gladick's working on, he's doing it right now. If we run off to find Riza, by the time we get back, Gladick could have one of his new demons ready. The group they'd skirmished with reached the hillock and ran up it. Blaze swept his rain-dampened blonde hair back from his brow. Whatever we're going to do, we better do it before they come hunting for us. The knights ascended the mound and kneeled before a man in a green and white tunic that hung to his knees. They spoke, the knights gesturing in the general direction where Dante and the others lay in hiding. Huh, Blaze said. Suppose that's the old Drakebane. Or one of his relatives. Dante wished he'd had a rat on hand to send to listen to the conversation. Then again, in this lifeless land, the appearance of a rat wouldn't draw any less attention than if he were to walk up to the hillock himself. The two knights stood, backing off. The man in the long green jabat called out an order. Dante couldn't hear a word of it, 
but there was no missing the way the exercise of command straightened the man's body. Eight Odosein and another eight people in less distinguishable dress gathered around the man giving the orders. The group moved out from the mound. Dante had assumed they were mustering to deal with the threat reported by the two knights, but rather than striking west toward Dante and the others, the royal contingent headed northeast. Gladick turned away from his work, watching the contingent depart. They were much too far away for Dante to read his face. Well, that makes things a little easier, Blay said. Now we're only outnumbered six times over. Still too many knights. We don't have to fight all of them. We could walk up to Arrow Range, lob some insults at Gladick to distract him, then have Neron hit him with the last flaming star. And then run like hell. Unless you've decided to start a vendetta against all of his friends, too. Dante turned to Neron. How close will we have to be? How's your bowstring feeling in this rain? It's well waxed, Neron said. I don't think this is the first time Tenarian archers have had to deal with a little moisture. They spent the next few minutes sketching out their approach, including ways to try to force Gladick from cover. As they finalized their plans, Dante glanced over at the cylinder, where Gladick had been motionless for some time. Two Odosein ordered six people in plain white jabouts to stand shoulder to shoulder. The knights moved down the line, and the people dropped, bleeding. Gladick kneeled over the bodies, arms extended to his sides. As Dante watched, a looming black figure unfurled from nowhere to stand beside the priest. It spread its clawed hands wide and tipped back its head, rain falling into its star-bright mouth. Bastard sons of bastard gods, Dante said. He's got an andrak. The others all looked over. Neron's face hardened in its newly distant way. Fola looked uncertain, but defiant, as if her turning back of the Odyssean had rebuilt the resolve she'd lost after the battle in the pool. Right, Blaze said. Shit! Dante smacked his fist against the ground. We can't go at them now. The ether's locked down too. There's no way to hurt the demon. That's not the only way to hurt them, is it? I can cut them from within the shadows. Which we can't get to either. We'll have to wait until they make camp, or see if we can draw Gladick away somehow. Why would we do that? He's just made our job easier. Is our job to die as fast as we can? Because that's the only thing that's going to happen if we go up against the Odosayin and Andrak, Gladick, and whatever else they have over there. Think no brains. What are the Andrak made out of? Nether, Dante said. Traces. And what are our blades powered by? Also traces. Dante could feel his mind struggling to raise and hold on to the implications of what Blaze was saying. Before the logic could slip away, he retreated to the same quiet, impersonal distance he used when working with the ether, a state where things seemed to unfold on their own. He looked up. It should work. 
but we'd be banking our lives on a theory. Yes, but at least if I'm wrong, then you'll get a chance to tell me all about it, in the mists. If we wind up in the mists version of Tanara Tain, I think I'll skip straight to the world, see. This idea, Neren said, it necessitates being engaged by the Andrak before any of their other fighters. Is it safe to assume that will happen? If I have learned anything, it is that the captain who thinks he can predict a battle had better tell his first mate where he'd like to be buried. Gladic will send the Andrak, Dante said. They're his life's work, an extension of himself. There will be nothing more satisfying to him than to use them to destroy us. Blaze wiped rain from his eyebrows. Anyway, this is our backup plan. Our main plan is for you to use that last flaming star to blast Gladic into pious stew. Plan in hand, Dante remained kneeling behind the screen of bone-like limbs, trying to pick out their best approach to the center of the valley. A minute later, after some fussing about by Gladic, a second star-eater unfolded from nowhere, stretching its broad arms like a man readying to split wood. Dante swore. Most times, waiting and watching made you better prepared for what was to come. Sometimes, though, it merely allowed you to believe you were preparing, when in fact all you were doing was delaying. And a situation that could have been solved slipped beyond your control. In a low crouch, Dante moved to the next grove of waist-high growths. The others followed behind him their sandals barely making a sound on the wet rock. For all their stealth, they went a third of the way toward the hillock before one of the Odosain pointed at them, his voice booming over the hiss of the rain. Most of the remaining knights gathered to watch them, with a few remaining on the periphery to ward against a sneak attack from another direction. Gladick turned from his work and stared across the bowl. There was no sense trying to hide. It was only slowing them down. Dante stood and walked toward the raised lump of land, keeping his hand close to his sword. Rain pattered on the flat pockets of iron with a metallic beat. The walk felt much longer than it was. They started up the hillock. Its sides were half-covered in irregular flows of iron as if the metal had been heated to a liquid and then poured down the slopes to harden. Dante came to a stop, halfway up the incline. Now that they were closer to the cylinder, he could see that the iron monument at the middle of the land wasn't round, but a hexagon, its sides inscribed with foreign runes. It stood fifteen feet high and twenty across, but its solidity was marred by river-like cracks in its surface, their depths weeping bloody rust. Gladick stood above them, flanked by his two Andrak, whose wide alien mouths were drawn back in hideous grins. A pair of knights were with him as well, seemingly untroubled by the demons mere feet away. The other knights waited on the flanks, mailed fists resting on the horn-pommeled handles of their swords. A few archers stood twenty feet back from the front line, 
leaning over their knocked arrows to shield their fletching from the rain. Dante Galand. Gladick's voice was a melodious mix of amusement and scorn. Do you find your own land so unbearable that you would rather abandon it to follow me into the depths of this one? I'd like nothing more to be home, Dante answered. But you keep trying to destroy the homelands of others, first in the plagued islands, then in Colin, now here. As he spoke, Neron and Volo spread to either side of him, kneeling down behind small outcroppings of white rock. It wasn't perfect cover, but it was better than nothing. Blaze remained two steps behind him and to his right. Gladick sneered down at them, his wet gray hair plastered to his head. Your righteousness sickens me. Dante laughed. My righteousness? You used the nether, a substance you kill others for touching, to make abominations I would never dream of. And then you claim to be the holiest man in Bressel. I use tools the gods forbid in order to achieve things men can't dream. When at last all heresy is quenched, I will quench it from myself as well. That's a very convenient excuse. It would justify you to do anything you want. You mean like murder thousands of innocent people? Blaze said. You mean in Colin? Dante said. Otanaritain. You'll have to forgive me. He's racked up so many massacres that... Gladick took two strides forward. My purpose here is not to destroy. As that is all you do, that is all you can see in others. I am here for salvation. Blaze motioned to the demons. And what are they here for? The free lunch? They are here to undo a threat that could undo us all. So I beg you, slander me with your petty notions of hypocrisy. How much will you care for following your own rules when everything stands at its end? Has it ever occurred to you that you're a raving lunatic? Look around you. Gladick thrust his arms apart to take in the twisted landscape of red, white, and black. He laughed, a dry and raven-like core. Does this look like a land fit for humans? Here you face total enslavement, one that will come at the hands of the same darkness you worship. Dante had meant to engage Gladick in order to buy plenty of time for Neron to position and ready himself to take his shot, the only one he'd get. But instead, Dante's anger had sucked him into an argument with a madman. I know who you are, he said and you are a liar. Gladick waved a long-fingered hand at the air. Your words sicken my ears. You must have noticed your nether is powerless here. You will surrender, or my servants will devour you. You're right, Dante said. I can't reach the nether. 
But do you really think I'd be here if I didn't know exactly how to kill you? He lifted his arm and swung it down. To his left, Neron's bow twanged. The arrow sped uphill. Gladick's eyes widened. Despite his age, he was nimble, his long, thin legs coiling to dodge the attack. But it would be too late to escape the weapon's blast. Beside him, Anodo Sayin launched himself forward. The arrow struck him in the chest. For the blink of an eye, nothing happened. Had the arrow gotten too sodden to work? And then came the lightning and the thunder. Dante whirled, shielding his face. Heat whooshed past him. The shock of the explosion rattled his guts. He turned, squinting through the smoke. The night lay in pieces. Gladick had been knocked backward onto the rocky surface. Steam whirled from his soaked robes, but he was already stirring, swaying to his hands and knees. Half his face was pinkened. He twisted his features into a snarl, shouting words Dante didn't recognize, and thrust his finger downhill. The two Andrak spread their jaws wide, throats glowing, and loped toward Dante. The knights of Odosein advanced behind the demons in two loose groups, spreading themselves out to avoid losing more than one at a time to any more flaming stars. One group looked to be headed toward Neron, the other veering toward Volo. Blaze drew his twin blades, making them dance. The rain seemed to sizzle in the purple-black light. Dante drew his weapon, angling the blade toward the nearer Andrak. The handle tingled in his palm. Uphill, Gladick faltered a step, a line of confusion crossing his face to see them standing their ground. So, Blaze said, plan. Cut it open. Dante dropped back, standing shoulder to shoulder with Blaze. And hope you're right. The first Star Eater bunched its legs and flung itself at them, crossing twenty feet in a single bound. It slammed down and raked at Dante with its long black claws. The monster was much smaller than the swamp dragon had been, but the fact it stood upright, twelve feet if it was an inch, made it feel horrifically large. And while he'd fought a far bigger one at the reborn shrine, he hadn't dueled it. The urge to break and run was almost overpowering. Dante skipped back, the claws flashing past him and gouging into the rock in front of him. His sandal came down on a patch of iron slick with rain. His foot flew out from beneath him, dumping him onto the metal. His shoulders hit first, his head snapping back. Light flashed across his eyes. A shadow hung over him, filling the sky. A white sun blared within it. The darkness reached for him. Purple lightning lashed out, cutting across the shadows. The demon's scream jarred Dante's mind back into action. He was lying on his back, and Blaze had just struck the demon and saved Dante's life. Wisps of shadow fizzled away from the Star Eater's finger, which was now just a stump. Dante grinned. Blaze's sword had actually hurt it. Presumably, as Blaze had deduced, because it was churning with trace nether, the same raw substance the Andrak was made from. 
while it existed in the real world as a kind of ghostly projection, impervious to steel. Attacking it with a trace was, in effect, attacking it with something from its own realm. Orlyquin Blaze fought them within the shadows, where they could be hurt. To left and right, Neren and Volo were in full retreat. The Odosein followed, but gave the two Andrak a wide berth. Volo was somehow firing her bow on the run, searching for a weak point in the knight's armor, keeping control of her footing, even as her sandals skidded over rock and iron. There were a few archers on top of the hillock, trying to take shots at Neren and Volo, but they were overcompensating in their efforts to avoid hitting the knights, their arrows arcing past. The demon's hand had already stopped leaking shadows. Unbound by whatever ability the Odosein were using to lock the nether in place, the demon's traces reformed its severed finger and claw. Blaze rushed the creature. It clawed at him, and he spun to the side, raking both swords down its arm. Nether gouted from the wounds like inky blood. Dante reached for it, but before he could try to take hold, the second demon lunged at Blaze from the side. Dante charged and slashed into the second Andrak's leg. It spun on him and swung its claws down at his head. Dante thrust up his netherial blade, holding it at a forty-five degree angle to intercept across as wide a space as possible. The claws came down on the sword with a sound like a hammer smacking an ingot. The blade held, but something snapped in Dante's wrist. Pain shot up to his elbow. His sword fell from his grasp and landed with a clang. He bent to pick it up, but the Andrak was slashing at him with its other hand. Dante twisted himself under its claws and backpedaled three steps. The Andrak crouched over the sword, as if claiming it, then grinned at him and whirled on Blaze. Behind you, Dante yelled. At that moment, Blaze was jabbing and slashing at the other Star Eater with both swords, whipping them around so fast the demon was actually falling back a step. Its mouth closed in a glowing white line. Now Blaze spun about, flicking his wrist to send his sword skidding into the other Andrak's claws. Parrying the blow, he sidestepped to avoid the first demon's attack at his turned back. It was almost as if he could feel the demon's every move. And maybe he could. Maybe there was a ripple in the nether, some subtle hint. But watching him parry and counter the attacks of two demons at once, Dante thought he had simply been born to fight. Take cold comfort, Gladick called from above. When you die, your souls will mingle to form a new Andrak to fight for me. The archers had quit firing. A glance their way showed the cause. Gladick and a pair of soldiers had murdered them with a long lance and a stout blade. Standing over their corpses, as well as those of the servants the knights had killed earlier, he turned away from the battle and swung his hands together, gathering the traces. A third demon unfurled, shrieking in joy. Dante's wrist throbbed, possibly broken. He watched helplessly, casting about for Nether that wouldn't budge from its crevices in the earth.
The Star Eaters were attacking Blaze more cautiously now, exposing no more than their claws. Blaze was too busy keeping himself alive to risk a sustained attack that might wound one of them again. All the demons had to do was bide their time and wait for him to make a mistake. Blaze retreated a step, then a second. As the demon who disarmed Dante followed Blaze, it left Dante's sword alone on the rock. Dante rushed up to grab it. The demon who disarmed him spun about, backhanding its claws at his head and forcing him back. No! Dante screamed. Draw its blood! Blaze, momentarily alone with the other Star Eater, pressed hard, blades pinging against its blocking claws. He jerked forward, pressing toward its center. It deflected him, then fell back a step to give its partner the opportunity to rejoin it. As it moved its weight back, it left its left leg extended forward for balance. Blaze collapsed as if struck. He whipped his right wrist downward, slamming his blade into the top of the demon's exposed foot. Shadows spurted to either side. Dante snapped at them like a striking snake. Unlike every drop of nether in the valley, the shadows bleeding from the Andrak responded to his call because they were tracers, immune to the Odosein's oppression. Great coils of darkness wrapped around his forearms. He hurled some of the nether downhill into the backs of the knights who were still chasing Volo and Neron across the hellish terrain. Others he pressed to his ribs and wrist, his pain numbed, then vanished altogether. The demon guarding his sword hissed like crackling fire and charged at him. Still pulling Nether from the wounded Andrak, Dante thrust up the rock beneath his lost blade, popping it into the air and spinning toward him. Blaze might have caught it out of midair, but Dante let it fall beside him. The wounded demon was staggering, falling in on itself. Blaze hacked at its body with both blades. Dante wrenched out another handful of shadows and plunged them into the ground beneath the Star Eater charging him, yanking the rock away. The demon tripped into the hole. Dante lunged forward, skewering its arm as it grasped for a hold. Its nether coursed from the wound. Dante took it and shaped it into black bolts, slinging a salvo uphill toward Gladic. There, the priest had already crafted another demon from the dead archers. He gestured frantically, calling a third from the traces left by the murdered servants. The three Andrak crossed their arms over their faces and waded into the incoming shadows. Dark tufts sprayed from their bodies. They swatted at any bolt that tried to slip past them, hands fraying into dark clouds that were already starting to reform. A single bolt made it through, speeding toward Gladic. The priest threw his right hand in front of his face. The nether sliced through his wrist, his tan hand bouncing once against the iron ground. Gladic lifted his stump to his eyes. His mouth fell open. As Dante reached for another round of nether, the demon in the pit hauled its way out, swinging its weakened arm at him. Dante batted the claws aside with his sword and swept away the stone and iron beneath the demon a second time. As it fell, unbalanced, he brought his sword down on its head. At the top of the hillock, 
Gladick was dashing toward the massive iron hexagon, his sodden robes flapping around him. He touched it with a rod-like object in his left hand. A blue flash seared through the air, far brighter than any flaming star. You wouldn't let me stop it. Gladick's voice shook with hysteria. Then you can be the first to die. Cracks shot across the hexagon. The iron groaned and scraped. Gladick ran behind the monument. Dante fired a dozen bolts after him, but unable to see his target or sense him in the nether, there was almost no chance of hitting Gladick. The demon Blaze had wounded collapsed into vapor beneath his swords. Blaze ran toward Dante, cleaving into the trapped Andrek's back as Dante chopped at its arms and head. It dimmed, the wall of the pit visible behind its translucent body, then broke apart in a spray of shadows. Whatever was left of the tracers absorbed into the white rock. At the top of the rise, the three Star Eaters turned away from Dante and toward the collapsing iron hexagon. Great slabs of metal fell from its sides, banging down like pots and pans of a giant too drunk to cook. Below, the five surviving Odosein had quit chasing after Neren and Folo and were now staring uphill in perfect stillness. What are we all looking at? Blaze said. Clearly everyone's disturbed by Gladick's senseless act of petty vandalism. Dante flinched as an entire side of the hexagon fell outward and hammered to the ground. I have the bad feeling there's something inside there. He twisted and made a broad, come here gesture to Naren and Volo. Eyeing the motionless and possibly stunned Odo Sein, the two of them moved laterally across the hillside, further separating themselves from the knights, then trekked uphill. This, at last, spurred the Odosein into action. But rather than chasing the man and the girl, they appeared to be jogging to join the Andrak. With a final, dying groan, the ceiling of the hexagon collapsed on itself. A white spar of bone thrust into the air. With a bloom of pulverized iron dust, a towering figure stalked from the wreckage of the monument, spear in hand. A prickling sensation shot through Dante's sword hand so hard he had to glance at it to make sure it hadn't turned into a writhing mass of ants. In the metal rubble, a gauzy nimbus of light obscured anything more than the man's outline. Though he didn't quite rival the Andrak, he stood taller than any Norrin, with the build of an axeman or a blacksmith. Long strips of pale cloth fluttered from his forearms. The light sank into his body, revealing the details of his being. His skin was blue-white and semi-translucent, glowing like sunlight through ice. His face was beardless and weathered in the way of snow that had melted, refrozen, and been scoured by winds. He looked incredibly old. Really, he looked dead, but at the same time seemed vibrant, ageless, less of a mortal being 
and more of a natural force. His eyes were an unsteady state of blue, shifting from light powder to steel blue, and then something as dark as the ocean under full sunlight. His hair was white, curling around his face. His expression was blank like a lion's. Dante could feel great surges of sorcery within him, barely tamped down by the power of the Odosein. The being glanced at the demons, then downhill. Coming under his gaze was like being struck by a thrown brick. Er, uh, Blaze said, who the fuck is that? Chapter 27 The man from the hexagon swiveled his head to face the closest Andrak. He spoke in a voice that sounded like it was coming from inside a copper still. The language was nothing that Dante had ever heard. Other than his mouth, the man's face didn't move at all. The Andrak twisted its mouth into a sneer, flexed its claws, and charged. The man lowered his weapon and dropped into a fighting stance. Rather than a traditional spear, he bore something like a glaive, with a sword-like blade fixed to the end of a straight pole. Rather than metal, it seemed to be carved from the same stone they were standing on. Or, perhaps, from bone. The blade collided with the demon's claws in a storm of black and white sparks. The blue-white giant twirled his wrists, snapping the blade clear and driving it forward. It dug deep into the Andrak's shoulder, sending the demon back with a squealing hiss. The other two star-eaters planted their feet and sprung toward their foe. Blaze let his swords droop until their tips were nearly scraping the ground. If the tremendously frightening-looking fellow is fighting our enemies, then surely that makes him our friend, right? Dante's mouth had gone completely dry. Not sure we can count on that. Sandals scuffed up the slope. Neron and Volo ran up to join them. Both showed a few scrapes, but no major wounds. Neron's face was beaded with sweat and rain. Should I bother to ask what is happening? Blaze frowned at him. Never seen a trapped giant maniac do battle with three nether demons before? Atop the mound, the man twirled and jabbed, the strips of cloth on his arms snapping with each block and strike. On the hillside, the five Odosein broke into a dirge-like chant. It felt like a song of their own deaths, but their voices were composed and determined, even joyous or perhaps spiritual, as if they were finally being put to the use they had dedicated their lives to. The pressure in Dante's head was slightly weaker, but still very much present. Gladick's not far. This would seem like a very good time to pursue him. Right, Blaze said. And then might I suggest running away? Ideally somewhere very far from here. Dante sheathed his sword and ran along the circumference of the hillock. Above them, the titans tore at each other. 
One of the Andrak was already leaking shadows from several deep wounds. The man had suffered a single claw rake. His skin seemed to be seeping a glowing white fluid. The Odosein joined the battle, but beneath the towering demons and the statue-like man in white, their hulking armor looked as puny as children using sticks to play fight in the yard. Dante swung around the back side of the hill. Gladick was already halfway across the bowl, stumbling along on the wet rock. After they'd gotten a hundred yards toward the far rim, the priest turned around, spotted them, and pushed his pace faster. Even so, they were gaining. They'd catch him soon after cresting the ridge, and with the sign of his blood pulsing in Dante's brow, he'd have nowhere to hide. Dante glanced over his shoulder. One of the Star Eaters, and at least one of the Odosein, were nowhere to be seen. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the blue-white man looked to be fine. His glaive now showed pale blue markings along the shaft that glowed with inner light. They might have been runes, probably the same ones that had been on the hexagon, but Dante was too far away to be sure. They neared a fold filled with red water. As Dante splashed through, the surface surged to his left and right. Half a dozen of the ghostly white people emerged, their eyes filled with a sick and angry yearning. They jumped to their feet and sprinted after Dante and the others, obliging them to draw their weapons and turn around. The enemy fought ferociously, but with no coordination. The ethereal blades put them down in moments. The four of them ran on after Gladick. More of the water people were arising from pockets of water from around the entire valley. Most were streaming toward the center, faces pulled tight with a focus that looked almost religious in power. They hurtled forward with heedless disregard for their own bodies, slipping on the wet rock and metal, leaving bloody footprints that were soon washed away by the rain. Others diverted course to come at Dante and the others, forcing them to stop again, find favorable footing, and defend themselves. None of the people said a single word. As the nether-wrapped blades cut through them, rather than pain or terror, their faces warped in anguished frustration. Few of the pale beings were arising near the fringes of the circular valley, and Gladick appeared untroubled by them. Dante wasn't certain, but they seemed to be losing ground on the priest. Swearing under his breath, he glanced back at the small hill where the hexagon had stood. His eyes bulged. Blaze twisted around for a look. Tell me the Andrak are charging off to fight an invisible foe, because if they're actually running away, then I am officially terrified. The demons' backs were turned to the ice-like man as they fled from the mound, trails of shadows streaming behind them. There was no sign of the Odosein, except, perhaps, for some of the red splashed around on the rock. The man planted his long glaive and watched the demons retreat. The next time Dante glanced back, the man had turned to stare at them. We should run faster, Dante said. If you can't run faster, start thinking of ways to beg for your life. 
Five more of the water people plunged through the bony posts, stopping them in their tracks. Faced with the Odosane blades, the attackers weren't much of a threat, but by the time Blaze sent the last of them thudding to the ground, Gladick had slipped over the ridge. The man from the hexagon was on the move, too. He didn't look to be hurrying, yet he sped over the ground, as if it were being pulled along beneath him. He's going for us, Dante said. We have about a minute to find good ground and make the most of it. Blaze pointed to a long platform of rock elevated from the earth around it by a few inches on one side and two feet on the other. It looked to be the best they'd find. They jumped on it, Blaze heading straight for the puddle of blood-red water near its center and swishing his sword around in it to make sure it wasn't harboring any of the undrowned people. The blue-white man had reached the bottom of the hillock and was now bounding up the slope with a wolfish combination of speed and tirelessness. Streams of water people were dashing after him with looks of yearning chiseled into their faces. But despite their haste, the giant quickly left them behind. Dante called out to the Nether. With the death of the Odosein, he thought it would be released, but it remained stuck fast. Was the Odosein's power something they carried passively in their flesh, with no need to actively exert it? Were there others lurking out of sight nearby, or was the whole wound somehow cut off from the flow of shadow and glow of light that existed in every other corner of the world? He looked to the ether, but it too was held in place. He moved beside Blaze and drew his sword. The giant man slowed to his equivalent of a jog. He stopped thirty feet away from their shelf of rock. It didn't feel nearly far enough. With one leap and a thrust of his glaive, he could be among them. The man gazed at Dante, eyes shifting between every shade of blue. His features didn't look Tenarian. In fact, they didn't look like any people Dante had yet seen. The eyes seemed to be too long at the corners, the mouth stretching too wide below his thick nose. Dante held his sword at his side. Who are you? He'd spoken in Malish. When the man replied, his voice reverberating through the open air, it was in a flowing language that didn't remind Dante of anything he'd ever heard. The man lifted his left hand, pointing at Dante's chest. He spoke again, voice rising. Whatever it is, it was that guy's fault. Blaze pointed in the direction Gladick had fled. Unless you're asking who to thank for letting you out, in that case, it was all of us. He won't stop. Volo's voice was little more than a whisper. Not unless we swear to serve him. Even then, he might take our souls instead. The man positioned the glaive horizontal to the ground, held lengthwise in front of his hips. His next words rang with a formal cadence. He stopped, the only sounds the steady bash of the rain and the frenzied beating of the water people's bare feet as they ran toward the man in white. Though the air was warm, it suddenly smelled like a northern wind.
Don't make any moves, Dante murmured to the others. We're not here to- Without the slightest hint of anger or enmity, the man bent his knees, swung his glaive forward, and charged. He mounted the shelf of rock. Blaze stepped forward, flicking his left-hand sword into the path of the glaive. The blades met with a wrenching screech. The purplish shadows on the Odosain weapon flickered wildly as it bent its ethereal strength to countering the physical power of the blow. The man pivoted to his right, meaning to turn the glaive into a lever to unbalance Blaze or even toss him from his feet. Rather than resisting, Blaze let his sword fall downward. He ducked under the whooshing polearm and spun inside the giant's range. He struck at the man's extended left arm. The blade stalled in the man's snapping arm wraps, yet fought through to cut into his forearm. Fluid spattered from the wound, a ghostly blue that shimmered despite the lack of sunlight. Blaze swung his right-hand sword in a backhand aimed at the giant's ribs. The man tucked back his hips and swung the glaive across his body. The angle was awkward and one-handed, yet his sheer strength propelled the weapon's shaft into Blaze with enough force to send Blaze tumbling to the earth. Volo let loose an arrow. It struck the man dead center in the chest. He pulled it free and flung it aside. Dante and Naren pincered him, drawing his attention away from Blaze, who was still pulling himself to his feet. The pale man jabbed at Dante with the glaive's blade. As Dante intercepted its tip with his sword, the man rammed it backwards, thrusting the butt at Naren's head. Naren gave way, cutting at the end of the haft. The ethereal swords had shown the ability to slice through just about anything short of a block of solid rock, but it hit the haft with a hard click and bounced away. The giant jerked his wrists, whipping the glaive's butt back at Naren's head. Naren just had time to raise his shoulder and tuck his chin to his chest. The impact sent him skidding over the rock. As soon as he was down, the man bull-rushed Dante. Another arrow hit the man in the thigh. He brushed it away. The wounds to his left arm and chest were shining with white light, sealing up before Dante's eyes. Seeing the ether at work, Dante pulled at the nether. It was still no use. Narrowing his eyes, he focused on the ether spilling from the giant's body, purging his mind of all thoughts. Nothing came. The glaive's bone point was thrusting for his throat. He swung at it in a broad arc, scuttling to the side. When his blade hit the enemies, his arm jarred so hard he nearly dropped his sword. He's like an andrak, Dante yelled, backpedaling from another attack healing himself, but I can't pull the ether from him. Blaze rushed the man from behind. As the man spun about, Blaze trapped his glaive with one sword and hurled himself inside the man's guard, poised to strike at his head or chest. Instead, the giant snap-kicked Blaze in the gut, sending him flying. Blaze landed and didn't get up. Volo fired another arrow but it flew past the man's head. Dante tried to rush him, but the man was already spinning about. Dante ducked. The glaive's shaft whooshed over his head. Dante popped to his feet and ran back five full steps. 
blaze was still down. Volo's quiver was down to its last two or three arrows. Neren wasn't hurt too badly yet, but he was no better a swordsman than Dante. Far worse than that, the first of the water people would be on them in less than a minute. As soon as they arrived to harry Dante from all sides, he and the others would have the choice of being torn apart by the furious minions or impaled by the impassive giant. His heart felt like it was being squeezed through a straw. He didn't even know who the giant was, couldn't even talk to him. He had no desire to fight the man, had, in fact, been trying to avoid that, but whatever Gladick had released from the hexagon, it seemed bent on destroying everything in sight. Worse, it seemed capable of doing so. It had slaughtered the Odosein, killed an Andrak, sent the others scurrying away. Without the Nether, what hope did he and Neren have? There was only one way out. They had to kill the giant with a single stroke. Before he could heal. He was too strong and too fast for Dante or Neren to pull that off. Even Blaze hadn't been able to do more than scratch him. But Volo's bow didn't have to worry about the man's reach or the strength of his arms. Dante suspected the enemy's skull was thick enough to protect him from most shots, but he also suspected an arrow in his eye or mouth would do the trick. Dante turned to yell an order at Volo. As he watched, she knocked and loosed her last arrow. It hit the giant in the shoulder. He pulled it loose, snapped it into fragments, and cast it aside. Dante bit his teeth together. The water people were closing in. The giant was undaunted. Dante lifted his sword, reminded himself not to get stuck in the past lens, and prepared to die. He stumbled and slid up the white grim rock his legs aching, tears flowing down his face to be drowned in the rain. His right arm was numb. It felt twice the size it should. Ironic, considering it was now smaller than it had ever been. He was afraid he might bleed to death. He'd had to apply a tourniquet torn from his robes on the run, and it wasn't a good one but maybe that would be a blessing. As Gladick neared the ridge, he didn't bother to glance back at the fight near the ruins of the Ria Lase. He hadn't had nearly enough time to forge a force capable of destroying the White Lich. The entire attempt had been yet another failure. Yet again, that failure had been precipitated by the Nethermancer from the north. He could only pray that by his unleashing of the Aiden Rane unexpectedly early, Galand would finally be destroyed. The ground leveled beneath his battered feet. He hobbled along, surveying the hellscape ahead for the Drakebane. Blighted, loped uphill to make for the Rialase, pathetically eager to serve the one who had reduced them to their graceless state. 
but Gladick saw no hint of the Emperor, nor of his retinue. This attempt had failed. But if he could find the Drakebane, they could withdraw, they could regroup, and they could strike at the White Lich again. His ether remained locked in the grasp of the Odosein, but that which had been disturbed would still show itself when looked at with purity of vision. Tuning his sight to the light, he took another look at the ground. The blighted had left many tracks of their own, yet there it was, a cluster of dimly glowing white footprints carrying north across the jagged alien landscape. Gladick drew himself up and moved on. As he walked, he tore another piece from his robe to bind around his stump. The sight of the sliced meat and bone made him breathless. It wasn't the wound itself that disturbed him. Flesh had never concerned him. It was a vessel, nothing more. When it was broken, it was no more gruesome than the breaking of a clay pot. But where it had come from? Galand. Again. Was there a symbolism to the taking of Gladick's right hand? The hand that served the gods? A shudder racked his body. One that had nothing to do with the rain. After the fall of Colin to the barbarous rebels, certain rumors had spread forth. Gladick had dismissed them as transparent propaganda, or, if that was giving too much credit to the crudely warlike leadership as the superstitious whisperings of heretics and near-pagans. But what if they were correct? What if Galand truly was an avatar of Aron? One sent to whisper lies far and wide, to bedevil Gladick wherever he went, and at last to spread the ultimate darkness across not only Tanaratain, but the entire world. The thought frightened him, but fear put a spring in his step. He tottered over the rolling, unholy white rock of the wound, occasionally spitting on it, and only altering course to avoid an upthrust stone or a passing blight. He was afraid the Drakebane would make haste for the boats and depart before Gladick caught up. But within minutes, he gazed across the unclean vista and spied the Emperor and his retinue, holding a conversation between a stand of especially tall bone growths. The Odosein were the first to notice him. He could feel the judgment behind their masks. Though he begrudgingly admired their dedication, he didn't care for the knight's stoic scorn. Ignoring their gazes, he presented himself to the Drakebane and bowed his head. Gladick. The man's voice was as heavy as his features, which were unusually thick for a Tenarian the mark of the well-guarded Drake Bane line. His black hair was streaked with orange, a sign of general nobility, one significant enough that dyeing one's own hair orange had been illegal for centuries. 
The Emperor stood on that brink of male age, when youth was almost all but spent, and in the blink of an eye a man could collapse from the haleness of a warrior into the doddering of an old fool. You live. The White Lich is freed. His news caused even the Odosein to declare oaths. Used to being at the center of such shock and dismay, Gladic waited for the hubbub to pass. Neither the Andrak nor the Odosein could stop him. When I saw that this was so, I retreated, for I believe we may yet destroy him. The Drakebane shook his head slowly. It is too late, priest. Your promise is broken. You have failed. I do not understand, Emperor. And you don't need to. The Lord nodded to his retinue and turned as if to go. Emperor! Galatic fought to keep the plea from his voice. Will you not fight? You've already lost your throne. This caused the three of the Odosein to turn. Even with their helmets in place, he could feel the murder within their eyes. If you let the foe take free reign, you'll lose your country as well. No, priest. I have the feeling Malon will prove quite welcoming to as many of my people as I care to save. While I'm sure they will provide accommodations for displaced royalty, I know King Charles well, your majesty. I am afraid he will turn away all of your... Refugees. My line has fought the liches for centuries. We know their power. Do you think we were so arrogant that we never considered a day like today might befall us? We knew our home could be destroyed at any time. You believe we never thought to secure another? Please, Majesty, I do not know what King Charles has told you. But I do know his mind. He will make you promises, if that suits him, and then he will break them, because that also suits him. The emperor broke into laughter. We have no need for his promises. We have been preparing since before Charles's time, priest. Why do you think my people have all been made to speak malice? Our spies are in your palace. Our priests in your temples. Your priests have been taught to fear the return of the dragon. They chafe at your faith's denial, champing at the bit for reform. Your military has built boats to carry us from here to Brussels, and to make it our new home. And if your king denies us, then he will soon be king of nothing. Gladick's mind felt as though it was tumbling into an abyss. But I pledged myself to cleanse your land. For this, you betray me? You betrayed yourself when you failed. I do what I must to keep my people alive. I fought this evil for too long. Let it take this land and the rebels with it. No! 
Gladick reached for the Drake Bane's rain cloak. Anodosayin interposed himself between them, pressing a gauntleted hand against Gladick's breastbone. Your Majesty, you can't do this. Oh, priest. Pity and contempt entered the Drake Bane's piercing eyes. He lifted a silver charm from his neck, showing a snake wrapped around the eyes of a proud man. I already have. He turned and walked away. Gladick's throat closed on itself, his chest tightening, his legs weakened beneath him. Was his aging body about to give out on him at last? He smiled at the thought. Everything he'd worked to build had been ruined. Everything he'd tried to make pure had been defiled. Where he'd placed his trust, it had been betrayed. Worst of all, he had abetted the very man who would now try to take Gladick's cherished home, Bressel. Civilization's north star in a black void of brutality, ugliness, and heresy, and cast it down from the sky. But at least death, at last, would spare him the fate of watching the shadow he'd help give birth to as it devoured the world's last lights. He sank to the horrid grimstone, the rain beating against his gaunt, wrinkled face, and awaited for Aron to claim him. He was an old man, and everything he had done had only made the mortal realm a more wretched place. His breathing slowed. The pain in his chest eased. Did he cry then? Perhaps he did, because he wasn't going to die, and that, finally, taught him the only lesson worth knowing. There are gods, and they are not merciful. Dante stood against the wrath of the giant and searched for any meaning to be found in his last moments. He found them as empty as an old skull. He was going to die, and so were his friends, and their deaths would mean nothing. Lost to a fight where victory, even if it were possible, would gain him nothing. The giant charged, and he scampered to the side, feinting an attack to engage the towering man, while Neron came at him from the rear. As before, the man was wise to their tricks, batting Naren away with the blade of his glaive. Dante rushed the giant, sandals splashing through the rain gathering on the solid ground. Before he'd come within range of the ethereal sword, the blue-white man pivoted about, slamming the butt of his polearm into Dante's side. The blow sent him flying. He landed on a span of iron, his forehead cracking into the metal. Blood dripped from his eyebrow. It and the ground beneath him smelled the same. Out of the hopeless habit, he reached out for the nether, meaning to feed his blood to it. 
The shadows kept their peace. He wondered if he should bother to get up. The thought of accepting his fate was so tempting, he closed his eyes. An end, at last, to all the struggles he never seemed to be able to escape. Yet this thought troubled him. He'd had it not long ago, when the swamp dragon had nearly drowned him. And he'd discovered he had more backbone than he knew. He cocked his head. Heart pounding in his ears, he reached into himself, seeking out the nether entwined in his spine. It was there, but his whole body was alive with shadows. Just like when he'd been constructing his sword, he couldn't tell what part might be the trace. Another drop of blood fell from his forehead. He ordered the nether to it. Nearly all of the shadows within him stayed put, locked in place by the aura of the Odosein. Yet some of those braided inside his spine began to stir. He drew his trace from himself. The act felt startling, a combination of pain and relief, like diving into icy water or removing a long thorn from your flesh. He held the shadows in one hand and made a fist with the other. His face hurt. He was grinning. He rose to his feet and faced the giant, who'd been distracted by Neron slashing at his ankles as he advanced on Dante. Shaping the nether into a killing bolt, Dante finally understood why they went through such strife why they fought all the smaller fights, even if it was for the good of someone else rather than themselves. Because when they fought the little fights, they grew strong enough to be able to fight back when it truly mattered. The giant drove Neron into a full retreat. The enemy glanced at Volo, who was tending to blaze, or possibly trying to take one of his swords, then turned back to Dante. He tilted his head, color-shifting eyes locking onto the shadows in Dante's hand. As Dante hurled them at the man's face, the giant bared his teeth, the muscles of his cheeks striated like granite cliffs. It took Dante a second to understand the twisted look on the man's face was a grin. At the last instant, the giant turned his head and ducked his chin, the nether gouged across his forehead and into his hairline, sending ether swirling around his head like powdery snowflakes. Faint blue fluid seeped down his face. Sorcerer. The man spoke malice with a thick accent that made the word sound like zorzoror, up-tilted slightly at the end. He laughed like a tin sheet being shaken back and forth. You have skill, skill and choice. I will offer it to you one time. Dante backed across the iron ground and the giant followed. Let me guess. Join you or die. The blue-white man shook his head in four slow sweeps. Join me 
or join them. He gestured to the pool dwellers who had come to a stop to watch them from a hundred yards away. Their faces were sick with anxiety. If I join you, Dante said, what then? You will be made as me, my servant, but to the others, a god. And my friends? Keep them. All gods need slaves. Dante retreated another few steps, and the giant strolled after him. The wound on the man's face was already closing. The bolt of shadows hadn't caused more than a groove in his skin. It was like his body was so infused with ether that it had a natural armor against sorcerous attacks. The nether in Dante's trace was limited. Even if he depleted it entirely, he doubted it would be enough. And he did not want to see what happened if he used it all. And once I serve you, Dante felt for the iron beneath his feet. What will we do together? Conquer? The giant shook his head again. We will consume. Sounds like a generous offer. But I've got one for you. Die! Dante jerked his hand upward. A spike of iron ore shot from the ground aimed at the giant's guts. With a grunt, it might have been a chuckle, the man stepped to the side. As he put down his foot, Dante sent a second spike jutting beneath it. Yet the enemy seemed to be able to feel the shifts in the nether and was already sliding his foot away. The impromptu blade nicked the side of his foot, drawing blood but causing no major damage. Looking amused, the giant jogged toward the side of the uneven spread of iron. Dante considered trying to gore him with one last spike, but if the man dodged again, that would be the end. But just as Dante didn't stand to gain anything from winning the fight, aside from his own life, he didn't have to kill the man to survive. He reached into himself and the metal-rich rock. Drawing deeply on the trace, he heaved a wave of iron over the giant like pulling a quilt over an unruly dog. With the last drop of trace he dared to spend, he shaped the iron to allow the end of the glaive through, then slammed the metallic ore closed around the shaft, trapping the weapon in place. His makeshift chamber was a poor match for the rune-inscribed hexagon, but inside its walls the giant bellowed with rage. Neren gawked. Will that imprison him? I have no fucking idea, Dante said, feeling lightheaded and ready to vomit. Get Blaze on his feet. Volo slapped Blaze in the face. He opened one eye. From the slackness of his face, it was exceedingly obvious that he didn't know what was happening, and possibly even where he was. But Blaze had always been possessed with a supernatural ability to understand when it was time to move his legs until the landscape changed enough to escape whatever was threatening to kill him. Volo propped him up on her slim shoulders. Neren moved to join them. 
The water people each shrieked once and burst forward, faces drawn back so tightly by their anger that their noses looked ready to slice through their skin. Dante sprinted to join Neron, who jogged to engage the closest people before they could get to Volo and Blaze. Neron's crackling sword deposited their foes to the ground in several large chunks. Neron jogged uphill, Volo and Blaze trudging along behind him. Dante took up the rear, decapitating one of the pale people and sticking his sword through the ribs of another. Flickers of shadows stole from the corpses and into his sword. Behind them, the giant pounded on the inside of his prison, fists booming like thunder. For the moment, the walls seemed to be holding. The pounding stopped. Dante suspected he was pulling on the glaive. If he could get it free, he could, probably, carve through the iron in seconds. But it didn't appear to be budging. The people from the pools were threatening to overwhelm them. But Blaze was starting to get a feel for his legs again, running hard. Dante was so dizzy he felt himself reeling side to side. He focused on his friends' backs. A half-dozen of the strange people awaited them at the top of the ridge. They carried shards of bone, but apparently the wits had returned to Blaze's arms, too. He drew his weapons and sheared through the welcoming party. Ahead, the land sloped down gently, littered with bony growths and the odd chunk of iron. Dante's first priority was getting the hell away from the giant, but the pressure in his head told him that Gladick was practically straight ahead of them. Gladick seemed to know this area, including, presumably, the ways out of it. Volo, Dante said, you knew what that thing was. She glanced over her shoulder. If you've heard of a mountain but never seen one, do you really know it? Much better than someone who doesn't even know mountains exist. Okay, but what if you've heard about mountains, but you think the whole idea of a big pile of rock that's miles high is so crazy, it can't possibly be true? Quit trying to argue your way out of this. Who was that man? Still running, she gazed down at the ground. They call him Aiden Rane, the White Lich. Finally, some progress. And who is this White Lich? He was one of the sorcerers, one that's so old he probably did exist before the mountains were around. But that's all I know. You know more than that. You said he might take our souls. What does that mean? Volo watched a pair of water people running toward the valley at full speed. It means he turns you into them. Dante blinked. Was Gladick trying to keep him sealed up? Or to kill him? Why would he do that? I don't know, she said. To save the world? Are you being serious? They told us he would help us but I don't think they were telling the whole truth. She wouldn't say more, even who they was. The ground began to rise again. The white fields and mounds looked like they could be endless. 
To get some idea of the path ahead, Dante diverted to a small, steep hill. From its top, the western edge of the wound looked to end in a steep drop that might have been cliffs. The eastern fields were pocked with rifts in the surface. The north, where Gladick had gone, looked the same as the ground they'd already crossed. He could also see behind them into the round valley of the White Lich. There, a small army had entered the bowl, flying the colors of the monsoon. Scouts ran ahead. Approaching the iron prison, Dante had sealed the White Lich inside. As they neared, a hole opened in the side of the prison, disgorging a massive, glowing figure. Across from the Lich, the members of the monsoon bent their knees and bowed their heads. The boy was late, and getting later by the minute. When Rasha couldn't stand it any more, she scaled the side of the warehouse and crawled across the roof, getting down beside the chimney. Out in the darkness, the fleet awaited at the docks. A small legion of soldiers milled around the grounds. Word around the palace was that they'd be leaving that night. After ensuring nothing interesting was happening, Rorschach backed off to the edge of the roof, but there was still no sign of Sorrowin. She wasn't sure why that irritated her so much. She was better off on her own. Less chance of getting spotted. And if they did see her, she had a much better chance of rabbiting. An unusual amount of hollering was going on in the neighborhoods around them. Rorschach hadn't thought it was a holiday, but maybe it was one of those that the nobles were too good to celebrate with the peons. Lanterns pricked up along the docks. Sailors detached from the crowd of troops and embarked. As they made what looked like their final preparations, the soldiers began to move. A few hundred men walked onto the piers and divided themselves up between the forty-odd boats. Most of the soldiers remained on dry land, and now that Rosha really looked at it, there weren't all that many of them. Not nearly enough to fill the boats. Barely enough to row them. They settled in at the benches. Sailors cast off their ropes and the oarsmen rowed downstream. Should she climb down and chase after them? See if they pulled in anywhere to pick up more troops? Then again, if they had more soldiers that close... Why in the spinning shits wouldn't they have just brought them to Keller's Pier to embark? More annoyed than ever, she watched the ship's lanterns drift down the river. Rather than coming in at another pier, they were moving toward the center of the chancet. Another couple of miles, and they'd be out to sea. She supposed she might as well confirm that. She shimmied down the warehouse. She'd taken three whole steps south when a robed figure swung from behind the building across the alley. Thorwin jerked when he saw her. His southerner's face had tanned well in the few weeks they'd been in Bressel, but that night it was as blanched as a yellowness. The collar of his robe was stained red, but his face and neck looked all right. You heal yourself? Rasha motioned to the blood. Or is that not yours? There was... The kid swallowed, eyebrows flexing inward 
I don't know what it was. There was fighting in the temples. Rochard glanced over her shoulder. There was a warehouse between them and Keller's Pier, but there had been an awful lot of soldiers that away. She tugged his sleeve and walked him south. Let me guess. Rochard stepped around a fishy-smelling puddle. Brother Farwin stole Brother Alrod's pudding again. A squad of soldiers came to the door after we'd closed for the night. Master Gochran told them to go away and come back tomorrow, but Master Waymore let them inside. It seemed like half the monastery was waiting for them. They rousted the rest of us. Master Waymore proclaimed that Darus had returned to the east, that it was our sworn duty to resist him, that we would need the help of a great prophet to slay Darus again. But not to worry, because the prophet Drakebane was already on his way from the east, and that he would deliver us from the dragon's wrath. Master Gochran's face was so red, I thought he'd spew wine from his ears. He told Waymore that that was outright heresy, and that if Gochran renounced it then and there, that nobody would have to know about it. Before Master Waymore could say anything one way or another, one of the soldiers... Sorrowin dropped his gaze. He stabbed Master Gochran in the gut, like he was no more than a pig. He looked on the brink of tears. Rorschach suddenly felt intensely uncomfortable. Then what? The temple went mad. They were throwing ether around like boys throwing stones, brothers killing brothers. By the end, Gochran's supporters were all murdered or taken captive. When they told me to fetch water to mop up the blood, I just started running. Smart move. Any idea what this is about? Madness. Stark raving madness. Something's wrong, Rosha. I don't think it's safe to stay here. We haven't been safe since we walked into the city. Thinking she'd heard the march of soldiers, she glanced behind them, but the alley was empty. If it's too dangerous here, we could always head to Colin. The fleet just left, but they didn't look like they had enough men to conquer a farmhouse. Sorrowin beetled his brow. Then why would they even try to invade Colin? Don't ask me. Could be a training exercise. The alley fed them out into a main road. A patrol of twenty soldiers tromped down the street, boots clopping in time. A block away, two men shouted at each other in anger. Glass shattered. The soldiers broke into a trot. Rorschach peered into the darkness. The soldiers' torches spilled light over the front of a temple. Outside, men in robes cursed at each other. This is getting weird. Rorschach headed south, away from the brewing skirmish. I want to see if the fleet heads out to sea, but if there's a riot going on, we might have to get off the streets. They walked briskly. Shouts sounded from all sides, carrying far on the damp seaside air. Small groups of people ran down the street with hoods pulled over their faces. Some carried torches, the smell of pitch unfurling behind them. A few carried swords. In Bressel, that was illegal. 
unless you were a soldier. Rasha could read cities, and she could read nights. This one felt wrong, like a lot of people were about to get hurt. On a main thoroughfare, people stood in tight knots, talking in worried tones. Rasha broke into a jog, hoping she and Sorowan looked like a young couple that had stayed out too late and was hurrying home. They were still a mile from the mouth of the river, when the bells tolled from the spire of the Odellion. The noise was foreboding, pendulous, like the city had opened a door that should have stayed shut. Around them, everyone went as silent as a mountaintop. They turned as one toward the center of the city, toward the palace. A few of them broke from their friends and ran like spooked deer. Most drew tighter yet, babbling like a pub on the eve of a tournament. She raised an eyebrow at Sorowan. Any idea what the bells mean? Sorowan swung his head back and forth. I've never heard them before. She was about to let it be, but upheaval in the capital was the kind of thing that could stop a war in its tracks. She slowed, approaching a cluster of people. They stared her down. She smiled at a bald man on the outskirts of the group. I'm sorry, she said, laying her northern accent on thick. I am not from here. These bells, they are what? The man drew back his head like she'd spit at his feet. Don't you know anything? That's the toll of the banished lord's bells. King Charles, he's dead. They were nearly to the next major ridge when the shadows tore loose from the power of the Odosein. Freed, they seemed to dance on the wind, darting between the raindrops. Dante slowed, spreading his hands and gathering them up. They had all suffered cuts and bruises, and Blaze had been running with the tightness of his upper body that suggested he might have cracked some ribs. Dante stopped to heal them all. It was necessary, but after going so long without being able to call to the nether, he would have jumped at the excuse to cure a hangnail. Blaze took a deep breath, spreading his arms wide. That's better. Spent the last twenty minutes about to scream in your ear until you got annoyed enough to knock me back out. Naren surveyed the hellscape around them. They hadn't seen one of the water people in several minutes. Does the return of your abilities mean that the Odosain are vanquished? Dante sighed. I look forward to when I can someday know the answer to a question. Until that time, I once again have no God's damn clue. How close are we? Blaze said. Close. Excellent. By the way, we probably shouldn't kill him right away. Dante met his eyes. No? Not until we've beaten the location of his boat out of him. He wouldn't be heading this way if he didn't have a way off this rock. Dante murmured his assent. As they crested the ridge, the pressure in his head grew unbearable. They found Gladick huddled under a stand of blade-like white growths. The priest's eyes were closed. 
He clutched the stump of his arm to his chest, though the ether now shined on the air, ready to be put to use. His wound was unhealed. His slack face was at peace. Blaze lifted his eyebrows at Dante. So much for getting him to tell us where his boat is. Dante leaned closer, reaching out for the nether in the old man's body. Gladick's eyes snapped open. Dante jerked back, calling forth a swarm of shadows. You have nothing to fear. Gladick's chuckle was as dry as the dusts of Colin. At least, not from me. He glanced between them with no apparent concern. I surmise you are here for your vengeance. You surmise right, Blaze said. It's time to answer for the murder of the coloners. Neron tipped back his chin. And that of my captain, Mariola Twill. And everyone else we've left out. I'd list them, but I'd like to be out of here before next week. Gladick nodded to himself then stared up at Dante. Kill me, then. I beg you. Hey, now, Blaze said. You're not supposed to want it. That spoils the fun. Dante met the old priest's gaze. Why? Gladick rolled his eyes. You cannot pour any more guilt in my cup when it already overflows. If there is any mercy in your soul, you will kill me. If not, you'll make me commit one last sin. My suicide. Not until you tell me what's happened here. The old man sighed, squeezing his eyes shut. You are the most tediously dogged person that I have ever known. Very well. Here is the list of calamities. The Drakebane is taking Malin. The White Lich will take the world. And it is all my fault. Dante was so taken aback that he couldn't narrow himself to a single question. Blaze rested his hand on the hilt of his sword. Did we finally drive you insane? The Drakebane was just kicked out of his own keep. How in the world would he dash off and conquer Malin? By dumping a school of Ziki Oko into the chancet? It won't require even that much, Gladick said mildly. Not when he spent decades setting his plans in place. He has infiltrated the priesthood, inserted spies into the palace. Right now, he summons Malin's own fleet to bring his people to Bressel. That's... Blaze swung his head to bug his eyes at Dante. Shit! Roshos fleet, Dante said. It isn't to invade Colin. It's to move the Drakebane's loyalists out of Tanara Tain, to make a new home in Malin. Yes, but that's insane. You are a man who lacks vision. 
Gladick scoffed. Hence you mistake fanatical devotion for common insanity. In controlling the priests, the Drake Bane has command of the ether, along with most of the peasantry, who will do whatever the clergy commands. It seems he has also bent the military to his will. The only thing that stands between him and complete control is the king and his loyalists. And he has assured me that Lord Charles is not long for this world. Dante narrowed his eyes. Yet you sound skeptical. That he can take Malin? Not a whit. But even the Drake Bane's vision is hampered. For all their complexity, none of his schemes matter. The White Lich is free. No matter how far the Emperor runs from this place, it's only a matter of time until we are all the Lich's slaves. He's right, Volo blurted. The monsoon didn't think we could hold on to the capital, so we thought we could use the Lich to destroy the Drakebane's dynasty. And he will. But then he'll kill us, too. Except the ones he enslaves. And then he'll come for the rest of you. Indeed. Gladick bowed his head and shut his eyes again. So, kill me. Take your vengeance while there is still any meaning to be had in this world. I can't. Dante's head rang with the beat of his heart. You say this is your fault. Then will you help me undo it? He held out his hand. Gladick's mouth fell open. Tears welled in the hollows of his eyes. He reached out with his left arm and clasped Dante's hand in his own. You have been listening to The Wound of the World, Book Three of the Cycle of Galand, produced by Greg Lawrence. Executive Producers James Ton and Greg Lawrence. Text Copyright 2016 by Edward W. Robertson. Production Copyright 2017 by Podium Publishing, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this audiobook, let us know. Take a quick moment to rate and review it on Audible, so we know we're bringing you audiobooks you'll love. From the author Don't worry, this isn't the end of the cycle of Galand. I'm expecting to write two or three more to finish the story. The next book should be out in the spring of 2017. To make sure you know when it's out, please sign up for my mailing list. If you haven't already read the earlier books in this world, 
The previous trilogy is called The Cycle of Oran. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.